Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded on April 25th, 2019, just five days after our last show. One of the shortest gaps we've had between shows in recent times. And I could have skipped it. I could have said, you know, I'm just going to wait till next Wednesday because we did a show Saturday. Would have just been another week and a half. But I said, no, we're going to do another show. We're not going to miss one because of that weird Saturday show that I had to do because I was in Yosemite during the week. And we're doing one here on Thursday. And if you like Poker Fraud Alert Radio more often than once a week, you'll be happy to know that our next scheduled show is six days from now on Wednesday. So we'll have three shows in the span of about a week and a half. This is the second one. Hopefully we'll have enough to talk about next week. Actually, this week we have some topics I was worried we wouldn't have enough to talk about, but we do. I want to tell you quickly about a free roll we have, $53 free roll that's running already. started at 9 a.m. in the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You need to get in there in the next four minutes because it started at 9 p.m. Pacific. The late registration closes at 9.20 Pacific, so if you're not there in the next four minutes, you're not going to get in. You need to know the rules to win the free money, pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll to learn the rules for winning the free money. You need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, and it needs to be validated once in order to be able to play, and that's in order to prevent multi-accounting and chip dumping. We have that security measure in place. Thank you this week to the two donors who gave us the $53. Dive Bar, D- Dive Bar Dave gave uh, $40, and $13 came from Shoeshine Box, who called into the show recently. He's a poker dealer, so happy to have him listening. I know he's very supportive of the show. So thank you to both of you for the $53. The money is distributed as follows this week. $27 for first, 16 for second, 10 for third. 27, 16, and 10. So get in there. You have two minutes left. <laughs> if you rush, you can make it. If you're not registered yet, don't bother. But if you're there, you can quickly log into the No Fraud Online Poker Room near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com and get in there. I'll be honest, because of the late starts we have, and tonight we started especially late because of kind of an emergency that happened here, which I'll tell you about in a second. But uh, because we start late, it's often a good idea just to go into the free roll on the night of radio at the time it says the free roll will be, and then you can just play, even if we haven't started the show yet. So that's a little tip for you. I have a feeling tonight will be a smaller field because of this, because we didn't get the show started until well after 9. Last week we had a small field, too, because it was a Saturday night. But the same money is being given away, so the fewer players, the easier it is for you to win. We're going to have Eric Benzamokin on the show tonight, during our first segment. He is universally liked on the radio, which is very hard to do on this show. There's, there's nobody here who is universally liked, it seems. I'm not universally liked. There's people who hate me that listen. I don't know why, but there's people who hate me and listen, people who dislike me and listen. I've had complaints about every single co-host we've had. More positive than negative for every single one of them. So I, I, I'm glad to say that, that there's been no co-host we've had where the majority of comments were negative. But every single co-host we've had, no matter how much I personally like them, every single one of them, I've received messages criticizing them. And I've also received messages criticizing me from people listening to the show, people messaging me to bash me 
the only one who seems immune to that is Eric Benzamokin. Now, he's not a co-host. He's a, he's a guest on here sometimes, but he is never seemingly uh, criticized by anyone. In fact, it's the opposite. I get messages from people all the time asking when he's going to be on next and saying how much they love the segments in which he appears. So whenever there's a segment where we need some kind of legal opinion, I always think of him. And I ask him if he can come on. And the first segment tonight is one where we need that. It's not the main part of that segment, but there's definitely a, an interesting angle to the whole thing where a lawyer's opinion would be very relevant. Otherwise, I would just have to guess it at it myself and be wrong, maybe. So that'll be our – I'll tell you about that segment in a second. I want to let you know about the phone numbers of the show. It's the same as always, 775 775- Three seven two eight three five five, which also spells seven seven five fraud fifty five. That's our main phone number. We also have the Mount Charleston line seven zero two four three zero eighteen zero eight. It's located in a cabin on the top of Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas, but it's a real mountain. There it has snow on top of it still, and it's an old seventies rotary phone which forwards to me wherever I go. You can also call the call to listen line. That is not a call-in number to the show, but it's a way to listen to the show. does not require a smartphone, a data plan, the internet, a computer. None of that stuff is necessary. All you need is any phone that was ever made that can dial a number in the U.S. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, you just call it up and listen. It's so easy. Never buffers. Unlike other streaming things on the internet, I said, I'm not going to have a call to listen line if it's going to buffer. I just, I'm, I'm going to refuse because I hate buffering so much. I'm not going to contribute to the problem of buffering all over the internet. So I decided I'm only going to have that line if it will not buffer. And I made sure in designing that line that it would not buffer. So it will never buffer. I promise you. No buffer, no buffer guarantee. For the call to listen line, 605-313-0736. When we're not live, you can call that number anyway, and you will hear one of our many streaming reruns, where it just picks a show at random and runs it as if it's live, and when that's done, picks another and another and another till we go back online live again. You can also listen through Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You can listen live that way, or you can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Actually, you have to say on TuneIn, sorry. You have to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn to listen live, and Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn to listen to the archives. And if you're listening to the archive, if you say next, it'll go to the previous one. I know it's backwards, but that's how it works. So if you want to hear the two shows ago, you would say the same thing about Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn, and then as soon as it starts, say next, and it will go back to the one before that. You can download the show in the archives on iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher, which is an app, TuneIn, which is another app that can also be used to listen live to the show. TuneIn has two entries, the live one and the archive one. You can play or download the MP3 file of the show directly from the Poker Fraud Alert Radio server, and it works great with a lot of smartphones where you just click on the MP3 in the radio form of Poker Fraud Alert, and it'll just play without any additional apps required. A lot of ways to listen. Let me know if there's something else you want to listen to the show, provided it does not cost me very much money. If it's going to cost me money, the answer is going to be a big fat no. But if it's not very expensive or if it's free, even better, 
then I will do it. Or if it's too much trouble. Some people say, well, what about YouTube? I'm not going to do YouTube because it's too much trouble. Making sure right now the show's actually archiving because there was a little bit of technical difficulties today. Yeah, we're good. It's going. Okay, so if you're not in the free roll, you're not going to get in. And we're going to try to reach Tretorowski. And I've got to delay Eric Benzamokin. He, hopefully he doesn't go to sleep. The reason I'm so late tonight is at about uh, 6.30, I started hearing a dripping sound in the house. And that's never good to just hear dripping. Especially I was in a location in the house that wasn't near any bathrooms. I'm going, how could this possibly not be bad? Like you hear drip, 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 like pretty rapidly. How could that not be bad? I'm trying to reason to myself, well, maybe there's something happening that isn't that bad. Everything seemed awful to me, every possible thing this could be. So I ran toward the sound of the dripping and saw that it was coming out of uh, a vent for the heating and air conditioner. And I still haven't completely figured out what this is, but uh, that took up some time. So we were late tonight. It's just been turned off for now, so there's no more dripping. But that has been a problem today. So we started late, and I apologize for that. Had to message Eric Benzamokin, and hopefully he can still be here. I'm going to put on Trader Ruski, and we will give you the show agenda. Then we will get going and jump right into the first segment. Hopefully we can reach Trader Ruski. Otherwise, we will have to wait till he appears. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Risky, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're here just in time to hear the agenda, which I will try to do quickly so we don't leave Eric waiting too long. And for those of you that hate the long agenda, you'll be happy that Eric's waiting because it'll speed up the time for the agenda. The main story tonight was brought to us by a listener and forum member who goes by The Shrink, who's in Canada. And he brought a very interesting story to the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness Forum about a major long-running scam of at least seven years that's occurring at a Dominican Republic casino. And it's a casino of an international hotel brand called Ryu that you'd think would not be involved in such a thing. And it's been going on for at least seven years. And I'll, I'll tell you where you can read about it. I'll tell you the whole thing on the show. I'll play a news report from Canada about it. And this scam, unfortunately, stretches through a number of entities that are in cahoots to make this happen. There, there have to be several parts together to make this scam happen. Otherwise, it would have stopped a long time ago. But it's it's been going. It's very nasty. It's very lucrative. And it's scary also if you're involved. This is one of those scams where it's not just you lose money, you're, you're also scared at one point for uh, your safety and maybe even your life. So I'll explain what's going on there. And it's actually a scam that has taken place for decades around the world, but uh, at this one particular location at the Dominican Republic, it's been going on regularly, probably every day. In fact, I'm just about sure every day. And it's, it's netted many, many millions of dollars collectively. I can't even imagine how many. 
We're going to have Eric Benzamokin on, by the way, to talk about the legal implications in the U.S. because the international hotel brand, Ryu, where this takes place, has locations in the U.S. So after I tell you about the scam, we're going to ask Eric, is it possible that Ryu could be liable in the U.S. if you're an American citizen who is taken by the scam? And how would one go about suing them if that were to be the case? Three-bet poker clothing. If you've been to the World Series, you've probably seen their booth. You may have seen various poker pros wearing three-bet clothing. It just says three-bet on there, or three-bet with some sort of uh, some sort of phrase or something that's trying to be cute. Some of them just say three-bet. A lot of big names in poker were associated with them. They're going out of business. They're pretty much done. You can still buy the clothing at 50% off on their site. We'll talk about three-bet clothing the pros that were representing it, what they may have been receiving as compensation, and whether a poker a poker clothing brand is really viable, especially now, but even before. There continues to be a debate on Twitter and other social media about markup. I'm charging markup for my World Series of Poker package. There are many who are charging markup, In fact, most people selling pieces of themselves for the World Series of Poker are charging markup. I will briefly explain what markup is, and I'll give you the various sides to the debate about whether markup should be charged, how much is appropriate, and what should be used to compute markup. Should it just be what you think your edge is in the tournament, or should it include your expenses and time and trouble to play the events? We'll talk all about markup because there's this long-running debate on social media about the whole thing, and I, I want to get in my opinion on that one. Phil Galfon's Run It Once poker site, which is not available to Americans but has been very much anticipated for a few years now. It's supposed to be a, a poker site run by players, for players, by someone who gets it, by someone who understands what players are really looking for. Kind of like, Poker stars, but more fair. That was the plan. Phil Galfond is the one behind it. Well, it's been running for some time now, and it appears that Run It Once is going to be a big fail site. I know that doesn't shock a lot of you because we were predicting this, but uh, now we're starting to see some real signs that is beyond just prediction. It's really starting to come to pass. We'll talk about the reactions people are giving to Run It Once and the reasons it is failing. James Holzhauer has crossed a very, very important milestone in his brief but very successful Jeopardy career. He has found a way to just destroy the game of Jeopardy. He's made international news on this. He's now won over... One million dollars. In a short time on Jeopardy, of all things. Uh, Alex Jacob really took the Jeopardy world by storm with his aggressive style, but... He has nothing on James Holzhauer, who is the best Jeopardy player of all time, and and found vulnerabilities to the game that he can exploit to his advantage. And and boy, is he doing well. He's not cheating or anything. He's just playing it better than anyone has ever played. We'll talk about this, and we talked about it last week some, but we'll talk about his ongoing winnings and, and some of the strategies that have been discovered that he's using. The bike in Los Angeles is declaring war on commerce on their mid-stakes action. They're trying to steal commerce's mid-stakes action. Commerce, for a long time, has been a monopoly for mid- and upper-stakes action 
in the Los Angeles area. Not any longer. The bike is very aggressively trying to take their mid-state games and has been somewhat successful. We will discuss what's going on and whether this is good for poker. Poker Stars has a subsidiary called BetStars where you can gamble on sports. And one of their BetStars branches is in New Jersey. You can do legalized sports betting on Poker Stars in the state of New Jersey, except they made one little mistake. They took bets in New Jersey on New Jersey collegiate games. Yeah, not very smart. It's a big no-no. I don't know how they let that happen. So they're suffering some consequence there. Update on a story we did on the show a long time ago, but there is an update, so I'm going to give it to you. A police-backed illegal Kansas underground poker game has received another guilty plea. Slowly people are pleading guilty. It was a pretty fascinating story, which I'll tell you guys again, about an underground poker game in Kansas, in the, the, st- the state of Kansas. I don't think it was Kansas City. In the state of Kansas, where various police knew about it and looked the other way. In fact, some even played in the game. So if you were to call the police and report the game, nothing would happen. The police were part of the whole thing. They weren't running it, but they were part of allowing it to go on. And eventually that stopped, and there were arrests, and there was another guilty plea related to that. Finally, a new U.S. sports betting watchdog association has been formed. Before that wasn't necessary, because the only state where real sports betting could take place was Nevada. But now that sports betting is legal in a number of states and is rapidly expanding to other states, it was deemed necessary. This is not a government agency, but it's a voluntary compliance sort of a watchdog where various uh, casinos join. I'll tell you about what this watchdog is, how effective it will be, who's a member of it, and what the point of it is. That's our agenda tonight. Please don't call into the show until I tell you that we're taking calls or if we're between segments. Otherwise, I won't take your call, and if you keep hammering the phone, then I will just block your number. You don't want that because then you may not be able to call in ever again. So we're going to jump right into the first topic, which has to do with that scam in the Dominican Republic. And you may say, why is this our first topic? Why are we going to talk about a scam in Dominican Republic casinos? You think of a casino in the Dominican Republic and go, okay, well, yeah, well, that's a big shocker that it's kind of shady. (laughs) Why is that a big story that a casino in the Dominican Republic is not above board? Well, it's not, but this scam itself is very interesting. I actually had never heard of it before, even though it's existed in many forms over many decades. I read about it. I learned a lot about it. And I learned a lot about this particular scam. And the more I read about it, the more fascinated I was. And I said, wow, I'm so glad the shrink brought this to us here. And and we're also going to try to make some phone calls, as as I like to do in these type of situations. Uh, The best prank calls for me are ones where the consequence of the prank calls is very low. There's a low potential for any trouble for me. And uh, when there's scams taking place in casinos outside the U.S., that's about as safe as it gets for prank calls for me. And when I say safe, uh, I'm talking about consequences in the poker world or 
with with people I know or things like that. I'm, I'm always taking a bit of a risk when I make a prank call. But this, this there's no risk, and the prank calls are definitely going to be very deserved. We're going to try calling a few different entities. I'm not sure we're going to reach it this time. But I, I so much want to make these calls that if we don't reach anyone meaningful tonight, I may actually do some calls during the week and pre-tape them and then play them next week. But let me tell you what's going on. Uh, Trey Ruski, have you read about this at all in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness form? I have not. Okay, well, you'll, you'll learn along with everybody else. This was posted by The Shrink, and here's what happened. There was a gay couple, and this story doesn't really have to do with them being gay. It's just that's what they were. But this has happened to many people of many different walks of life and many different nationalities and everything. So it just happened to be a, a gay couple who was the victim here that was reported in the Canadian news and got the shrink's attention, which got my attention. So uh, a gay couple gay male couple from Newfoundland, Canada took an all-inclusive trip from somewhere in Canada, from from Newfoundland, that's where it is, from Newfoundland to the Dominican Republic to stay at a resort which is a a Ryu Hotel. It's R-I-U. It's an international resort there. And international meaning they have a lot of different locations, including two in the U.S. And uh, so they went to Punta Cana, which is actually a, a location where they've had poker tournaments before. I think Poker Stars has had EPT stops there. So Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. And it's, it's a nice resort. I've seen pictures of it. It's a very beautiful resort. Looks like it would be fun there. Looks like a nice place to go. And so they were booked by a travel agency named Sunwing. And that's important. We'll talk about that later. But Sunwing booked them into this Ryu Hotel, which is a real legitimate hotel, as I said, part of an international chain. And everything seemed fine at first with this vacation. Until they walked by the casino, which is attached to the Ryu. I don't know what the casino is called, but I know that it's uh, attached to the Ryu and is considered associated with it. They walked by the casino and a pretty girl out front, I think a pretty Dominican girl, offered them $25 worth of complimentary casino chips to play a weird game. I don't even know what they call it there. But it's a weird game that kind of has a look like roulette, but it's not really roulette, but it kind of has the roulette look to it. If you want to see a picture of it, you can go to the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum and click on Couple Get Scammed out of 6500 thread, and then you'll see right in the first post of the thread a picture of this very complicated-looking board. It does kind of look like roulette. So they were given $25 of complimentary casino chips to play this game, and they're told that uh, the rules of the game are that uh, you're – Somehow throwing or rolling eight balls, which then land at eight different spots on the board. And then each spot gives you some kind of uh, value where you get points for landing on each spot. And if the points all add up to 100, you win whatever the jackpot is currently. And the jackpot kind of starts out small and it keeps rising with every bet. However, what also rises is your bet. So the rules of the game state that 
every bet you make has to double. And if you don't want that, then you have to just quit. Now, I don't know what stops someone from playing and then, you know, if there's any delay to come back and start over. I, I don't really understand that part of it, but I know once you're at the table, you can't just keep betting the same flat amount ever, over and over. If you've bet $10, then your next bet has to be 20 If you bet 20 your bet has to be 40 until you win the jackpot. Then I think it resets. And as I said, if you don't want to place a bet that big, then you can walk away and just lose. The dealer of the game, the one in control of the game, the one operating it, is a white American, not a Dominican citizen. It's a white American. I believe the girl who tries to find people out front of the casino and offers them the $25 in complimentary chips to try it is a Dominican girl. But I know for sure the guy for years who's been running this game there is a white American. And I think that might be so people are less likely to be afraid of being ripped off, that uh, it's someone who, they have a lot of American customers there. And so they, I think people are, feel more confident that not only is this game taking place at an international chain hotel, the Ryu, that has a good reputation, but also it, the game itself is being run by someone more familiar to them. Not a an islander that they might be afraid is trying to rip them off. So, after the eight balls get rolled and all land on different values, they're supposed to be added up. And again, it's not straightforward. It's not that easy from where you're standing and all the different values on the board. There's a lot of really confusing things about it to where it's very hard without staring at the board for a while with each where each of your balls land to see if you've really earned 100 points. And if you don't earn 100 points, then you've just lost for that that uh, particular spin or roll or whatever it is. And then you have to decide whether you want to play again with a double bet. So the first shady thing that happens is that you roll it, your eight balls land somewhere, and very quickly that white American dealer scoops up the eight balls before you can see where they really land. Like you can quickly see them, but you can't really see it quick, see it well enough or see what the points really were for there, nor do you understand the rules all that well of the game. He quickly scoops it all up and says, okay, I counted it. Uh, you scored 97. Oh, man, so close. Now, remember, every time you do it, it's restart. So it's, it's not about accumulating points, but you see he came really close to winning the jackpot, which uh, it starts out at least for a few thousand dollars or maybe more. And you start out with complimentary chips. So then you do it again, but you have to do a double bet. And the jackpot goes up. Your balls go in again. Again, he scoops it up really fast and tells you your numbers. Once again, you're really close. So often 99. So if, if your first two rolls are like 97 and 99 or 98 and 99 or 99 and 99, and, and you're paying relatively little especially the beginning is complimentary chips, to win thousands of dollars, well, it would make sense, unless these first few rolls are flukes, that eventually you're going to get a tiny bit luckier and land over 100, right? Well, no. Because it's a scam. The truth is that there's no way to land over 100. And if there is, the dealer will never say you did. And he grabs everything so quickly and the game is so complicated that you'll never know if you did or not. So every time he's telling you you're just missing it over and over and over again, in the meantime, your bets are doubling. Now you may wonder, 
what do you do at that point? You, you're, you were given $25 in complimentary chips. How, how far can that go if you're doubling the bets each time? Well, the answer is it doesn't. Most of the reports I read online that this contradicts what these, uh, this gay couple said, but I think, I think they may be leaving some parts out either due to legitimately forgetting due to the trauma, which I'll tell you about in a second, or just being embarrassed. But, uh, most of the people who described this game said that they were presented with a paper to sign, either something just promising they're going to pay if they lose or they're told to give their credit card and they're sign, they sign a credit card authorization. This is explained to them that they've used up their complimentary chips and that the only way to continue at this point is to either uh, put down cash or which, which they, if they'll, they're willing to do, they'll take, or you can put it on your credit card. Well, people get nervous and go, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, this is not what I signed up for. I just, I wanted to run my complimentary roles. And the dealer says, no, no, you're, you're so close. Look how many times you've come close to a hundred. So in fact, it, it, it's looking like you're going to hit a hundred. So if you hit it, then we're not even going to charge your credit card. What we're going to do is we'll just take off whatever you're behind and take that off the jackpot and, and we'll give you the rest of the money. So it's very unlikely we're going to charge it. I mean, you're, you're doing so well here. It's, it's very likely you're going to hit the jackpot. Now, what's not clear to me is, is why people don't stop and go, wait a minute. How is it, since these are just random rolls, it's not like you're accumulating something, why does everybody believe that they're likely to hit it just because they came so close? And how do they think the casino's able to stay in business like this? If uh, everybody can just show up and, and get so lucky with the rolling that it's, it's got to hit. But people don't stop to think that. All they can see is they're getting like one point away from the hundred they need to win jackpots, which get as high as like a hundred thousand to $400,000. And Oh, if they can just get that one more point, get a tiny bit luckier, then they, they might as well get it. And, and, and they don't want to give up. They're, they really are throwing good money after bad, but it's even worse. It's that, uh, they don't give you a chance to win. The dealer always pretends that you're just so close and never quite there. Most of the time, you're really just scoring way lower than he says you are. So you'll really be scoring like 31, and he'll say you got 99. But even if by some chance you get the 100, he will lie to you and say you didn't. This game is known in gambling circles. I can't take a call right now. I think it's bad guy. I can't take a call here. I hope bad guy doesn't hammer me like he did another week. Bad guy, I promise I'll take your call. Uh, after this segment, but we got to do the segment first. But please don't call again until after the segment. Anyway, this game is known as Razzle in gambling circles, and it's a scam. It's a long-running scam that has been ripping people off long before this casino was doing it, even though this casino has been doing it at least since 2012, from reports I read online, maybe before that. But this game's called Razzle, if you typed in Razzle on Wikipedia, you can read a good description of it. I think you have to, it'll then give you a list of Razzles you can click on. But the one that says Razzle Game, click on that, and you can read about it. And it has other names, Razzle Dazzle, Football, 10 Points Win, Baseball, I don't know why Baseball, MoCo, Indian Poker, Cajun Bingo. Those are all names it goes under. I don't know what it was called in this casino, but uh, that's that's the game, and it's a, a a well-known scam by those who really pay attention to these sort of things. But believe it or not, 
despite my interest in calling out scams and gambling and poker, I hadn't heard of this before. This was a new one. Probably because I haven't gone to that many exotic places like this with casinos, so or played underground games that much. So this type of game would never be in a Nevada casino or even an Indian casino in the U.S. This would take these. This usually happens in underground casinos or in foreign casinos where the right people can be bribed to not shut this down or arrest anybody. So let's get back to this gay couple. Uh, what I'm going to do now, since you understand the whole scam, and, and you might wonder, what about the before I finish your? You may say, well, okay, after you realize you're scammed, just call your credit card company and say, hey, this was a scam. Don't approve the, the charge. Well, they're aware people are going to do that. So what they do is they try to run the credit card. If the credit card does not go through, then they will force or very much coerce whoever is involved. Security will come, take your driver's license, and coerce you into getting the money in some way through the ATM, by calling your bank and having it wired there, and threaten you that you're going to go to jail and not be able to leave the Dominican Republic for a very long time if you stiff the casino like this. And people get very scared, and they pay. So I'll I'll get into more of that shortly. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to play the uh, report from the CBC in Canada. You'll get to hear the one of the the two of the gay couple talking about it. The gay couple from Newfoundland, their names are Jay Lush, which is already kind of a funny name. Jay, I wonder if Jay Lush drinks. <laughs> but even funnier, and keep in mind this is a gay couple, and this is a real name. The other half of the couple is Steve Bun Gay. <laughs> Not just Steve Gay or Steve something. Steve Bun Gay. So his buns are gay. I mean, it's, is that a, was that the name he was born with? Do you have any chance of growing up as a heterosexual man if you were a guy born with the last name Bun Gay? And what were the chances of that? That he was his name was Bun Gay and then he ended up being gay. But yeah, Steve Bun Gay. I think he's actually the one who's, who's on the CBC report. So listen to this. And I, I feel bad for him, though. Despite the funny name, I feel bad for the guy. And, yeah, I mean, yes, they were gullible, but thats I still feel bad for people when they're cheated like this, especially in a foreign country where you feel helpless. Well, a dream vacation for a couple from Holyrood turned into a nightmare. Jay Lush and Steve Bungay are currently in Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. They're actually flying back today. But they were forced to change hotels last week after a harrowing experience that started out as a quick trip to the casino that ended up costing them $6,500. For Jay Lush, losing the money was one thing. But how they were forced to pay and the reaction to the hotel prompted Lush to come forward to warn others about what he calls a scam. I reached Jay Lush uh, late last week at his new hotel room and asked him to explain what happened. I would say it must have been around 9 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock. We had had something to eat. Instead of just going back to the room and watching TV, the sun was down. It was dark at this point. Um, We're not ones to go to pool parties and things like that. So we were just going to go back to our room, but decided to run over to the casino first. There's a casino on the resort. 
So when we got to the casino, we entered. Um, we were greeted at the door by several men. They let us in, and a young girl approached us as soon as we walked in and gave us $25 of chips each. And it said it was complimentary to come follow her, and she led us directly to a table. I'm not a gambler. Uh, my partner occasionally will throw $20 down here or there. So we just sat down. At the t- he sat down at the table, and I actually stood behind him. Um, it was a game both of us were unfamiliar with. They called it, I can't even, I'm not even exactly sure, but it was a type of Dominican roulette or eight ball jackpot. It was Dominican eight ball jackpot. So they basically explained how the game works. Um, I didn't really understand even at that point, not really being a gambler. But Steve was there, and uh, within about six minutes, um, he was one point away, they told him, from winning $100,000. And if he kept rolling, he was guaranteed to win because how could he not get that one point? He got 99 points in his first five spins or something. And at that moment, we realized something wasn't right because when he pushed the piece of paper, he had been writing everything on a piece of paper, and he had all these columns and numbers and words, and we didn't really understand what it was. He turned it around and basically said, our next bet would be $1,200, for Steve to make another bet. And Steve looked at me, and I looked at him, and we were like, okay, you got to stop this now. And we didn't know how that happened because it started with $25 of free chips, and within six minutes, they basically said our bet, our bet was $1,200. We kind of panicked and said, okay, stop. So they immediately brought, us, well, they brought Steve over to the um, cashier, and demanded the payment. And this turned out to be $6,500 Canadian is what they said we owed. Uh, we said to them we wanted to go back to the hotel, our hotel room, and contact the hotel security, not security, the hotel management, and see what this is all about because it just didn't seem right. At which point they got a bit more aggressive. They had confiscated Steve's driver's license, which they took when he sat at the table as a form of ID. They wouldn't take, they wouldn't give him back his driver's license. They told us that we couldn't leave the premises until we paid the money. Um, we were escorted by, I don't know if he was an armed guard, but it was a large man with a big black coat on. They escorted us down a dark road into a, sorry if I get emotional here, but they brought us into this area where we knew not where we were. They demanded we withdraw the money from the bank. The bank machine would only let us take it out in $200 increments. Within a couple of transactions, our our cards shut down and said they figured something was up. They pulled out their phones and started giving us numbers to call Canada, to banks, to our banks in Canada, to get to speak to somebody to release the money. We asked if we can just take care of this tomorrow, and like we're here till Monday. They had our room number. They said we couldn't leave the premises. That by no means it has to be dealt with right now. At this point, we didn't know we had been scammed. We knew that. We had lost money. We didn't realize how, but we were so intimidated by what was going on, we figured we could rectify this the next morning. Just give them the money, and let's just get back to our rooms and lock the door. So after three hours of being on a darkened street, withdrawing money in the middle of the night with guards around us and guys pulling up on motorcycles with bandanas over their faces and horrible experience, they got all their money. They brought us back to the casino. They gave us Steve's ID back. And then they gave us two free bags of coffee and thanked us for coming. <laughs> they gave him two bags of coffee after this whole thing. Like, okay, we scanned you for $6,500, but here's two bags of coffee. Enjoy. 
I thought it's interesting that they actually had the Canadian banks right up on their phones. That is, they meaning the guards, like they were all prepared for every con- every country and every bank in every country to like, well, you know, sorry, our banks. No, no, here, here's your number for your bank. Call right now. So they've they've done this. They're very experienced with this. They they're very experienced with intimidating people. They start off by asking for you to give your license to them at the beginning for ID purposes. So they're already holding it. So you're already worried about that. They tell you, you won't be able to leave the country or the premises, and you know you're in a foreign third world country where things can happen, and there's no one you can really call to help you. So it's a very scary situation now. I do want to point out a few things that I think are inconsistent with the story that they gave. Now, I fully believe they were scammed, and I, I read a lot of different stories of the identical scam taking place at this exact casino in this exact same way over the past seven-plus years. So for sure this happened to them. For sure they were scammed. I, I feel very bad for them hearing this story, and you shouldn't doubt them. However, there were two things that happened with them that didn't seem consistent with all the other reports I read. I think they're just either ashamed or just don't remember right because of the trauma of everything that happened there. First of all, it doesn't seem like anybody else who reported it found that they were surprised by how much the bet got up to. Like they knew it as they were doing it. They just always thought they were like one bet away from probably winning the big jackpot. But here it sounds like, oh, we're about to bet 1,200. We're not going to. Oh, wait, all of a sudden we owe 6,500. We don't know how that happened and they're demanding it. That wasn't how it happened in any of the other stories. And also these guys did not mention signing anything, either credit card slip or any kind of uh, paper stating they'll pay. And everybody else reported that. So I think they did. I think they're embarrassed about it. I think they're trying to make it sound like they just got free chips. And they didn't even explain in their story how they were continuing to make these escalating bets. They, they, they were given 25 and free chips, but they didn't explain. I'm talking about the, you know Mr. Lush here. Maybe Mr. Lush was too drunk to remember. But Mr. Lush, he did not explain after the 25 was gone how he was continuing to bet. And I'm pretty sure it's, it was probably like everybody else where they were asked to either sign a credit card slip or or sign some kind of paper indicating they're going to pay. And they were conned into believing they were so close to hitting the jackpot that it's, it's not going to matter. They're going to just have whatever they spend taken off this huge jackpot, uh, which reached 100 k as they were playing, supposedly. And supposedly not, I, I believe their story, they were told that, but the, you know the jackpot really can't be won. So a variation of this, other than those two little details, a variation of this story, very, very similar, was reported on so many different posts on a TripAdvisor thread that the shrink posted in that same Poker Fraud Alert thread, dating back to 2012 and all the way up until recently, so many different reports that are so similar to one another of this exact scam. And the people conducting this scam seem to be the exact same two people. They seem to be this pretty Dominican girl and this white American dealer who scoops up the balls really fast and keeps telling people they're so close to winning. So what's more interesting to me here beyond this scam itself is that it's taking place in a hotel that is an international chain that is otherwise respected, and that a travel agency, which is pretty large in Canada, from what I can see, I don't know travel agencies in Canada that well because I don't live there, but a travel agency which I think is fairly known in Canada called Sunwing, 
booked it. And you may say, well, who cares? You know, so, uh, travel agencies book you wherever you want to go. They, they can't take responsibility. Yeah, but in their story, I didn't play their whole story, but in their story, uh, the hotel eventually kicked them out. They went back to Ryu after they paid the money and said, what the hell? You know, come on, g- get the money back for us, please. And not only were they uncooperative at the Ryu there, it was their casino, but not only was the hotel uncooperative, they booted the two out and said, nope, you know what? We don't want you here anymore. They, I don't know what the exact reason given, but they were thrown out of the Ryu for complaining about the casino, and the Ryu gave the story, sorry, that's just a casino connected to us. We're not directly affiliated with them, so stop bitching. And I guess maybe they kept bitching about it, and they got thrown out. They called Sunwing, who then put them in a different hotel. Now, you may think, okay, well, Sunwing did their job, right? Well, do you think that Sunwing... In the seven plus years of this scam with booking a lot of people in that hotel, you think this is the first time they've ever heard of this? Do you think this is the first time anyone called them to complain about this? Obviously not. Obviously Sunwing knows what's going on there. Sunwing probably gets a hell of a deal. Because when you use these travel agencies for these all-inclusive vacations, the problem is you don't – it's not like – where it's broken down for you. Like, okay, the hotel's going to cost this, the airfare's going to cost this, the food's going to cost this. Like, it's not like that. They give you a package saying, okay, you get this, this, and this, and, and here's the flat price. And you pay it if you like the price. And the way these travel agencies sometimes make extra money is by getting a very much of a cut rate on their end for the room you're booking. So while you booking the room yourself would be a lot more expensive, with them doing it, they get a bargain basement rate, and often there's some catch to that, where you're getting the shittiest rooms on the property, or uh, there's one of many things where, where these rooms are being dumped to these travel agencies for cheap, and you're always the lowest man on the totem pole there. They don't tell you that. So the travel agency makes a pretty penny on these, a lot more than the standard commission a travel agency would really would usually make if you just call up and say, hey, book me in this hotel. They'll get a standard commission, but it's not that much. It's a few percent. But, but here they can make a lot more when they make these all-inclusive packages where the hotel will give these to the travel agency for a, a much cheaper rate, and then the travel agency keeps the difference. So Sunwing is definitely a co-conspirator. Ryu is for sure a co-conspirator. I'll say Sunwing, not so much a co-conspirator, but they're they're allowing it to continue. They're complacent. They're allowing it to continue. They don't care. They're not trying to make it happen, but uh, they're gaining from these all-inclusive vacations they're selling, so they don't want to stop. Ryu, obviously, is very much a co-conspirator. This, this particular Ryu hotel is very much a co-conspirator. And I'm sure every day people go and complain to Ryu's hotel, who claims that, oh, we have nothing to do with the casino. Now, you may say, okay, well, what if they don't? What if it's a separate company and the casino just happens to be connected to them? Well, tell me this. If if you're running a respectable hotel and the casino that's attached to your hotel is constantly cheating your customers, what do you do? Do you say, oh, okay, well, not our problem? Or do you go to the casino and say, stop it? Stop cheating our customers, or we're going we're gonna to completely separate and we're going to warn our, our customers not to go there. So just saying, well, well this is not our co- casino, sorry. That's, that's not a good answer, especially when they've been hearing these complaints for at least seven years. So this, this Ryu Hotel in Punta Cana is definitely a co-conspirator there. And it's shocking to me that this Ryu chain is allowing this. 
even if it's independently operated. Sometimes these chains are not real chains; it's, it's franchises where they use the name of the of the hotel of, of the of the brand, and it's independently owned and operated. But still, there are certain standards they have to adhere to. Why has the Ryu hotel chain not kicked that hotel out of the chain, whether they own it or whether they they don't own it? And believe me, given the, it seems like I was reading all the different uh, reports on TripAdvisor. It seems like the typical amount scammed is five thousand, but sometimes more than that. And that that about correlates with what these guys lost because these guys uh, claim they had to pay sixty five hundred Canadian, and if you do a Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars uh, conversion, and uh, right now the Canadian dollars worth uh, about. 74 cents US. So it comes up a little less than 5,000 if you do the conversion from 6,500 Canadian. So it seems like most people lost around 5,000, but that's pretty damn lucrative. It's per person, per couple, whatever, whatever goes there and gets ripped off here. So you can imagine people get back home, but they don't just shrug your shoulders, their shoulders going, well, oh, I got, got ripped off $5,000 and intimidated into paying. No big deal. I'm just going to let this go. Obviously, people try to do something about this, but nothing ends up getting done. I'm sure the Ryu chain has gotten many calls about this. But hey, here we are seven years later. It's still occurring, and I don't know why. Like, like whose palms are getting greased here? Who else is gaining from this? Obviously, the hotel, the employees there are gaining from this. But but who on the corporate side of Ryu is gaining from this? Why why has Ryu not put a stop to this after hearing this story again and again and again? And I don't know. I'm not going to give you an answer here. I don't know. We're going to put on Eric Benzamok in, in a second if he's still up. Hopefully he is. But I, I did some looking into this last night. I was very fascinated by this story. And I looked into the Ryu hotel chain. It's called Ryu Hotels and Resorts. If you go to their website, Ryu, that's R-I-U dot com, you can read about it. And it says, Ryu Hotels and Resorts offers you a wide variety of hotels in the world's best destinations so you can enjoy an unforgettable holiday. Yeah, that, that's true. It was an unforgettable holiday for these guys. At our hotels, you'll find complete facilities where you can enjoy extensive gastronomic offer. So you can tell this is foreign. Gash, gastronomic offer. The best entertainment and a host of exclusive services that characterize the company. Choose one of our holiday, urban, family, or adults-only hotels and enjoy an escape to your favorite destination. Enjoy unique experiences with Ryu. So not, not only is it kind of written in broken English, but also the, the, the spellings are European spellings of these words, like favorites with a U. F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-E. So it's not an American company, but but here are the different places they have hotels. There's a lot of them, but I'm going to tell you all the different countries. Aruba, Bahamas, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Mexico, Panama, USA. That's the big one. We're going to get Eric Benzamokin on about that one. The scam isn't happening in the USA, but they have hotels in the USA. Bulgaria, Germany, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Cape Verde, uh, Mauritius, Morocco, Tanzania, Maldives, and Sri Lanka. So a lot of different locations all around the world. Does this sound like the type of hotel that would engage in such a scam? 
Now, yes, it's possible the Dominican Republic one is independently owned and they're just using the Ryu name, but how have they not clamped down on this? And this is, and then the second question is, and we're going to get Eric on to talk about this. How come nobody's gone after them in the U.S.? Because they are doing business in the U.S. They have two hotels in the U.S., one in Miami Beach and one in New York City. So they do have a presence. If they didn't have a presence in the U.S., it would be kind of hard to touch them legally if you're a U.S. citizen. But how come they can't be sued in the U.S.? How come their assets could not be gone after in the U.S. if you were to win such a lawsuit? I would think that they're legally vulnerable here, but maybe I'm wrong because I am not an attorney, but we do have one who listens to this show and has volunteered to come on when we have questions like this. Hopefully he's awake. Someone's saying you should prank call them. Yes, I'm. believe me, we're going to try. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're going to reach anyone at this time. We actually may have a chance at reaching them tonight because they're not located in the U.S., the, the Ryu uh, hotel chain. So normally when we call things on this show at this time of night, which is 1015 Pacific, everything's closed, but it's coming up on morning over there. So maybe we can reach someone. If not now, maybe in a few hours. We're going to try. So I'm going to try to call Eric Benzamokin. If he's asleep, I'm going to feel stupid for starting the show so late, but you know, what can I do? My an air conditioner was dripping in the house and uh it was uh it had to be dealt with. But we'll see if we can get a hold of him. But to me this is a very fascinating story. And uh I want to get to the bottom of this, and if I can't get to the bottom of this, I at least want I want to harass someone involved in, in perpetrating the scam. I at least want to do that. At least want to get the satisfaction of screwing with someone over this. It's like a, a prank call you can make without guilt when you prank call scammers. Eric Benzamokin, hello. Just good evening. Hi, sorry for keeping you up late here. I don't have to. I hope you don't hey, have Eric. to be up. I hope, I hope, hey, you, I, I hope you don't have to be up early tomorrow. No, I, today was actually a very early day, but tomorrow it's a regular day. Okay, well, well, you haven't had any tea here, have you? No, no, I don't drink tea. Okay, good, good, good. I think I think we're in good shape. Okay, Eric, uh, have you been listening to this segment? I have. Okay, so uh, I'm going to ask you, just right off the bat here, from everything you've heard here, given that this Ryu Hotel uh, Corporation has two locations in the U.S., do you feel that someone in the U.S. who was a victim of this scam could uh, successfully sue them? Well, the the key to your question is the term successfully. So as I listened to the segment even this evening, and I did a little bit of research earlier today, uh, I really took a deeper dive into trying to analyze what could an American citizen do if they had a similar occurrence at this resort in the Dominican. And so in order to really answer the question, I had, I had to dust off through these civil procedure books because as an American citizen can sue a foreign corporation in a U.S. federal court. There are a couple of requirements. The controversy has to exceed a certain amount of money. Um, there's diversity of what's called diversity of citizenship because they're not both in the same jurisdiction. And, they ha- and the corporation or the foreign entity has to have something called minimum contacts with the foreign state. So, for example, if I live in Miami, where the Ryu has a hotel, and I go from Miami to the Dominican, and I get scammed, and I go back to Miami, it's, I can argue 
that the Ryu has minimum contacts in my forum state or home state of Florida by virtue of its presence there and it does marketing and, you know, it, it allows me to book uh, a room there and, and, you know, participate to the American website and so on. Now, now the question becomes, it's a practical question. If the average loss is between five and $6,000, it will cost more to initiate this lawsuit. So then I started digging even deeper because that unfortunately, I think, you know, you know as well as I do that oftentimes the way scams work is it becomes more of a hassle and more frustration to try to go after the scammer than to just kind of walk away at some point. You take the hit and you lick your wound a little bit, but the loss isn't so excessive that you never recover and you just sort of life goes on. And I think a lot of scammers sort of count on that. Well, in this sort of situation, you've got international travelers, in this case, all the way from Canada, uh, dropping an amount that's, to be honest, fairly nominal and would cost a lot more to bring a lawsuit or, you know, in this case, if it were in the United States, so me here in Los Angeles, if this happened to me, if I had to bring a suit in the federal, you know, district court in the Southern District of the Central District of California, it would cost me a lot of money to do it. So I think there's a practical component. Now, here's the real, and I, I apologize. I'm, I'm, I was getting really tired, but I, I think I found the, the actual answer in that the federal RICO statute, so the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, has a civil component to it. And if a plaintiff is successful in a, in a civil Rio, RICO prosecution, they can get treble damages plus attorney's fees. And so you can take ordinary business disputes, and if you meet the elements of RICO, you can turn them into a federal lawsuit. One of the most modern, famous RICO suits that is not criminal, right, that's a private citizen bringing a suit under the civil RICO statute is against Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein Company and its directors and officers. And in that case, the complaint essentially accuses them of help, accuses the officers and the company of helping Weinstein cover up a pattern of sexual harassment through what it calls the Weinstein sexual enterprise. So if there's one of the components of RICO is that there has to be an enterprise uh, of these defendants and they have to be engaged in a criminal uh, for a criminal purpose. And there has to be some kind of scheme or article to defraud. And, you know, you have to prove that deception. So it, it's not easy. So let me, hang on, let, me, let, me, let me stop you for a second here. First, I, I want to tell the, the listener, anyone who's not familiar with what RICO is, that stands for Racketeer Influenced and, and Corrupt Organizations. And, uh, Second, uh, what you're referring to with this, this RICO suit, you were mentioning at first that you'd have to live in a state where they have hotels like in Florida or New York. What if you're in California? Could you still do this? Yes, under the federal RICO statutes, you can. So you can be anywhere, actually, in the United States and sue this foreign company because minimum contacts would extend probably to every state in the union just by virtue of website marketing or the ability to book travel from anywhere that you sit. So there have been court decisions all across the country that essentially indicate that minimum contacts are present if you sitting in your kitchen in Los Angeles or somewhere in Southern California can book a trip into a Dominican hotel. Well, that Dominican, Dominican hotel could potentially avail itself to U.S. jurisdiction by virtue of that contact, by your ability to connect with them. 
but minimum contacts are a little bit different in this case because RICO doesn't require that. So I can bring a federal RICO case under civil RICO, and as long as I meet the RICO elements, uh, and again, it's a hard case to prove because it's an enterprise is the first element. So the enterprise in this case would be the business. Engage in a pattern of racketeering activity. Now that has a broad definition, right? Multiple instances and so on. Now, the reason why I think RICO might work as opposed to just your run-of-the-mill, you know, lawsuit for, for fraud or, or something along those lines is because you add the hotel component to the casino. Because the obvious defense is that the hotel is an independent operator. The casino is an independent operator. They don't have a direct correlation of relationship to each other. Maybe one's a landlord and one's a tenant or something like that. But, you know, they're independent. But now you take an example like this couple and they're scammed at the casino, they complain to the hotel, and the hotel eventually throws them out, I think you can make a good argument that the, the two are in cahoots, that this is an enterprise engaged in this activity, and that this is, uh, you know, they're in on it together. Could you also make the, complaint, the, the claim that uh, they're in cahoots because this has been going on according to various reviews that are all similar over a period of over seven years and that uh, the, the hotel does not warn anybody about the casino? They get so many, must get so many complaints about this, but they, uh, they, they don't warn any of the patrons not to go to the casino. They, they just book them and everybody goes there and they say nothing? So that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, this is a very... Uh, interesting topic because it could, it, 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 as far as uh, a legal analysis, because it goes all over the spectrum. So now the question is, does the hotel have a duty to inform or warn its patrons to be careful or to be, uh, you know, cognizant of this potential problem with a casino that's operating on its, on the same property? And if they are indeed independent of each other, does the casino have a duty or does the hotel rather have a duty to its guests? to warn, especially if it knows or should know, right? That's the standard. They either knew or should have known that this is happening. So I would honestly answer yes, they probably do have a duty to warn their patrons because you're right, just cursory of view of the links that I saw uh, in the forum and there's like a, you know, 100, you know, 50 Yelp reviews of this travel agency and they're all terrible and there's, you know, you do it, use Google and you can find all sorts of instances where this has happened. So it's obviously not a one-time limited, isolated event. This has probably been going on for a while. And, you know, it's almost, it reminds me almost of that old, like, New York three-card Monty, where they've got, like, the one gal planted in the crowd that seems to be winning, and she encourages the, you know, naive guy to step in and start playing too. And then, of course, you know, everybody pretends like they're, they're not in on it with each other. And, you know, that's how these scams work. And so this is just a much more sophisticated version of that scooping up the ball so quickly and, you know, tallying points without really tallying them. And, you know, you're so close, sir. You're so close. Just one more bet, one more bet. Um, so I, you know, now Rico is really hard to prosecute. And again, it's very expensive. Um, I mean, but the only consolation you would have as a plaintiff is that if you do prevail, you can get three times your damages plus all your attorney's fees. Collecting is of course a different problem. If you would actually succeed in getting the judgment, then the question becomes also, who do you sue? I mean, I think you would sue both the hotel and its parent corporation and the casino and, you know, bring everybody into the same lawsuit and let them figure it out. Um, but so the, the short answer is yes. As an American citizen, if this happens to you, you have remedies. You can go into federal court um, and you can use this minimum contact argument and diversity of jurisdiction to, uh, to proceed. 
And if it were me, I would try to do this under uh, Civil Rico to join the hotel and the casino together in alleging they're, they're in a criminal enterprise, or in this case, uh, a, a plain enterprise together with the intent to defraud the consumers. Okay, that's interesting. I've got a few more questions to you about this, though. Uh, if you were, let's say, I don't know whether Ryu really owns the hotel or not, but but if you were, let's say it's independently owned in the Dominican Republic and they're just paying for the Ryu name, uh, and, and then the Ryu hotels that are in Miami and uh, New York have a different owner than the one in Dominican Republic. Uh, I would think that suing the these corporations in the Dominican, it would be very hard to collect from them. I was I was thinking the the reason they're most vulnerable is because of these Miami and New York properties, and that you could collect from them in some way because they do have a presence in the U.S. It becomes much easier to collect than from a country like Dominican Republic. Is that what one would probably have to do if, let's say, you've sued them and won? Would you have to? Would you, would your best chance to collect be through those? properties in New York and Miami, even if they wasn't the exact same ownership? Now, I, I don't think so. I think what you'd have to do is you'd have to sue the parent corporation, notwithstanding, um, because there, there is at least one corporation that has the ability to license the name, even to an independent operator. So I think, you know, so even if the parent corporation doesn't own all of the properties, they at least own the rights to allow you to use that property's name and, and you know, their marketing tools and but but and so on. So, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. How could how could you collect? Let's say you you won against this Ryu uh, Corporation, which I don't even know where it's based, but it's not the U.S. I can tell. Let's say you won against them, and then they just don't pay you. Uh, how, how could you collect? Is there anything you could do with them having Ryu branded hotels, or if it's not the same ownership, there's nothing you could do. I think I don't. You know, I, I'm not certain. I think that you'd have a very hard time. I think this is like the old Isle of Man problem. You know, where if you're cheated on stars, who do you sue and where do you go to get it? And you're forced into that jurisdiction and maybe there's, and that's the other thing too, is there could be part of the booking contract when somebody, like a travel agency books, uh, uh, books a stay at, the, at one of these hotels, especially in the Dominican. People don't read the fine print. You could automatically avail yourself to the jurisdiction of the Dominican Republic if there's a problem and not even realize that. Hmm. Um, that that's a very common uh, thing that happens. Now, here's here's, so, here's another question about the about the travel agencies. You're bringing that up. I, I know in this story it's it's a Canadian situation, so I know you're not a Canadian lawyer. But let's let's say the same thing happened in the U.S. in a travel agency which which has some kind of relationship with them, where they're booking a lot of vacations there over many years, and it's it's clear that uh, they must have had to deal with this before. Could they be liable in any way for? for continuing to book people at that place, knowing this happens? It's another good question, because I think if you can, through the course of litigation and discovery, determine that they receive a commission higher than they do other resorts, uh, then a good argument could be made to bring the travel agency into the RICO conspiracy aspect of its enterprise aspect. Um, if they typically get one or two percent back from each hotel that they book through their travel site or through their services, but they get seven percent back every time they book somebody in the Dominican to the Rio, then uh, you know there there may be more there, and you can add them into that into that litigation class. Okay, but what if what if they could show that yes, they're getting more from them, but that they're getting more from everybody that they have these partnerships with, including a lot of places that don't scam anybody. 
So then, yeah, so then I think that that makes it much more difficult, if not impossible, to lay any blame at the travel agency. Um, but what the travel agency should do, and this brings up a different sort of issue, is this idea of, of having a duty, right? To whom is the duty owed? So if I, if I own a travel agency and I consistently receive complaints from those who book through me about this one particular property, at some point I have a duty or an obligation to no longer offer that booking to my clients. Yeah. Right? And so maybe at that point we can continue to book it, but then the question is what, what, what are the other damages or what, what else have they done? See, if they're getting the same percentage from everybody else, then, you know, it's just bad business sense or bad taste or, you know, but I, I don't know that it rises to the level of some kind of fiduciary duty that they would have. Yeah, it's, um, to you me, just think it's a matter of business sense, you know. Yeah, to me, what it seems like, and I'm just guessing at this part, but uh, to me, it seems like this Sunwing who books them, they just, they probably have some relationship with them like they do everybody where they're making good money on each booking and they kind of just don't want to give up the money. I don't think they're, my guess is they're not getting extra to steer people to this scam, but at the same time, they don't want to give up what they are making because of this scam. They, they, they don't, they're like, well, why should we stop booking this and make less money? Screw, you know, screw everybody. We're just, uh, we don't care that this is happening, not our problem sort of thing. Not like they're happy it's happening, not like they're agreeing or, or, or in cahoots with making this happen, but when it's happening, they don't give a crap. That, that's, that's kind of what I see, kind of similar to the way I've described the way, uh, some of these poker sites handle bots. They're not happy there's bots on there, but at the same time, the bots generate rake, the bots cause action on the on the site, so they don't hate them, so they're like, okay, well, uh, we kind of don't care either way, we're not going to do anything. That's that's. I, I think it's kind of similar to that, is, is my guess. I think the whole town, right, where, whatever part of the Dominican Republic the, this particular hotel and casino is in, I think, I think that the local municipality is cognizant that this goes on oh yeah aware of it yeah for sure and ignores it because if you read that article they were given like an option to go see a judge or quote judge and they were there four or five hours and they finally just gave up and left they were never going to see any judge and the judge was never going to do anything that was just more more appeasement you know and again the, the, i could easily see the, the those are the you know in the courthouse kind of giggling like oh another you know another one of these you know roulette you know suckers or whatever they call that game i don't remember um, so I, you know, I think that it's, it's very much, uh, like in this local culture, like, like, uh, Ogre, Latvia, whatever that place is, right? It's probably the whole goddamn town has probably bought me. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and I think that's true. And that's, and that's what's so, and that's what's so frustrating in some of these foreign countries when people go to travel is when you are a victim of a scam. If, if, if there's so many different people in on it, so many different levels of the hotels in on it, if the, uh, the police are in on it, if, if everybody's in on it and, and getting a piece of it, then, uh, then there's nothing you can do and it's very frustrating. You feel very helpless. And then you also wonder, how far are they willing to go to protect this? So if you if you try to fight this too much, will they arrest you and trump up some charges and hold you there for months in some terrible prison? You like you you never know what's going to happen. It's it's not somewhere where you know you're in your home country and you know your rights and you know you you know you can get lawyers to 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 bail you out of the situation and then sue them later. Like here, you're just you're just feeling like I don't know what can be done with me and I'm uh, I don't know what can be done to me here and I'm I'm kind of scared to push this too far. Yeah, and I think that part of the, I think part of this game counts on the fact that tourists coming from five, six, seven thousand miles away uh, are just going to drop it. What are they going to do? Yeah, you know, at that point they're just going to want to go home. You know, <laughs> they don't want to. You know, they don't want to end up getting stuck in the Dominican Republic over five thousand um, dollars. 
Um, and I think they, they very much count on that. Uh, they, you know, and, and I doubt that anybody successfully brought litigation, uh, mostly because, to be frank, it's cost prohibitive, and it would almost be unethical for an attorney to do that. You know, well, pay me fifty thousand so I can help you collect five. Yeah, and maybe I can get it to fifteen, and maybe you know, it's it, it'd be. I mean, don't get me wrong, and I'm sure there are guys out there that'll do it, but um, I, I I think you know you'd have to really really believe in the ability to go into federal court with a civil RICO case and essentially bring suit against a foreign corporation and and the sister casino next to it that's probably an independent entity. Yeah, and and this reminds me in some ways of the civil forfeiture scam that goes on in the U.S., where the the police uh, pull you over under BS pretenses, and uh, sometimes even with a tip that you may be carrying cash, like from someone at the casino or wherever, and then uh, they pull you over, seize the cash, and then again, it's it's often cost prohibitive to go after that cash, especially if it's something like ten thousand dollars or less. And uh, so, so people just give up and walk away. It's, it's a similar situation, except this one's probably even worse because it's in a foreign country. Yeah, and, and again, I think the amounts are even more nominal than that because if I, you know, I think the higher the loss and the higher the demand for payment, the more likely that there's going to be some kind of recourse or action. So if you get, if they get the equivalent of a whale that's really there on a legit vacation, but the guy can afford it, uh, and, and he gets very, very upset, uh, you know, then maybe it'll happen. But the truth is, I think that they've already vetted who they're going to hit when they do. So I don't think it was a mistake that this uh, this hostess, uh, you know, honed in on on this couple and started with them. You know, I'm pretty sure that they already know who the players are, who they are, and you know, uh, and if a, if a big gambler comes in to spend the weekend in the Dominican, they're not messing with that guy. You know, they're messing with the guys who are there for five, you know, ten days, and they know when the round trip flights are going to go back and. You know, they know how they got booked and, you know, and so on. Yeah, that's it's, it's possible. And by the way, there was also reports on TripAdvisor that the blackjack games there are crooked as well, that people saw bottom dealing and things like that going on, and that they just, that people had just unusually bad luck at blackjack. And it, you'll hear this all the time, oh, you know, it must, must be rigged. I mean, I've seen in blackjack in legitimate games where I've just gotten clobbered and lost, like, just a staggering number of hands uh, in a short period of time, but that just happens in blackjack, and sometimes you go the other way and win a bunch of it at the same time. But but people reported seeing things like bottom dealing and having just just tremendously terrible luck at the blackjack, and there was a lot of different reports about this there, and even from people who, who didn't seem to be mentioning the other scam going on there, like people who just showed up there to complain about the blackjack and TripAdvisor. And you don't see that. You, know, you may say, well, every casino is going to have – People who lost money, who try to blame it on on being cheated, but go to go to sites for any other casino. You're not going to see that many reports about the blackjack being shady. You're, you're going to see very few. No, but I also you're right. But I also would venture to guess that the losses at the blackjack. Although you never know, it could be a big hitter. But you know, with blackjack, you you buy your chips as you use them, and so at some point, if you so if you see somebody bottom decking uh, or dealing out of the bottom of the deck, you can just get up and leave. Right, this other game, they're you know, quote unquote, doubling their bets every every toss, and all of a sudden their bets are at fifteen hundred dollars or twelve hundred fifty dollars. Blackjack, you control your betting, you know. So I, unless again, I you know, I'm, I'm speaking in generality. Uh, so if I buy two hundred dollars worth of chips at the table and I start losing and I think the dealer's cheating me, I'll just cash out what I have left or I'll leave and that's it. I'm not stuck. You know, it's not as if my bet magically doubles every time I put a chip down in blackjack. And this game is designed to cause confusion uh, and to 
and what's also interesting, it just sort of came to me, you know, in almost any other casino game anywhere in the world, your bet is equal to the amount of chips on your t- on the table, right? You actually physically bet them. But it seems like in this game, they weren't putting those chips down. They're somehow tallying them up and just, like, bet, basically letting them bet on credit. Okay, you ready for the next one? Ready for the next one? Ready for the next one? And they're not mentioning that this bet is skyrocketing uh, to the tune of four or five figures, you know, four figures when they're, when they're ready to finally say, hey, this has gotten out of hand. Um, so I think that this, this game in particular is designed to be confusing and, and yes. designed to take advantage. This is, this is just not a, you know, luck of the draw kind of thing. Yeah, it, def- it definitely is uh, designed to be confusing. If you look at that board on, that, on the thread there, <laughs> you're, you're going to go, what the hell is this? How does this even work? And that's, that's what they're hoping. And they're, the, 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 quote, expert is the one dealing it who is so familiar with it that he can count it all so fast. If you ask him, why do you scoop this up? He said, well, I, I, I'm a super fast counter. And I'm the one who's supposed yeah. to count it. And that's, a, that's his answer. You go, well, can you slow down and not grab? Nope, that's, the, that's how this game works. You, you roll it, I count it really fast, I'm a really good counter, and I'm telling you what it is. And uh, so that's... And, and, and yeah, this is, this is really a case of throwing good money after bad. And that's that. I'm going to... I'll read you... Uh, by the way, Eric, thank you for all your analysis here. It's very interesting. And anytime if you're tired and you want to go, that's, uh, that's totally fine. Uh, but uh, the, here, here's what was posted. Here's one of the TripAdvisor reports, and this is I just picked this one because it's kind of typical, explaining uh, in a little more detail than what the the gay couple on that broadcast explained. He said uh, all the re- reviews are correct. We lost over five thousand dollars U.S. in a progressive roulette casino game that you cannot win. We were playing blackjack, and after losing $30 each, we were leaving the casino, and at the door, some pretty woman employee offered you free chips to the game, thinking the Ryu is a respectable place. And by the way, I read this in several reviews, that people only trusted this because it was the Ryu, not if it was just some random casino in Dominican, they probably would have said no. Uh, But we gave it a shot, and you're not really paying close attention to the game, and they have this pretty girl beside you at the table while you throw the balls to distract you. I guess it wouldn't have distracted the gay guys. I guess that didn't work on them. Uh, when the uh, when the dealer ca- counts the eight balls in the small roulette, why would you recount the eight balls if the dealer gives you points? So I, I think what the guy's trying to say here is like if 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 you throw eight balls and the guy counts it really quickly and 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 says you came so close to winning, like you think, okay, well, you know, I'm getting so many points. Why why would I doubt this is this is fake? It's not like you threw a bunch and he said, okay, you got three points, you need 100. Here it says you got 99. So they go on to write, first it seems like you were rolling great rolls to start and your points are adding up quickly. The dealer is a professional in what he is doing and when he counts the balls, it seems really legit. He's a white American and he tells you that he owns an MMA school. His ears are messed up and deformed like MMA fighters. He becomes really friendly with you to make you comfortable. You quickly get close to the large jackpot before you have to start making bigger bets. He tells you that you're doing amazingly well, only one point away to win like 6000 US. He asks you really nicely to give or show your credit card and sign a paper that you will not have to, but, but you will not have to pay anything because your bets will, will be subtracted from your, from your inevitable winnings. So they don't even try to cash out your, your money on your card because you're, you're going to win anyway. If, if you, now I, I'm still trying to understand here what what people think the edge is for the casino like they, there's got to be something that the person believes this being a legitimate game it can't just be 
you sit down and, oh, man, you're so close. Oh, you're so close again. Oh, keep rolling. You're so close. You're going to hit it next time. Well, then how does the casino ever win? But maybe they're saying the jackpot already got run up by somebody else. Who knows? Uh, anyway, if if you need to leave the casino. Well, I have a theory. Yeah, what's your theory? I have a theory on that. Yeah. And and this goes back to the that typical three-card Monty, you know, find the queen. Uh, it's very possible, especially if they're scanning four, five, six thousand at a time, that they've got plants at that same game with stacks of chips in front of them acting as if they already won their jackpot. Yeah, it's possible. You know, hey, we're living the dream here, pal. You can do it. We did. Th- that would be, you know, a, that would be ever, a good you theory. Ever, you, know, you ever walk through a casino and see that? You know, like at a pike out poker or something where there's, you know, a guy sitting with a bunch of chips, you can tell he just hit some big hand on a on the dragon yeah. bed or, you know, one of those $5 sucker bets. And same idea. You know, you get one or two people sitting there with checks. And so the, you know, the unwitting couple comes in and realizes, you know, and just thinks, well, everybody else is winning. Why couldn't I? Yeah, I, I would believe that, except no, no reports have mentioned this, that they see anyone else winning. So that's the only thing. And I think someone would have said this by now. If that, so that, that, that would have been a good idea on their part. Maybe you should go work for the casino. But it seems like they're not. It seems like they're not doing that. Anyway, he says if you need to leave the casino to get your credit card in your room, he writes your score on a paper and tells you that they close at midnight. So whenever you come back with money or the credit card, you can keep playing at the same score that you were. So there is some kind of accumulated score here. I thought there wasn't, but that's what I'm not understanding. Like, but, but anyway. Uh, however, then the bets constantly double. So when the pot is is uh, is 102,000 US, he means the jackpot. The bets are 2560 for each of the throwing balls. Uh, so, so you're thinking is okay is ridiculous. The next double of my bet will be fifty one twenty US, and after another another double of ten thousand two forty US for throwing the balls and a jackpot of four hundred thousand US. So you clearly realize it's a total scam. So it looks like what they're doing every time is that they're like like increasing the jackpot and of course double your, doubling your yeah they're, they're doubling your bet and the jackpot, which by itself doesn't even make any sense. Uh, it, and at the end, when, when you really count the balls as the real score, but you just cannot reach a score with eight balls that gives you points. So you just it's, it's just double your bed and double the pot. So even if you try to, to sue them, you cannot do nothing because the part where you got scammed is they gave you points at the beginning so you cannot prove anything. A real shame that a nice resort like Ryu would allow this to happen on their property. Do not go into this casino or any private casino. You will waste your vacation. Uh, and if you, if you click on this link about Razzle, which is the, the, that's what this game is. I don't, I don't know what they call it there, but this is a, a variation of Razzle. And it says on Wikipedia, Razzle is a game sometimes presented on Carnival Midways and historically in the casinos of Havana, Cuba. It's, the game is also known as Razzle Dazzle. Uh, the generic name is seldom known to players as it's generally presented as football, 10 points with ten points win, baseball, moco, Indian, poker, casino, Cajun bingo, or as some other name. Razzle consists of a playing board with numbered holes averaging 120 upon which eight marbles are spilled from a cup. The numbers are added to a total, and that total is explained on the char- displayed on a chart that looks something like a calendar with a value for that number displayed beneath, beneath it. In most Razzle setups, the player must bet one unit per roll and must keep rolling until he achieves 10 points. The, the player does not lose until he walks away, but in reality the player loses the minute he steps up to the game. Uh, Razzle, Razzle is seldom, if ever, run honestly. The points per number chart is the secret. The numbers most likely to come up are worthless or only indicate that you have to double or increase your bet. Most dishonest Razzle games also rely on a fast count by the game operator to trick the player into believing he has a better number total than he actually rolled. This is used to keep the player hooked into the game, increasing his point total periodically, causing him to invest more and more into the game. Okay, I, I kind of see better what's going on here. That It seems like maybe 
I don't know. Maybe it's still not explaining to me how. Like, how can you get ninety nine on the first roll and just get stuck there? How, how can people believe that? But may, maybe it's something like that. You you've hit all the big ones right away, and now you just have to hit a small one. And you just keep hitting the same ones you did before. You're just hitting bad values, but it's just it, it's just. I think the, the I think this the real trick is here that this is an accumulative this accumulative thing, and that you start off so well that they're saying, look, you started off so well. Even if you just get like average luck from this point, you're bound to win this in the next few rolls. Like there's no, there's no way when you're this far you, that you're you're not going to get there, and you just keep missing every single time, and and, and it doubles every time. It says uh, most Razzle operators are not satisfied until they get their mark's last dollar. Well, that that doesn't appear to be what's happening here because so many people report losing five thousand, and I figured something out. So I. For this guy's description of of the bets being twenty five sixty and then fifty one twenty, I I figured out that you know, if you take a look at the numbers twenty five sixty and fifty one twenty, take up take off the zero and it becomes two fifty six and five twelve, which are all powers of two, which makes sense for for doubling. So let's say the first bet is ten dollars. The next would be twenty. Next would be forty. Next eighty. Next one sixty. Next three twenty. Next six forty. Next twelve eighty. Next twenty five sixty. Next fifty one twenty. Well, the way $5,000 comes in here is if after the uh, after the 2560 roll that they stop and make you pay up at that point. And that might be what they're really shooting for here, that they're not looking for an astronomical figure because one they probably think they can't collect it. There's only like let's say someone gets a million dollars down, how are they going to get a million dollars out of them? Even if they have it, how are they going to get it all wired there without a problem? How is the person going to agree to this? Like, uh, as you said, if they keep the number more nominal, like something high but not super high, something they can afford to lose but just be frustrated, like $5,000, uh, then their people are more likely just to pay it and, and, and leave fr- frustrated, whereas uh, if it's a million dollars, people are not going to give that up. So it's so if you add together 2560, 1280, 640, 320, 160, 80, 40, 20, 10, that comes up to 5110. And then if you take away some promotional chips they gave you, that would bring it under you know, like 5,075, so it's very close to 5,000. So maybe someone lost 5,075, know, 5, and the casino says, well, you can just pay us 5,000, and there you, there you go, that's, that's how 5,000 is. But the, so many people reported 5,000, and again, 5,000 was U.S. is about what these uh, this gay couple lost, that there must be something about that particular spot where – they stop people and make them pay or something like that, where they say, whoa, 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 let's, let's, let's make sure you can pay for your bet so far before we continue. And then the people pay, and then they Yeah, realize. it makes sense. I mean, the other thing, too, is that at one point they're talking about taking them credit card numbers, but you can always come back and dispute those later. This couple out of Canada, they literally walked into an ATM machine. Right. It's harder to dispute that, you know. Well, <laughs> and, and, you them cash. And, and their story was that the, the bank rejected the charges, and then at that point, they uh, probably the credit cards said, "Ah, uh-uh, we're not, we're not processing a five thousand dollar charge from, uh, or sixty five hundred Canadian charge from the Dominican. Forget it." And then, so they they had to, so they tried to charge the card. The, the card wouldn't put it through, and then they intimidated these guys to get the money a different way, which is probably. And they had the master phone number list of all the banks there to give to these guys right away to make the calls. And get it done, and so they—they're obviously very experienced with all this. And that's uh, see, I, I think I understand a little more about the game now that it's some kind of cumulative thing, and you, you just start off so well. It's like 
how could you not get another point or another two points after your first few rolls got you 99? So and then people just keep trying, 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 and they can't get that last point, and then by the time they realize it's a scam, it's pretty much done anyway because all they want is 5,000 out of you. So it looks like. I wonder how much the I wonder how much the attractive chip girl gets for picking the right you know mark. Right. I I, what, I do wonder what everybody gets. What does the girl get? What does the guy get? Who the, the dealer there, the white American dealer who does it? What is the, what does the hotel front desk get for looking the other way and not warning people? Uh, what what do the police and the judge get? There's, this has got to go around in a lot of different ways. Or there may be some. It's there, really too bad because you know I understand the Dominican Republic is a is a up-and-coming vacation spot like Costa Rica was a few years ago. Yeah, it is. It's starting to gain momentum, and, you know. It's going to turn a lot of people off to it. Yeah, and, and but what's, this whole story, what surprises me the most is after seven years of this, where there's got to be really angry complaints to Ryu about this. Like, there's got to be people calling and raising hell about this. You think seven years of this going on, that, and, and I have to think this scam is going on, like, every day, or if not every day, most days. So for seven years, this is going on most days. Not only has this just must have just pulled in untold money, because if you think about it, if they if they made just three thousand a day, they'd make over a million a year on this. Well, yeah, and I'm sure well, they're getting multiple people and multiple people, right? Off. Right, they could be getting ten, twenty thousand a day, easy. Yeah. Well, and that's part of why I would sue the parent corporation because you can get that information through discovery. You know, you can serve written discovery um, for all of the records of complaints, you know, consumer complaints specifically out of the Dominican or out of any, you know, I, I, I don't know that they have other locations with a casino attached, so it would probably be a pretty focused discovery. You know, not hard to, to figure out what records to look for and, and what to get. And you're probably right that the corporate office probably has a ton of complaints. And the excuse they're probably using is, well, even if the hotel is associated with the chain uh, for Ryu, that doesn't mean the casino is. And right. The casino is independently operated. That's what they say. Yeah, commerce and Crown and the Crown Plaza. Yeah, and that's what they say. That, that, that sort of thing. That's what they've been saying, and that's what everybody's getting back is that uh, that's what they get when they complain to the Dominican to the hotel, and and then I haven't heard about the complaints to Ryu, but I, I have to imagine that's the answer is I'm sorry, this is an independent casino. What the hotel you told you is correct. We're very sorry you got scammed, but uh, unfortunately we have no power over this. But I'm I'm just surprised. Like, what are they what are they saying there at? the Ryu corporate office, when these come in again and again, do they just shrug their shoulders? Well, okay, that's fine. We don't mind if our, our customers get scammed. We don't mind if our name's associated with this. Like I, I just can't imagine a, a, cor- a corporation with so many different locations of hotels, even if they are franchised. How can they... It's one thing to be some kind of corrupt judge or corrupt cop in the Dominican who otherwise wouldn't make much money, but how, how does a corporation like this tolerate this? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, well, well let, me, let me ask the question differently to play devil's advocate. So... Pick a favorite hotel casino in Vegas. Anyone that you think is great doesn't matter. Let's say let's say Caesars, right? We always talk about Caesars. Yeah, Caesars Palace. Now, what if Caesars Palace had? Uh, they have restaurants inside the casino, and the restaurants are independently owned, right? The, yeah, so some of them are. You yeah. Got the Emerald or whatever. Okay. So, if an independently owned restaurant in Caesars Palace has gained a reputation for consistently serving too much alcohol to people. And those same people later either lose all their money or end up in traffic accidents. Is Caesar's Palace responsible for that restaurant just by virtue of the fact that it rents space? Because that's what the Ryu is saying. Hey, look, this casino essentially just rents space from us. We can't control what they do. Sorry this happened to you. 
you know, was your room okay? Great. Then move on. So, so to play devil's advocate, could I sue Caesars for their independently owned restaurant tenant serving too much alcohol consistently to customers in an irresponsible way? Well, and the answer is I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about that either, but I think this is much, much worse because this is a scam where people from the hotel are targeted. And, and, and this has been going on for many years and they're not warning anybody and nor are they trying to disassociate from this, uh, bad acting casino. They've done nothing and, and it seems like they're enabling it. And that's, and, and that's where I, anyone who's got a brain at the, at the chain would say, look, what are they getting out of keeping this prop, keeping the status quo with this? Why, why doesn't someone at corporate call the Ryu there and say, knock this off or you're not going to be a Ryu anymore? Or knock this off, or if it is, and if it's owned by the corporations, they knock this off, or we're firing everybody here and, and starting over. Like, what? I don't understand. I, if I were, if I were in charge there at the review and I got these complaints, I'd go, "Oh my god, I'm, I'm going to put an end to this somehow." I wouldn't just say, "Well, okay, as uh, long as we can kind of legally worm out of it, fine." Because it, it, I, I would think the harm to our, even if I didn't personally care, I would think the harm to our corporation's reputation would. Uh, it, there's a potential for that. And what are we even gaining from this? If, even if, even if you're morally okay with it. Uh, what what are they gaining on the corporate side from this? I can't imagine very much at all. No, see, and so if it's independently owned, all they're getting is whatever the, the, the corporate office is just getting whatever the cost of the use for the license and name is and marketing materials. And maybe it's lucrative enough if they don't have to really operate uh, and have the overhead of running the property. But, I mean, I agree with you that at some point, I think the Rio has to take responsibility for any of its affiliates whether or not it's uh, uh, wholly owned uh, by the Rio's parent corp or if it's independently operated and owned and they're just paying a licensing fee for their name. Yeah. At some point, you can't, you know, there, there has to be some degree of accountability because if I, it's no different than, you know, if I allow some one of my employees to file uh, a pleading on my behalf electronically, I have to accept that if they do something wrong, I'm responsible for that. I can't just say, well, they're just an employee. It's not me. You know, no, Your Honor, I'm not the one that actually filed it. You know, that kind of thing. It doesn't work like that. So just because uh, somebody may be an independent operator, I don't think would cause the parent corporation to have zero liability for any of the bad acts. Now the question really comes down to, again, I, I, I just think it becomes cost prohibitive to go after it. You know, and I think most people like this Canadian couple is just, they're just happy to get home. They want to get the hell out of there. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. Well, I, and, and, and Eric, let me just ask a quick question, Jeff. Sorry. Um, and like you said earlier, Eric, them throwing them out of the hotel, that kind of binds the two together in some way. But like for something like this, at what point would somebody form a class? Because you have to feel that there's hundreds of people. I mean, it could be a pretty big. I mean, you, like, where would this fall? If, if could you okay. do some type of class, so you, lawsuit, could, you, know? you you could have a class as low as twelve people. You know, the only trick is you have to get the class certified by the court. But if you can get a class certified by the court of people similarly situated, so this would essentially be former customers of the Ryu Dominican Republic who fell victim to this casino scam, and assume that there are hundreds. I think that the real value in a class action like that is more uh, to get the corporate office's attention and to garner a settlement. This is more about bad press at that point. 
it's very hard, if not impossible, to bring a class action RICO suit in federal court and prove all the elements on its merits. So I think the Ryu would be more concerned with the idea that there's going to be publicity in media, that there's a class action going after one of their locations or properties in the Dominican Republic for ripping off their customers. I think that's the value in a class action. And if you had a savvy attorney that could utilize the media right and say, look, we've got over a 1,000 people that have come forward at this point, and God knows how many more are out there that are just ashamed for being humiliated and scammed and threatened and, and you know, coerced and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, I think the reuse corporate offices start to pay attention and yeah. they try to look to settle it really quick. You know, like the fastest settlement on record is uh, that uh, dentist that was on the airline that got his teeth knocked out. When he yeah, yeah, off the right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, that case settled like in minutes. So I think that that's the goal. You'd want some kind of result like that. Right. Well, I, I think uh, maybe one day there will be enough. Uh, I mean, the, the CBC there apparently didn't make many waves, but may, if this gets picked up in the U.S. somehow by by some major media outlet, then I, I could see something like this really put, you know, putting an end to it if there's enough of a spotlight on this. But as long as they mainly remain in the shadows with this, even if uh, an occasional media outlet that's not huge covers it, I think it'll keep on the way it is. And obviously, there's been attempts to put a stop to this or to sue them or, or at least look into suing them over the past seven years. But we, I haven't heard of a single success story. So apparently they're plugging on full speed ahead. So, Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. It, again, and again, I think the amounts are nominal enough to where half the time people just, you know, just let's just call this a bad dream and, you know, never come back here again. Yeah. Well, th- thank you, thank you, Eric, for coming on here and uh, giving a, a great analysis once again. And uh, of course, always happy to have you on here whenever we have a question like this because uh, these are all, all these things I asked you. I could never answer these myself. These, these are things I could never come up with on my own. I don't have that uh, that that sort of legal knowledge. So, thank you for once again doing this for us here. Anytime, guys. Have a good evening. Okay, thank you, Eric. Good night. All right, take care. Bye bye. Were you going to say Trader Risky? I was going to thank Eric, but I was slow on the draw to unmute. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, while Eric was talking, though, even though I was paying attention, I I thought, you know, as as great of an attorney as Eric Benzamokin is, I think maybe in a case like this, you'd probably need someone, since he was talking about these RICO suits, I said, you'd probably need someone, if if you want to sue them in the Dominican Republic, someone who specializes in that area. And I actually found some, I found a YouTube video uh, of someone who actually specializes in these uh, RICO matters in Spanish-speaking countries. Here's the video I found. Yeah, so I, I think that's who you should hire. He's, he's the expert on Rico in Spanish-speaking areas. No offense to Eric, though. Okay, now before we move on, of course we have to call up the Ryu. We have to get to the bottom of this, so let's give it a shot. Thank you for calling uh, Rio Hotels and Resorts Telephone Direct Customer Service Line. If you are a direct customer, please press 1. If you have a real class loyalty card, I think I pressed one. A customer service agent will be with you shortly. Beautiful. We inform you that from this moment onward, your call will be recorded for safety and uh, privacy reasons. Uh oh. You can check out either policy at real.com. 
We're going to be recording your call so we can use it against you in a court of law. All of our agents are busy at the moment. Thank you for waiting, and we hope to attend you as soon as possible. <laughs> we all have more than 90 hotels at the world's best destinations. We have 90 hotels, one of which cheats you. We have 89 honest hotels and, and, and one scam like, hotel. You can also make or cancel your booking at Rio.com. You can cancel you your booking, or we can throw you out of our hotel after we scam you. Hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I, I'm calling about uh, a matter that, uh, of much importance here. Um, I, I don't know if you're the right one to be talking to, but perhaps you could give me the, the, the proper number to call. Um, I, I went to the, the Ryu Hotel in Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. You know which one I'm referring to? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. I, I had a rather uh, unpleasant experience there. So, so this is what happened. Um, a, a rather attractive girl approached me outside. She worked for the, for the casino that's attached to the hotel. And she said, oh, uh, we, we have 25 complimentary dollars for you to play our, our game here. So they, they led me over to some game in the corner of the casino with my 25 complimentary dollars. And I said, okay. And then some American gent was there. He was the one actually uh, running the game. And it was some sort of complicated game where you throw these, like, eight marbles and you had to get 100 points. And they kept saying, oh, 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 you're so close to getting 100. You bet you get a double each time. And, uh, oh, you've got to give us your credit card just in case, you know, you, you in, just in case you don't win the jackpot. But don't worry, you're going to win the jackpot. You're so close. You're going to win $100,000. And I was so excited. And, and my bet kept doubling, went from 20, 10 to 20 to 40 to 80 to, to 160 to 320. You know, the whole time I'm like one point away from winning, so they say, but they won't allow me to see exactly what I'm rolling. So I have to take the word for it that I'm really not getting the, the, the point I need to get the $100,000 jackpot. So it's going up and up and up. My bet's going up and up and up. Well, we get to the point I owe them $5,000 for this free game they told me. And I said, you know, I was not born yesterday. And, um, you know, there's only, so, there's only so many times you can serve me the bad Yorkshire pudding before I'm going to throw it all up. So I said, I'm not going to continue betting on this. I'm afraid this is not on the level. So they said, oh, well, we have some bad news for you. Um, you owe us $5,000 then. And they, they forced me to pay the $5,000. They, they were holding my, my driver's license. So they told me, we're not going to return your driver's license. And you're going to have to be taking the, the double Dutch bus for all of eternity without a license there back in England. And furthermore, you're not getting back to England because we're going to hold you here in the Dominican until you pay us back that $5,000. So they forced me to withdraw from the ATM to get my bank to wire some money. Anyway, after I got them the $5,000, they let me go. And they gave me my, 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 license back. And of all things, they gave me two bags of coffee. I don't know why. I wasn't quite in the coffee-drinking mood at that point. But, uh, you know, I I did have some. The coffee was fine. You know, it it would have been nice if I had some milk for it. But um, it was better than nothing. But uh, anyway, I I, I went back to to England and I I researched this matter online and found that many, many people dating back to 2012 have been a victim of this. And indeed, it was a scam. And I was rather surprised that this could be occurring at a Rio hotel. So I called up the, the property, and I spoke to the manager there, and I said, Have you gone mad? Do you, you know what you're doing here? You, your casino is cheating people. And they said, Oh, well, our casino is not affiliated with us, so um, th- that's we have no say in that matter. Tally ho, pip pip, on, on with you, off you go. And I said... But but this is your this is a casino attached to your hotel. If they're cheating people, you shouldn't you should be warning your guests not to go there. So uh, have you heard of these complaints of this one in in, in Punta Cana? Before I go further, no. To be honest, no. This is the first time. 
All right. Well, I know it's been complained about many times. Who, who is the one to complain to? The most surprising thing to me is that the Ryu, which is a respectable company, would be tolerating such behavior over all these years. It's not, it didn't just happen to me. It happened to people going seven years all the way back. So, so, so who would I speak to at this corporation to make sure that they're aware of this occurring and that they're going to put a stop to it? Well, this is the reservation department. I can give you an email address where they can help you. You're going to transfer me? No, there's no phone number. There's an email address. An email address? That makes no sense. So I've been told that people send an email and they get no response. I want to know who I can speak to. I want to speak to a human being who will say, Colonel Fabersham, you were scammed at the Ryu, and there's nothing we care about it one bit. That uh, that this is something that uh, that complaining to us is as useless as bringing coals to Newcastle. That's why I want to hear from them themselves that they do not care about this, because it seems that the email is falling upon deaf ears. So, so what do I do about this? Who, who do I reach in corporate? What's the corporate phone? number that I can reach? There's not a phone number. It's an email address. But, but they have a phone number. I'm sure they have a phone in their office. I'm sure there's no. a way you can reach them. Unfortunately, no. Well, okay. Let's, let's start simpler. Um, where is the corporate office? What, what country is it in? In Spain. It's in Spain, all right? We're making some progress. All right. Now, what city in Spain is it located? Uh, there are different locations. Well, give me one of them. Throw, throw, throw one out there. I don't know. Madrid? Right. Are you sure it's Madrid, or are you just saying Madrid because it's a well-known city in Spain? Well, because they have property in Madrid. They have their own properties in Spain. But, I'm not a CEO of the company. All right, right. So I wouldn't be able to tell you. Okay, so, so... the first time that I heard something like this. Okay, you, what I can do right now where they can help you send me more trash. Well, I did that, and they sent me nothing back. They, 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 I, I sent, where do you send it to? Oh, I forgot. They gave it to me a while ago when I went there, and, and, and they gave it to me, and I fell upon deaf ears. But, but, but this is the type of thing you really need to explain in person to a human being, not, to, not in an email. It's too, it's too hard to explain this, this complicated scheme they had going on with this, this Dominican pretty girl and this, this white American with, with grabbing the marbles really fast. It's not something that you can explain in an email very well. So, um... That's you know you you could have uh, Shakespeare himself trying to write for you and you're not going to get the message across properly. So um, you said Madrid, Spain. Are you just saying this because they have a hotel in Madrid? Yeah. All right. Now, now the Madrid. Uh, the, maybe we're getting somewhere. The Madrid hotel is this actually owned by the corporation or is it um, independently owned and operated? It's, it's a hotel by real. But do they actually own the hotel? Do you know, like, like the one? In, let's start with the one in Dominican. Do they own that one, or is, it, is that well, one? They, own, they own. Rio owns around one hundred hotels. But but do they own it, or are they leasing out their name? Do you know? They own. Well, that's that's rather peculiar. It's amazing to me if they really do own these. That they would allow this to continue. And that's, that's, that's what's rather disturbing. And I know there's been many attempts to be made of contact with the Ryu for over seven years with various people who have been victimized in this way. Because I read about it online. I read about this on Yelp. I read about it on TripAdvisor. And, and I even read about this on a, on a British site um, called uh, Tea and Crumpets and Ripped Off by Hotels.com. It's a smaller site. I'm not sure if you're aware of that one. But um, all of these have many complaints about this Ryu, this one particular Ryu in Punta Cana. Dominican Republic, where I, where I stayed as well. So, um, you say there's no phone number in Madrid. There's a property. You think you think I'd be best off calling there and perhaps a- a- asking them for information? 
it's going to be the phone number of Waffle Hotel. Yes, yes. But do you think they have anything, any information over there in in Madrid, Spain? No. Oh, bollocks. But I must, re- I must reach someone. I'm going to make it my quest. It's going to be something I, I just uh, continue to press until I get an individual on the phone who will speak to me about this most disturbing matter. Unfortunately, no. Well, that's, it's not, I'm not going to give up. You do not know how persistent I am. I, I didn't reach the rank of colonel by sitting on my, on my duff, you know. It's, uh, I, I keep pressing until... Uh, um, you know, I, I'm one of the few people in England who has nice teeth because I force my dentist to actually treat me. I'm the only person in England whose teeth are not ugly, all right? So, so you know I get things done, all right? So uh, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to try to reach the Ryu... Uh, in Madrid, Spain. I'm going to ring them. I'm going to see what they have to say, and then we will move from there. Uh, Tally-ho, pip-pip, and uh, let's get on with this bloody thing. All right, let's, let's try. Let's try the Ryu Hotel in Madrid, Spain. This is going to cost me money, people. This is not a free call. I'm going to try. There may be a way to call it for free. Let me see. Is there an 88 number or something? Let me see. I don't think so. I think it's only got a local number. Yeah. All right. I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to pay my money to call Spain. I've got uh, $8 in my Skype account. I'm not afraid to use it. It's for moments like these. So fine. Fine. I will call Madrid, Spain. It's going to cost me uh, 2.3 cents a minute. You people are not worth this, but I'm doing it anyway. Gracias por llamar a la línea de atención de Rio Hotels and Resorts. Si es usted un cliente particular, what happened for English? Press one. For Spanish, si es usted un agente de viajes, marque dos. I think we need Chico Loco for this. Si es usted un cliente particular, marque uno. Si es usted un cliente particular, marque uno. Si es usted un cliente particular, marque uno. Okay, I'll press one. Fine, fine, fine. Si tiene usted nuestra tarjeta de fidelización Rio Class, por favor, marque su número. Si no la tiene consigo o no es miembro, espere en línea. Trying to get them on the phone here. I'm like partially understanding what they're telling me. In a few le atenderá un agente. Le informamos que a partir de este momento, su llamada será grabada por motivos de seguridad y privacidad. En Rio.com puede consultar nuestra política de privacidad. Hey, oh uh, man, you know, I, I've been a while, man, since I speak some Spanish, man. You, you speak, uh, you speak English? You speak English? Sorry? Hey, dude, you speak English? Yeah. All right, man. Hey, uh, I, I want to talk, I want to get the phone number here to, you know, I, I don't think it's about this hotel, but I want to talk to someone about the hotel that they got there in Dominican Republic, the, uh, the Punta Cana, okay, man? And what's going on is they're ripping people off, including me. They stole me a bunch of money, and I'm pissed off about it, and I want to reach them, okay? So I want, I'm going to fuck their shit up. So I want the number of who I can talk to about, 
you know, what what go on, went on down there, and I want to talk to someone in, in corporate at Ryu because it's very bad, and they don't do nothing down there at uh, at the Dominican when you complain to them. They threw me out of the place. They say, "Hey man, you get out of here." So I know here in the Spain, you don't you don't tolerate that kind of crap. And I know at this hotel, you can't do nothing about the hotel in Dominican Republic. But I want you to give me the number of who is in charge at the corporate, so I can talk to them at the corporate about what is going on at the Dominican Republic. You, you, you feel me, man? Yeah, but I, there's not a phone number. There's going to be an email first that you're going to have to send an email first. Yeah, see, they keep telling me that, but then I send the email and like no one responds to me. So I'm like, I've got to speak to a human being who can t who can listen to me and say, okay, hey, you know, Chico, I, I give you, I, I go on to give you a phone number so I, we can have a one-to-one -one talk. You know, that's that's what we do here in 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 Norwalk. You know, we 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 handle it one-on-one. -on -one, you know, we we don't do no nothing with email addresses. Well, in that case, the only way will be to get in contact directly with the personnel directly that owns the property in Dominican Republic. But otherwise, it will be by email address, since they're going to have to have a support, and they're the department that, I, that is the one that handles all this information, all these situations. All right. Now, now you, you, how, come they, how come Rio don't got no corporate number? That someone can just call up and talk. How come? How come the corporate hide from everybody? You know, what do they got to hide? Well, they got ninety nine hotels. Why are they trying to hide from everyone? No, nothing. But just there's a process, and you need to follow the process. That's the reason why. Well, I mean, I follow the process down in the Dominican Republic. I get five thousand dollars stolen from me from 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 people at the casino, from from employees at the casino steal from me, and and. Tons of other people over time, over the last seven years, they check on TripAdvisor. They say all this shit, just like what happened to me. Okay, and not just me. So, so okay, let's 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 talk about what I do now. All right. So, so you're saying, do you know who owns the property down at Dominican Republic? You're saying the corporation does not own that; it is owned by somebody else. Well, real owns all the properties, but in this case, if you're like. You have a, a complaint about a particular hotel. You're gonna have to get in contact with, in this case, with the people that handles that property. All right, but what, what if I don't get no satisfaction? You know, what what if what if like you know like the Rolling Stones? You know, I don't get no satisfaction. You know, it's, it's what if I I, I they, they ain't gonna help me none because they don't help me none when I down there. When I down there, they throw my ass out because they say I complain too much about the casino. And I say, man, they stole from me. What the fuck am I supposed to say? You know, they take my money and they say, oh, I'm supposed to be polite. Say, oh, thank you for stealing my money. I'm gonna go get a good night of sleep. I go, no, you got your casino steal from me. And I can prove it on the internet. Everyone says it's happened, and they don't care. They say you complain one more, we throw you out. And I complain, they throw me out. So I say, well, I, I don't think calling them is going to do much good. But but uh, say there is no corporate number. It's so weird for for big big company like this. You you have to email. That I've never seen that before. Well, since you're talking about a property, we have six properties. What about six properties? Eh? We have six properties in Punta Cana. Oh, yeah, I, I tell you which one it is. Hang on a sec. It's like, uh, I forget the fucking name of this shit. Let me see here. Uh, I gotta look this up on my receipt. Uh, I didn't know, you know you guys even got six properties, man. It's crazy. I should have got to the other ones because this one was whack, you know? Let me get to this, uh, see which one this was. It was the, uh, Ryu Macau Casino. That's what it was.
The Ryu Palace Macau Casino, the one next to that casino, whatever that is called. Okay. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, so in this case, uh, well, the casino is not owned by, by the hotel. So in this case, the first thing is to get in contact with the person that owns the casino. Well, they ain't going to help me, man. That's a, they got a scam that's going for seven years. There's no way they don't know about that. Like, I, I, there's no way I'm going to call up and go, hey, man, you, your casino scamming people for seven years. They go, what? We don't know nothing about that. They, they're going to know. You know, they're going to they're gonna tell me they don't know. They're going to tell me there ain't no scam. But I got to talk to someone who can actually do something about it. The casino, I can't call up and say, hey, guys, I just want to tell you, you guys are scamming me. They're going, yeah, I know. We have your money. Ha ha. You know, they, they ain't going to do nothing. Yeah, but the casino is a third-party company. It's not real itself. But sh- okay, shouldn't the Ryu though say we're not associated with that casino? No, we like we they warn their shouldn't they warn the people who come stay there? Don't go gamble in the casino con- connected to us because they, they you know they, they they ain't no good. They're stealing from you. It's actually called the R- the Ryu Palace Macau Casino. You know, it's it's actually associated with it. Well, this is the person that I heard something about that. But in this case, if you have a complaint to do. In this case, you're gonna have to say animal first. Oh, this is bullshit, yeah, man! They, in this they, case, if you have information, it's gonna be able to help you. Okay, man, this Otherwise, is gonna. Otherwise, you're, bar- you're barking the wrong tree. Well, I gotta bark some. I gotta bark and bite someone because you know the. I can't complain to the one who steals from me. It's not like you, it's like someone breaking your house and steals shit from you and go, "Hey, man, I want to complain that you're stealing from my house." They go, "Okay, what do you want to say?" Like you, you can't complain to the one who steal, and you can't complain to someone who don't care. That they know it's been happening for seven years. Like they know what this, they know what this hotel has been going on for seven years, and they don't give a shit. So if I tell them, they go, "Oh yeah, you're you're the thousandth complaint we've gotten about this. We don't give a crap." That's what they're going to tell me. Well, why you don't why you don't tell the process and see what they answer you first. Okay, but what do I do? Like, what do I do to tell the Ryu Corporation? That this is what is going on at the casino there at the Rio Palace Macau Casino. How how do I tell them? At the corporation, do they take me seriously? How do I speak to someone there and say, what is going on? Can you tell me why are you letting people scam at the casino? Well, send an email then so they can help you. I send it, but no one will respond nothing. You know, it's, it's, I, they just... Where do you send it to? I, I don't remember. You can give me the address again, but I sent it and, and I get nothing. But then I ask someone else on, on Yelp who's, who complained, and they say all they get back is, we don't own the casino, please do not complain to us. And I'm like, well, that, that ain't what I'm trying to say. I ain't saying you own it. I'm trying to say it's it's called the Ryu Palace Casino, and they're cheating people. You shouldn't let them call themselves that. You shouldn't let them be part of your hotel. Well, in, in the, I don't know the situation that you had in that property, but in this case, the first thing that you have to do is going to be send an email. Yeah, man, they, they don't want to do no fucking email. They can do me no good. All right, you know, I'm going to – maybe I call them. I'm going to find out from the property what they have to say about this now that I ain't there no more. We'll see about that. All right, man, thanks for your time, but uh, help me help me that much. So goodbye. All right. They, they all want to direct you to email. I knew it was something like this. I knew it was something you can get, get a meaningful person on the phone. I burnt like 60 cents on this useless call. Now, the Dominican is expensive to call. But let's, uh, let's call there anyway. 
That is no 2.3 cents a minute, I'll tell you that, to Dominican. Yeah, they're right. There are a number of hotels. There's the Rio Bamboo 5, the Rio Namboya 4, the Palace Bavaro. The, oh, there we are, the Macau. MCA, M-A-C-A-O. That's just from $111 per person per night. Yeah. It's a plus what they scam you. Okay, let's get the phone number here. Yeah, it's actually called the Ryu Palace Macau Casino. It's not even like a separately named casino. They actually call it the same name as the freaking hotel. And then they deny they're associated with it. You can't believe this. What a freaking joke. Okay, so the phone number for this is, it appears to be a local number, but it's really not. It's 809 221-7171. Two two one seven one seven one, yeah, nine point three cents a minute. What a freaking ripoff! Feel like I'm at that rate, they better be having phone sex with me, paying nine cents a minute. I better get my money's worth here. They can answer. Hey man, uh, hey hey Holmes, can, can I speak to uh, the, the manager of the place? Sorry. Can I speak to the manager of this hotel? Uh, now? Yeah. Is he there? No, he's not here now. All right, let me ask. Oh, I, I ask you something, man. Okay, you, do you know about the whole scam in the casino with that game where they keep they give you that little bit of promo money and they keep doubling your bet? Do you know about that game over the casino next door? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, sir. Yeah. Give me one second. Give me my friend. Okay. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Hey. hey you, you, yeah. How are you, sir? Yeah. You know that game next door, the casino, which, which, uh, that the whole game about they, they give you the promo chips and then they keep doubling your bet and then you owe them like five thousand bucks and they make you pay. Do you know about that game? About the game in the casino. There's a game in the casino where they they have a girl out front and they give you some chips and they say this is free chips and they bring you in there. They have you sign some things. Then they keep doubling your bet and keep claiming you're so close to winning a jackpot. And then by the time you never win the jackpot because the whole thing's a scam, and then that you owe them like five thousand bucks, which they make you pay, and they pressure you to pay and take your license and say you're never leaving the you're not leaving the property until you pay them the five grand. You heard about this whole thing? Well, I think I hear about it. I don't know. I don't know exactly about the game, but I think I hear something about that. Yeah, but, people say about that. Yeah, this has been going on there for seven years at that at that casino. They're doing that at the casino, stealing five thousand dollars from people. They do it to me. They do it so much. Too many people. I look on the internet. They say over seven years it's been going on, and no one doing nothing over here about it. And I'm saying, I know it's a, it's, it's a different owner of the casino than this hotel. Is that right? The casino, you say, is older than the the hotel. Is it? Is it? The, who owns the casino? Who owns the hotel? Is it the same person? Same company? No, 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 no. It's not the same person. The the person in the casino is another person in charge. He's not the same person in charge. 
Okay, so a different manager. But but but, but is, it, is it is it is both the casino and and the hotel owned by by Ryu or is it different different ownership? Sorry, repeat again. Uh, the, the, the casino again. is is the casino owned by Ryu or no? Yeah, 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 by the clients, yeah. So, 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 so if the casino is scanning people and people complain about scams there for seven years, how come you guys don't do nothing? How come you guys don't tell the casino stop doing it? How come this happened for seven years? No, I mean, uh, you got to talk to the, to the, if you're here, you have some problem that you think is not fair to you, you got to talk to the person in charge here. And you gotta talk to Dan, or you know. All right. When 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 when, when, when what? You saying I gotta talk to the manager of this hotel? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, you you talk to somebody here in the hotel. Okay, so but you're, you're, you're saying there ain't no manager there right now because it's like six a.m. Right? Sorry. Yeah, there's nobody there right now who's a manager. No, no, no. no. We're just the night shift guys. So, so when is somebody going to be there that I can talk to about this? Uh, during the day, after uh, around ten o'clock. After ten o'clock, oh man, this is—they they do yeah. so much scamming over there at this casino next door. I bet you all know about it. You—you got to hear this all the time. People come and go. Man, I just got scammed out of five thousand dollars by your own casino. I'm sure you hear people pissed off all every day about this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, because I don't know, I don't know about him, you know, because I've never been in a casino. I just uh, hear people who win, and sometimes they fail, and sometimes they lost, sometimes they win, you know, that's that's all I hear about it, you know. But no, this is different. You know, in a casino, of course, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But this is a place where it's a scam. There's a game there that is a big scam that people get ripped off, and then they come back over to the hotel and go, hey, how do you have a scam in your casino? And then they don't do nothing about it. That's what I want to know. Oh, okay. then you, you got to talk to the right person later. Uh, like 10 o'clock, you come again. You call here again. All right, man. I, I call, okay, I call back uh, at yeah, I call back at 10. I just was so pissed off about this that they steal my money. All right, I, I call back at 10, okay? Okay, okay bye-bye. Right. Yeah, that's a problem. It's the Dominican Republic at 6 a.m. right now. So that ain't going to fly. That's not a time an upper manager is going to be there. What did I waste on this call? God, I just wasted another 60 cents or so. Well, that wasn't a very productive dollar I just spent on this whole thing. I just blew like a dollar twenty in this whole thing. I hope you guys are happy. I might actually call during the right hours and then record it. But I've got to get a hold of someone about this. I just want to hear what they have to say. I don't know why. I think they have crappy phones over there because it may have been Skype, but like when I called Spain, it was fine. And then here it was all choppy. And I kind of understood him. You probably understood him, but the guy didn't have much to say anyway. It's just so stupid. Like there's gotta be, I, I can't believe Ryu actually owned the casinos. Like this makes it even more outrageous. Why, why are they allowing this? All right. Uh, let's move on here to. An unscheduled topic that everyone wants to hear. Beer and Poker in the chat said that there's a very interesting Twitter fight going on right now. You guys know how much I love those. A very interesting Twitter fight going on right now that, quote, is more interesting than a lot of topics on our agenda. 
<laughs> so I go, okay. Okay, so he thinks our agenda is boring this week. Let's see. I'm not going to be insulted. I'm going to I'm going to go take a look and see this interesting discussion or argument on Twitter. It involves someone that we talk about a good deal here that is involved in a number of uh, Twitter arguments. Traderuski, can you guess who that might be? Uh, he's low on the mute. Um, I have no clue. Well, it is not none other than Daniel Negranu, and he is arguing with Sean Deeb. And it's funny because I just happened to see – I don't know where this is even brought up, but I, I happened to see the other day an old video of Negranu betting, but uh, – raising, but, but without saying raise. He says something like, uh, I'm going to have to – I would have to pound you on this one. And then he threw in a raise, but kind of like in a string raise form. So then Deeb, who, you know, Sean Deeb clearly knew he was raising, but, but said, well, isn't that a string raise? And the ground is like, what? He said, it's a string raise. You can't just say, I, I think I'm going to have to pound you up here. You, you, that's not raise. That's not saying the word raise. Because for those of you that don't know, the rule in, in poker is you either have to, in one motion, put out the raise, or you have to say raise, and then you can put it out in as many motions as you want. So he, he's saying, look, say I, I have to, I'm going to have to pound you on this one doesn't equal raise. It's a little bit similar to what I said about Phil Helmuth at the World Series when he did a thumbs up motion and and threw uh, and threw a chip a single chip in, and I said that doesn't constitute a raise. And I was on the big blind, and he was furious about this, but they actually ruled in my favor. So Deeb did the same thing, and it was ruled that. And by the way, Negreanu changed what he claimed when the floor man came over. Negreanu changed it to say that he. Claimed he has to bump it up rather than just I, I have to pound. No, I have to pound it up. He said rather than what he really said, which was I think I have to pound you here. So it was ruled against Negreanu on that one. That was between him and Sean Deeb, and I, I watched this even though it was an old video, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if the two of them don't like each other as a result of this, or I wonder if they had history before this. I I wasn't really keeping up on who who likes who. But I wasn't aware of a feud between Negreanu and Sean Deeb. Though I think there had been words before between them. So I, I think, remembering now, I think that they don't like each other that much. But I, I don't know if it began there or what. But uh, So there's been a Twitter fight going on between Sean Deeb and, and Negranu. And it's getting nastier and nastier, and people want me to talk about it. Now, keep in mind, I, I'm trying to make sense of this now during the show. I'm producing the show during the show. And I see it has... Yeah, so it actually sprung from this markup argument. In fact, Sean Deeb, who's been anti-argument, like anti-markup, he's he's been calling out markup, which will that'll be a different topic we get to shortly. But Sean Deeb calls himself now on Twitter markup police, and uh, so there. This started with a discussion about markup, and. Uh, Let's see. Uh, so, so this started up on on April twenty fourth, just yesterday, and it started up. This at, at first had nothing to do with Negranu. And Sean Deeb said, "Listen, I know how obsessed with numbers and data you are, and you don't include your total buy-ins for these nine years. I'm guessing they'll show your minus EV, Alan Kessler." So he, he was. This is him actually calling out Kessler for posting a package with markup, and he's insisting that. 
Kessler is a negative expectation tournament player, and that even though Kessler is usually so obsessed with with numbers and data that that he's purposely suppressing this to, to prevent people from knowing he's a losing player. So then Daniel Ali responded. Uh, kind of in Kessler's defense, saying, Sean, way more than half the field in your average WSOP 10K needs to sell action in order to play. Hmm. Who do we know here that's, that sells action in the 10K events this year in order to play? Hmm. No, no anybody like that? By the way, if, if you want to buy action, 775-372-8355 and two 10K events. <laughs> I'm going to play it either way, though, whether I sell or not. But uh, he says, impossible for all these guys to be truly plus EV. How many of these players do you want to shut out of these tournaments? This is anti-growth and just straight bullying. So they went back and forth. I won't bother to read that whole thing. Uh, so then, uh, scrolling down here, this is where Negreanu got involved. And, and you can imagine, after I read you this, you'll see how this degenerated into a fight between the two of them on Twitter. Negreanu wrote, and this was actually just three hours ago. That's why I didn't see it. I was wondering how I missed this. It's because it just it just heated up three hours ago, and we started the show two hours ago. Negreanu wrote, this isn't all about protecting people. Because that, that's what the, the people who've been criticizing the markup claim, they're just trying to protect those buying events at markup that that a lot of the people aren't even close to being worth that markup. Maybe, maybe they, they're even a losing player in these tournaments, and that... Uh, they're just trying to protect the, the public. That's what some people are saying. So Negreanu is saying this is not all about protecting people. It's mean-spirited bullying. It's not altruistic in nature. It's solely designed to mock, shame, and embarrass people. It's shameful to attack a guy selling at, one, at 1.05 or 1.2. Just plain awful. So he's calling Sean Deeb's attacks bullying, mean-spirited, Plain awful. That the whole thing is to mock, shame, and embarrass people. So, Sean Deeb then responded. This is about two hours ago now. It's, it's happening as we speak, I, I believe here. So maybe more will happen after we're done with the segment. Sean Deeb wrote, Daniel, you've played with Alan for years. That's referring again to Alan Kessler. And... You have a good judgment of his skill. Uh, of his skill level. Are you going to buy his package by sh- by Are you going to buy his package by not buying your showing you agree it's a negative EV buy? Yes, we don't know for sure, but I think you and I would be pretty close to the right answer if we guessed. So Negreanu said back, I don't buy packages. I've never bought a package. I wouldn't buy your package no matter what the price. You're just being an asshole for the sake of being an asshole. Deep down, you know that you are. Oh, getting worse. Now, so far, I, I kind of agree with Negranu here, because uh, this seems to be just aimed at Alan Kessler, and there's so many people selling, and, and you know, Daniel Eli brought up a good point, there's so many people selling at markup for events where, especially smaller field events where it's pretty pro-heavy, there's no way everybody could be at an edge there. It's mathematically impossible. So there's obviously a lot of people who are selling at markup who aren't really playing with an edge. And it looks like just Kessler's being picked on here because he's an easy target. And if, furthermore, I don't really take the, well, if you, if you think he's a good buy, why aren't you buying it? That doesn't mean anything. You're not forced to buy someone. Maybe you just don't buy pieces of people. 
Maybe you just don't like doing that. Maybe uh, you don't want to induce the extra variance on your own or the extra expense on your own or it's just something you don't enjoy doing. You, just because you think maybe Kessler is what he's worth what he's charging doesn't mean that requires you to buy it. So, uh, so then Sean Deep says back, you were, ha- you were so happy to get Johnny Vibes action at 1.5. Negreanu comes back, that's not a package, it's a one-off for the main event, and I mostly did that to force you to put your money where your big mouth is anyway. You didn't. Your goal here is abusing and bullying people, because it's who you are, dude. Sean Deep comes back with, I am an asshole, but not a bully. I just don't sugarcoat shit, I'm not fake like you, and I don't screw over the community for my own financial stability like you. I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. Let's bet 250 k at the WhatsApp Player of the Year. Me or you, ignore any events over 100 k that's a he's throwing down the gauntlet here. Sean Deep saying he's going to do better in the World Series than according to the Player of the Year points between the two of them, excluding any events 100k or higher. But anything under 100k, whoever has the higher Player of the Year points will win 250k. Uh, Sean Deep threw down that challenge to Negranu. Do you think Negranu took the challenge? Here's the answer. Negranu says. This is about an hour ago now. We're getting closer to the present. I don't ever want to gamble with you. I don't trust you. You are by far the biggest angle shooter on the circuit today. The Puggy Pearson of your generation. I don't trust you not to angle shoot, nor do I trust that you won't cheat. Well, look, I'm not a big lover of these heads-up challenges over ego matters or or demands for cross-booking and demand uh, last longer bets and all this other crap. Like, if you want to do it for fun, fine. But I, I don't like seeing that as as the determination of who wins an argument. I think that's kind of crap. I, I don't I don't make those challenges myself. Uh, when people... It doesn't happen often. If anyone makes that challenge to me, I, I'm usually not going to take it. Just I, I don't... I think it's stupid. Uh, if, if some huge fish did where I'd be... I have a huge edge over them than I'd accept, but uh, anyone who's a reasonably good player, I'm not going to take that sort of thing. And I don't blame Negreanu for not wanting to play that. However, the, the I don't trust you is not really a good answer because this could be escrowed. This, this is a very public situation they have going on back and forth here. They could easily find someone they both trust to hold the 250K on both ends. And, and, it's, it, and it's very simple. It's whoever finishes with more player of the year points. It's not even like it has to be judged in any kind of subjective way. So he, he just needs to say, I think this is stupid, I don't settle things this way. To say, oh, I don't trust you is kind of a dumb excuse. But, uh, but uh, again, I say that th- it's a challenge that you shouldn't be expected to take. Well, Sean Deep says back, won't cheat, seriously. Daniel, you're as delusional as, as your Instagram posts. I don't know which post he's referring to. You angle shot me on TV, referring to the whole thing. Uh, oh, I guess maybe he did win that. Right? You, you angle shot me on TV and got away with straight up lying to the fake floor person. Just say you're scared and know you'll lose. So he's referring to that. I can actually, I think I can find that video pretty quickly and play that to you guys. Maybe that's why it was just posted somewhere recently. Because no, it couldn't be. I saw it a few days ago. I think it's just a coincidence. It's it's funny because yeah, here it is. It's 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 funny because I'm looking on this thread on two plus two about Negranu, and and I haven't looked at it yet. But the last post is from Mason Malmuth. You know, Mason's there to gloat. Mason loves gloating whenever Negreanu looks bad because he, he detests Negreanu. Daniel, reaching for more chips. I'm going to pound you back a little more. You know that's a string raise. 
I said I'm going to pound you back. That doesn't count as a What? Yeah. I'm going to pound you back counts as a raise? Yeah. <laughs> Are you going for five limps? He raised. Uh, this is like a, a cut in the video, so now that they're explaining to the floor man. I limped, he raised, and... Um, so I, I, I had the 1100 in one hand, and I said, I, and I said I'm going to pound it up a little more, put the 1100 in, and put the 3800 in. Yeah, I'm going to pound you up a little more, he claimed, and then it was he really said, I'm going to pound you back. So I don't know if Nick Reiner really didn't remember what he said or if he changed it for when the floor man claim, came, but that, I, I thought that he lost this argument, but, but Sean Deeb is claiming the floor man ruled in his favor. I don't know why he says the fake floor, but whatever. It's it, that, That's what they're referring to. Negreanu came back with, I watched with my own eyes as you angle shot an 80-year-old man. You did it again in a Raz tourney. I don't trust you. I have that right. Based on your character and reputation, I cannot trust that it's safe. I've seen you in action. I don't trust you. Hmm. Besides, this is this is an argument about skill. You are better than me and added the bonus of your... Uh, you are better than me and, and the added bonus of your willingness to, to angle... Uh, shoot 80 year old Rex gives you an even bigger edge this is about you being a bully and an asshole to Alan etc you are both I'm surprised that Grano would have said that that he thinks the Deeb is better than him I see what he's saying here is since you're willing to angle shoot people at the World Series even 80 year old recreational players and I'm not that gives you an edge in this type of bet so no I'm not playing I'm not going to bet with you that, that actually would have been a decent response but to say you're better than me I'm surprised he would have conceded that uh, but then he went on to say, this is about you being a bully and asshole to Alan, etc. You're both. Sean Deep came back. Alan is an asshole to almost all staff he encounters, an asshole to many players, and a terrible person to ever have at your table. Why would you defend him? Must because of your issues, be because of your issues with me. Now, let me stop there, because I know Alan Kessler. We're, we're not friends, but I talk to him sometimes, and we get along. Uh, I understand the criticisms of him. I have seen him be rude to other players unnecessarily. He's not really doing it to be a jerk. That's just kind of who he is. He just, you know, I I think you know Alan Kessler by now that uh, social graces aren't really his thing. He's not very good at them. But he doesn't mean badly. And I'll tell you a discussion that came up at the bike. He was at my table at the bike at an 08 event in November of 2018. And Alan had arguments with a few different people at the table over things. I, I won't bother to go into it. Some, some of it he was right. You know, one of the times he accused a guy of angle shooting, who probably was. Uh, other times, Alan criticized people's play when he lost hands, which he should have just kept his mouth shut. You know, when, when you, especially some of these people who beat him weren't very good and beat him in hand. So you just, okay, that's that's part of Turner and play. You, you want everybody to suck. Sometimes someone who sucks will put a horrible beat on you, and it's frustrating in a tournament, but you uh, you realize that's why you're there at the tournament, because of players like that person. So Alan sometimes can't control himself and, and makes comments, and he shouldn't do that. So anyway, after Alan busted from that tournament, there was a discussion at the table about him. And the conclusion at the table was that Alan is not a bad guy, that he has some a lot of social awkwardness to him and he doesn't uh he doesn't understand that some of the things he does are are not appropriate but that he actually is good for poker that he he fights very hard for the rights of poker players he's gotten rakes reduced he's gotten uh, that tournament fees reduced he he finds 
times when casinos or players are behaving dishonestly and calls it out. And that uh, that type of good that he does for the community, which he's doing just for everybody, not just for himself. He sees something he thinks is wrong and calls it out. And, and very often he's correct. Once in a while he's wrong. I've, I've seen it before where like, he'll bring things to me too because he knows I'll call them out also. But then I always have to double check because there have been a few times where it turns out he's totally in the wrong. And I don't know what – like I'm thinking, you know, what are you thinking here, Alan? But more, much more times than not, when he's bringing up a complaint about something, he's correct. And like very correct, not just like – marginally correct so this is someone who means well and and has done a lot of good things for poker but also sometimes acts inappropriately and acts rudely and it's just you have to take the good from the bad with the bad with him but uh he's not a bad person he's not an evil person he's not a quote terrible person like sean deep says he's not I understand the criticisms of him. I'm not going to say he's perfect or he's nice at the table or that uh, I, like, I can understand why some people dislike him. And I, anyone says they dislike Kessler, I'm not going to try to convince them to like him because I can see the reasons they dislike him. I don't dislike him, but I, I can see why people do. But at the same time, he's not a, a, a terrible person and he's he's done a lot of good too. So anyway, going on, I just wanted to throw that in there. He's been on the show before too, but that has nothing to do with why I'm... Uh, giving this opinion. So, Daniel Negreanu went on to say, oh, you mean like how you essentially called my fiancé a whore, then tried to cover it up as you trying to help me? You mean those issues? Like when you tweeted out how you we, you can't wait to see us divorced in two years? Like those issues? So here we go. I, I remember now that uh, when Negreanu announced his engagement to Amanda Leatherman at the beginning of 2019, remember he gave her the ring at a New Year's party? that uh, Sean tweeted out some critical things about this and even said he couldn't wait to see them divorced in two years. So so now Negreanu is bringing that out because Deeb was criticizing Alan, saying what a bad person he is, and he's saying, oh, yeah, well, what about you? How about you behaving this way? So Deeb wrote back saying, I never called her that. I just don't think your personality will last during marriage. You need to go on meds, maybe back to Choice Center. As... Well, as the poker lifestyle makes any marriage tough, so many pros are divorced, it's a tough job to be married to us. Now, that's kind of a cop-out here by by Deeb. I have to say that he was definitely criticizing Amanda and kind of laughing at the whole thing, saying, I can't wait to see the divorce in two years. It wasn't just about, oh, no, another poker player is getting married. It's not going to work. It wasn't one of those just general comments about poker players getting married and how it's hard, which, by the way, is true. It is true that, that uh, I don't I don't have the stats, but I'm guessing that, that professional poker players have a higher divorce rate than the general population and that poker is some of the reason for that. And I have kept that in mind with my own poker play. And with my own poker travels and things like that, then I, I always try to think about how this affects my relationship, and and also even how this affects my son. This is why I don't uh, I don't travel that much for poker anymore. That that's a big reason I don't travel. If if I was uh, if I didn't have a kid, and uh, especially if I was single then I would probably be, even though I'm not a tournament player as much, I would probably be traveling a lot more than I am for related to poker. But I, I I don't do that. I know I'm gone a lot for the World Series, and that's pretty much what I restrict it to. 
and usually other times when I'm gone, uh, it's traveling with the family. Not all the time, but uh, but the other ones tend to be short trips, where I'll leave for a few days and come back, but that's it. Even when I go to commerce, I try to do this at off hours where everybody's sleeping. And I also even try to do it to where when I go and then need to sleep all day because I stayed all night at commerce, that it's it's on a day that nobody's home anyway. Where she's at work, where uh, Benjamin's at school, so this way I can sleep and not disrupt anybody. So I, I you know, I I keep that in mind, and I think about other poker players who don't keep these things in mind, and that I, I understand why some of these marriages don't work. So yeah, but at least she's been around the poker industry. So I mean, that's not really, I think, a thing to throw out about that relationship. Right, and that's another thing. Yeah, that 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 she she has been around the poker industry since two thousand six, and uh, very familiar. And yeah, she's not going to say, "Oh, Daniel, why are you playing poker all the time?" Like yeah, she she knows what he's always done and and she's been part of it for so long so yeah and and that's not what sean was trying to say sean was definitely mocking the marriage and i understand some skepticism about this marriage for reasons i've already stated that that amanda definitely has shown gold digger tendencies throughout her time in the poker community there's no question about that whether she's within the grounding for that reason i don't know but that's a you know there there definitely is reason to suspect that here and, and it has been all the way back to when she first showed up in 2006. So I'm not saying that the criticisms of the marriage are not valid, but uh, but that's what Sean meant. He didn't mean, oh, it's just hard to be married in poker. That's, that's BS. So so then Negrana says, I have the text written by you, dude. I know what you said. You said it in a group chat. Sean says back, please show me the screenshots, as I don't remember saying it. Then there's no screenshot, but he actually he, he posted the quote, Negrana, quote, he shouldn't marry her. She's going to ruin him. <laughs> you, you say this about a woman you don't know and have never met. What exactly do you think people take away from that in addition to you wishing divorce upon us? Uh, and so then he says, are you sure I wasn't talking about these two other people? I'm not sure. Put there, D- Daniel Weinman and Marissa Puzan. I don't even know who they are. And yeah, let's see. Let me... Let me go on here. Let's figure this out. Uh, I think that's it for the moment. I think I think that's where we are. Let's see if I can find anything that's been tweeted since I uh, first loaded this, as this is an ongoing thing. I could sit here all night reading this. <laughs> this is, a, but uh, you notice that Grano does get into a lot of these different Twitter slap fights. And yes, there's a lot of people who troll him. So I will say that you can't just blame the person getting trolled for responding. I'm never going to be that guy saying if everybody's trolling you, you've got to stay silent. I mean, it's a, especially if it's players that are also well-known. It's easier to stay silent if some random that nobody follows trolls you. But Sean Deeb has a lot of followers, so when he trolls Negreanu, yeah, I can see Negreanu wanting to respond. But he, he does get into a lot of drama, and... Let's see here. Uh, yeah, there's there's more to this, but uh, I'm going to stop soon. Negrano says, "Good luck trying to convince anyone uh, who's played a hundred hand." Oh, so he's t- they're talking now about the, uh, uh, the the hand I just played you that was on TV that time with the angle shoot. 
uh, Negreanu saying that this is actually an angle suit by Deeb because he knew very clearly what he was trying to raise and just tried to stop him from raising on a technicality. He said, good luck trying to convince anyone who's played a hundred hands of stud in their lifetime what you, th- what you did wasn't a greasy angle shot. Oh, he's talking about some other, some other thing. Uh, no pro would ever back you on this in a Raz pot where you have ace four versus jack three and reach for chips. Your defending is more proof. Okay, I, I'm not going to get all this. I, I don't want to dissect this this hand here. But you, you can go take a look. You can go take a look and see all this. Uh, uh, sniping back and forth. And the grounder now accusing Deeb of being an angle shooter. But the grounder's really getting to just so many Twitter fights these days with people. And some of them I understand. He's getting trolled. He's getting criticized. He's getting attacked by by other pros. I, I understand responding, but then there's the things like last week where he was saying that the GPI awards that were rigged. You don't have to say things like that. That, that. That's where you keep your mouth shut. That's where you don't pick fights unnecessarily over stupid rumors like that. You just keep your mouth shut in those those spots. And uh, even when people troll you, you you've got to kind of. Stay uh, more calm, but this has really gotten worse ever since the Doug Polk thing started. Ever since Doug Polk went after him, it kind of made it more fashionable to to bash Negranu. And I don't mean that Doug turned people against him, but Doug kind of made it cooler to do. Kind of made people more comfortable to attack Negranu, who at one point was pretty popular in poker. But uh, Doug kind of successfully made him look like a fool in some ways. And then it kind of became cool to attack Negranu. So now other pros who, who never liked Negranu very much are getting in on it too. And I said I said on two plus two this week in this Negranu thread. We're pretty much it's pretty much a bash Negranu thread. It's, it's, it's mainly it's called like the Negranu containment thread, but it's really like the Negranu bashing thread. And Negranu doesn't even post there anymore. But I posted there that I understand why people don't like him. I understand why. People have criticism of him. I've there, there's definitely situations where he didn't act right in recent times, but he doesn't deserve the level of hate he gets. He is good for poker. He is very nice to Rex at the table. Even people who are fans on the outside, he he uh, uh, he's very likable to recreational players. He hasn't scammed anyone. So, and he's and he's been in it the longest. Yeah, you know, of most people. I mean, he, you know, I used to see him at the Mirage in the mid nineties. Right, right. He goes way back playing yeah. Hold'em. You know, he really worked his way up. And yeah. he's, you know, uh, you know, these guys, I think, need to have respect. Yeah, it, right. And, the and Sean Deems of the world is. Yeah, you know. and it, as I said, just kind of, kind of more fashionable to attack him and while I, I agree with some of the criticisms of him in recent times I'm not saying that th- this is not all valid some of it is valid some of it I feel isn't but I, I think he just gets way more hate than he deserves like there's there's so many poker pros who deserve like 10 times the hate he deserves and aren't getting it they're not even getting the same amount of hate he, now yeah I know he's a big figure in poker a very very well-known name and they're more likely to get attacked than the uh the nobodies, but or even the the semi known players, but he, but I really felt that ever since Doug Polk set his sights on him, and those two never got along. That, that goes back years. I don't even know the beginning of it, but they, it's been years, and they, they haven't liked each other. But but in, in like the last two years, where Polk's been hammering him, and then he's, he's even had the 
skill, the video skills of uh, Seriously Serious helping out, which is which is very effective. You know, Seriously Serious is very effective at this stuff. So having Seriously Serious producing these things and putting these things together is uh, is very effective, and it's worked. It, it worked. I mean, this is someone Polk never liked him, and saw things that he figured the public would latch on to. Things like more rake is better and. Other stupid things Negreanu said, and he just hammered it so hard over and over and over again that this got into people's minds. And like, I'm on Facebook, and I get these ads, these targeted ads for like Negreanu's master class or whatever. And I go look at the comments, and it's just full of trolling. Oh, look, yeah, are we going to learn that more rake is better? <laughs> like, Polk really did a good job getting this in everybody's head, and and now it's become kind of fashionable to troll Negreanu, and and that's. I I just think he gets way more than he deserves here, and uh, that's I cover all his issues on this show because it's interesting. But I'm not covering it from a place of hate. I'm I'm, I'm really covering it like this is a big name in poker, and look what's happening. And uh, I th- I think I'm very fair about it, and, and I'm being very fair right now. And I'm not. Uh, I've had people criticize. I've had people send me angry messages who who hate Negroni and say, "Oh, why are you kissing his ass?" And I go, "No, I'm not." Like. <laughs> I'm not kissing his ass, and I, I've I've called him out when I disagree with him. I just did that last week. I just think he gets too much hate. Okay, so we're going to move on. That was our, our hidden topic. Thank you, Beer and Poker, for bringing that up. Three-bet poker clothing. Have you seen that advertised in the hallways of the Rio when you've been there to play Trader Risky? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd seen them. I've seen the pros wearing it. In fact, I had someone sitting next to me wearing three-bet poker clothing in 2013. It was Greg Mueller, who was one of their pros, was wearing three-bet clothing, sitting right next to me at the 5K Limit Hold'em event, or I made the final table. Uh, I never knew much about it, and I never bothered to research it. They had a booth at the World Series for many straight years. I saw that there were a number of pros on their roster, and... I knew it had something to do with poker clothing, and it said three bet on there, and I, I never really looked much more into it. But here's here's a message that was put out. I'm not sure where, but this was a message that was put out. A message from the owners to our customers. Making a tough fold is the hardest thing to do in poker. Come on. That's... <laughs> Don't don't go there. I mean, it's just I, I hate those really really lame poker analogies. You're a poker clothing company that's aimed at poker players. You don't. This is the type of thing you say to someone who like barely knows about poker, and they may laugh. Oh, tough fold. You know, like that you fold in poker. A poker player, whether recreational or pro, is going to cringe at a, a comment like that. Anyway, that's going on. Making a tough fold is the hardest thing to do in poker, and today we're making a tough fold. 3-Bet will be closing its doors for good in the coming weeks. This is just a few days ago, by the way. Our mission from day one was to always give poker players another way to further connect with the game we all love. And while we're disappointed to be moving on, we're proud to have accomplished that goal for thousands and thousands of players around the world for the last six-plus years. We hope you wore your 3-Bet gear with as much pride as we took in making it. Now, let's stop here. There's not much more to the statement, but let's stop here anyway. Look what they're saying here. Our goal was to give poker players another way to further connect with the game. What does that even mean? Their their goal was to make clothing and become a big brand of poker clothing and make money. That was their goal. Not not to 
have players that I don't even understand what they're trying to say here. How how can you connect with the game if you're wearing clothing that says three bet on it? I, I don't I don't know what that means. Is there a lifestyle brand, Jeff? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and, 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 you just point to your hat. I don't wonder if that's like act. You know, if that's considered action. <laughs> yeah, would, would Negreanu do that? Where, where Sean D raises him and Negreanu just points to his hat saying three bet. And then, then he does the string raise, and and he goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That doesn't mean it's a three bet." Well, no, I pointed to my hat. This says three bet. That would be uh, actually it'd be better for Helmuth to do that. Helmuth is really is one of their pros, and 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 I had that problem with Helmuth. You know, he did a thumbs up. He could have pointed to his hat. You're right. You're right, Trader Ruski. Maybe that maybe that's what he's going to do next time. Well, he not, I guess not because they're going out of business. But if they weren't at this World Series, he could have just pointed to his hat, and I could have gotten him again with the floor man. I'm I'm one and no lifetime against Helmuth and floorman complaints. Actually, that's not true. I'm one and one. I started off zero and one in 2009, where I was. Yeah, I was going to say when you. Yeah, because they shut you up. Right, right. I was at the main event. I was hassling him on TV about Ultimate Bet, and they they he complained to the floorman, and the floorman uh, shut me up and said I can't mention it again, or I'm going to get a penalty, and the penalty would have busted me because I was short stacked, so I had to shut up. So that was uh, he 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 won that one. He won that one, but years later I got him back on that thumbs up thing. So we're one and one. Okay, I'm I'm looking to go two and one this year. Anyway, going on here. Uh, thank you to all our customers and fans, and thank you to the poker community for the support. It's been a great ride. We hope that you take advantage of our clearance sale and load up on great three bed gear one last time. As they say in poker and and in entre- entrepreneurship, on to the next one. Best of luck at the tables. So let's take a look at their site. If you go to 3bet.com, that's the number 3 and then bet. Very easy. Number 3 and then bet.com. It says, 3bet is folding. A message to you from the owners. Final clearance sale. 50% off everything. Everything already marked down 50%. When an item is gone, it's gone forever. Gear up in 3bet one last time. All sales final. No refunds, returns, or exchanges. So these prices listed here are... The marked down price, so the original price, which probably was the real price. I don't think they're BSing here. I think this really is marked down. I, I didn't bother to look at the historical site, but uh, you know what? I'm going to do it. I, I, I'm going to do it. Produce the show during the show. I'm going to go to a, to archive.org and go to 3bet.com and see what I can find for this clothing here. Let's see. Let's go to 2018. Uh, let's see. Uh, December 8th. December 8th, 2018. Archive.org. Is, maybe, maybe World Series time would be better. Is that the Wayback Machine? Is that, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Archive.org. Archive.org. Well, actually, let me see here. Um, it may be more than 50% off. Is I'm seeing $30. No, they're right. Okay, it, it is 50% off. Okay. Because they right. might add Christmas sales too in December. That's some yeah. reason why I no, it looks like it, it, it looks like it is fifty percent off. At first, I was thinking it was actually more than fifty percent off. But yeah, I was, like these, most of the T-shirts here are eleven dollars now, and they were twenty-two dollars on that uh, on archive.org from December eighth. So yeah, it, well, I'll assume there it really is fifty percent off. It looks like it is. So these are shirts that it doesn't look like these are very professionally made. A few of them do, but but a lot of them kind of look like very Cafe Press-ish. If you know what Cafe Press is, that's where you can just go on a site and upload an image and they just put it on a blank t-shirt and you can buy it. So it's a very easy way you can make shirts. They're not cheap, but... Uh, uh, and people will sometimes put together Cafe Press sites. In fact, 
Neverwin Poker, one of the very first things it sold in 2004 when it first went up, were these cafe press shirts that Micon had you know, just uploaded the graphics for, and they were selling. They even had hats and shirts, and even like a, a, a shirt for your dog. And this is—it's just—it's marked up big time because Cafe Press has to get their share, and then the person who is selling it through Cafe Press has to get their share. So it makes these everything just way more expensive than it should be. So it kind of looks like the same quality, but this is maybe it's just these pictures maybe they, they actually look better on a real shirt but here but, but these are shirts you wouldn't wear if you're any kind of serious poker player i don't even mean a poker pro like some of these things are just kind of lame to be wearing if you're at all a regular poker player probably the best of all of them is the one that it has the word limpers and with an x through it that's probably the least lame of all the shirts but then there's another one Min cashing like a boss. <laughs> Another one which says poker exclamation mark, but it's very clever because the spade is being used for the O in poker. <laughs> Here's another one. You know the iPhone, it's lowercase i and then capital P for phone. Here instead of iPhone, it says I grind. <laughs> Then there's one that just says 3-bet. Then there's one that says um, one time, and the time is is with uh, the one for an I in the word time. (laughs) But don't bother with that one. That one's sold out. And, you know, when it's gone, it's gone. Then, oddly, there's a Live at the Bike hat being sold, and that one actually looks fairly good. There's a Live at the Bike hat they were selling. I don't know how that has to do with any of this, but... uh, that's been sold out. I bet I could get one for free from the Hanson kid, though. I should ask him for that. Well, I don't know. I probably, probably wouldn't wear it, but uh, just to have it. I, I do have an LAPC hat that I got from Matt Savage. I appreciate that. Matt Savage likes this show, by the way. I don't know how often he listens, but he, he's, he's aware of it and he likes it. Uh, no coolers. That's actually not a, that's not a terrible shirt. Either. It says no coolers, and it's it's uh, the O L E R S and coolers is like in against a blue background, and the nose in a bl- black background. It, it, the one kind of looks okay. There's another one that just says stacked. <laughs> the next one says I float, in the same way like iPhone I float. That's another dumb one. How about this one? Eat, play, love poker. <laughs> Come on. And then poker again is with a spade for the O. Then there's bink exclamation mark written in, in kind of like a rainbow. <laughs> then there's I don't chop. Then there's seven slash two. Now that one's not that bad either. See, ones that aren't like like just blatant poker jokes or poker references in your face are, I think are just really lame. Like I don't chop or I grind. I just think it's lame. Seven slash two, it's not like card seven dues. You know, it's referring to seven dues offsuit, but it's like seven and then like a stylized slash and then two. That's that's not bad. That's that's a little more subtle and more interesting. And that's actually one of the more professional looking shirts too. This this might be the worst one though. A shirt that says Helmuth twenty twenty, referring to the presidential race, 
make checking in the dark great again. <laughs> then the, the last one, Helmuth 2020, I can dodge bullets, baby. That's not even his phrase, right? Isn't, isn't, isn't that, or is, is it from Helmuth? Did he say that or was it Scotty Wen? Who made that up? No, I think that might have been Helmuth. Oh, it's, Okay. Still, I mean, who's going to wear that shirt? Well, but I can't imagine why they went out of business. Yeah, well, that one's been sold out. That one, someone bought. Now, no one's bought the Helmuth Make Checking in the Dark Great Again shirt, so you can still buy that for eleven bucks. Then there's various hats that just say three B or three bet on them. Most of those have been sold out. There is a beanie you can still buy. It says three bet for ten dollars. There's a three bet logo men's red hoodie for twenty four dollars, which means it was forty eight at one point. A lightweight navy blue blue hoodie, or navy blue hoodie, which is $38, which means it was 76 at one point. They had a lot of different poker pros. There's uh, 10 different pros repping this. Among them, Phil Helmuth, the best well-known one. Also, Antonio Esfandiari, Brian Rast, Jonathan Little... Uh, Greg Mueller, and uh, actually there, there are six, there are eleven, and uh, six other pros who are not quite as well known. So, what do you think they were paying them, Jeff? That's the good, other than free gear. That's the good question. I definitely nobody knew. Like Helmuth's not going to say, "Oh wow, I get three bed gear." Okay, you know, sign me up. Like Helmuth, he's not going to come that cheap. So, I think they probably talked these pros into doing it for a percentage of ownership. But like they, they would wear this stuff at final tables. Now Helmuth wasn't wearing this all the time at final tables. He, he, he wore other things. But uh, but I would see like Greg Mueller. He wore it at the final table with me, and I've seen other guys here wearing it. So they, they were definitely wearing these clothes when they were on TV. Most of them, and they must have felt they were getting something out of it. But I'm guessing they were just given some kind of percentage ownership, and that's also part of the reason they wanted to promote it. Here's a commercial. I'm not sure where it aired, or if it aired at all, where Phil Helmuth was promoting this clothing. It says Phil Helmuth. And it shows him like kind of walking outside. Now he's driving a, 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 a blue sports car really fast. He's getting out of the car wearing three-bed clothing. He's doing various shots of Helmuth here. Now it's, now it's showing him pushing chips all in. Oh, here it is. Feel like a pro? Win. Like a pro. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Here, let me go back to three bet. Feel like a pro, win like a pro. <laughs> He's trying so hard to sound serious here. He's trying so hard to sound like not like he usually sounds. Three bet. Something. What is it? Play like a pro, win like a pro. What did he say again? Let's hear it again. Feel like a pro, win. Oh, feel like a pro. Like a pro. Three bet. Feel like a pro, win like a pro. He's trying so hard to put on his like serious announcer face there. So I wonder, I wonder if he actually got paid or if he just owned part of it. I wonder if this company ever made money. Maybe because see, this is what's making me wonder. Uh, did they really just buy a lot of inventory up front? Like, like how how high could their overhead be other than that booth at the World Series that costs some money? But other than that. Where's the overhead, really? They make money on each shirt. They don't have to stock them all. 
they could where they could they could buy a few to stock and then uh, only stock the ones that really sell well, and the rest they can keep just a few of them around and then reorder. I would think this would be a pretty cheap business to maintain. Maybe that's how it survived for six plus years. Uh, I I had always seen things like this and wondered like how many of these are really selling. Because it's not like I walked around the World Series and saw a lot of recreational players wearing this stuff. I, I basically didn't see anyone wearing this stuff except for the pros who were promoting it. And I think it's just because I think if it was at these prices, it, it it probably would have sold better. But they probably couldn't have made much money at these prices. This is just the prices to get rid of it. But I I just don't see that many poker players paying twenty two dollars for a t shirt saying I grind or poker with exclamation mark or or Phil Helmuth in 2020 like I just I don't see it I don't see enough of this happening that's why I hope at the very least that uh, this is weird hold on a second Trader Risky I'm going to try something totally unrelated tell me if you can hear this Did you hear that? Nope. Damn it. I accidentally did something on Skype where it's asking if I want to share my screen, which I'm not trying to do. But then it also said share computer sound. Oh, I think I'd have to share the screen and the computer sound. But I wonder if that's I wonder if that's the solution. I'll, I'll have to see if... I think this is a new version of Skype. I'm going to have to screw with this later and see if if by sharing the screen... Which I guess I'll do with you. It's not like I have something to hide. And if I do, I think you'll keep my secrets. If you see like some kind of sick porn in the background, you're not going to tell everybody. I'll make sure to close it first anyway, but just in case. Uh, but, but here, I'm going to try this. I'm going to I'm going to share my screen. Please don't tell anybody what you see here. I'm going to play it again. This this may be our solution to where you can hear the sounds. Skype's making progress here. Okay, tell me if you can hear this. <laughs> you hear it? I heard it. Wow, it worked. Do you see my screen? Nice, I do. Wow, okay. Well, aside from now having uh, everything open and exposed to you, I wonder if other people come on if they'd it'd be shared with them. I don't care about you. I just don't know if I want every listener seeing my screen. But uh, aside from that, now I can hear the sounds. Okay, that's, all right, Skype, making some progress here. I don't have to throw it away just yet. What is that Fist Fest 2019 reservation? Hey, 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 hey. Oh, so, oh, sorry. I thought we were in this private line. No, 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 no. I'm going to go back and edit that. All right. Let's uh, let's go back to the, the, the agenda here. So, I don't know where I am now. Look what he did to me. Uh no, three bets. So they, they, I lost my agenda, but I'll bring the agenda back up, and we're going to move on. Three bets gone. I don't think these. This was ever a really viable idea to make much. They may have made a little at some point, but uh, the most fascinating thing to me is how much the pros were compensated, and probably not much. I, th- I think Phil, Phil Helmuth didn't get his money's worth. All righty, I want to talk about the markup debate, which I probably should have done right after the Negranu discussion because that would have fit in better, but you know how it goes. I am selling my tournament package at markup, and uh, I...
I have for ever since I've been – one year I didn't sell it. One year I sold only like a 10K event at no markup, and then I got sick and didn't play it. So I actually just refunded everybody right back. That was like nine years ago. But uh, aside from that, I, I since I've started selling events, I think it was in 2011 – it's always been at markup, and I was doing 1.2 or very close to 1.2. When I say very close, sometimes like a tiny bit less. Like uh, both last year and this year, I was selling at 1.976, but I actually this year lowered it for the 10K events to only 1.15. And uh, people sell at markup, they like to say, well, because they think they have an edge on the field. But everybody thinks they have an edge on the field. This is a very common thing in poker where everybody thinks they're better than they are. It, it's very rare to come on a poker player who actually thinks they're worse than they are. In fact, most poker players don't even have a completely accurate assessment of their skill level. I always like to say, if you're at the poker table and you're evaluating the players there, if you think someone is a huge fish, they're probably a huge fish. If you think someone is uh, a fish but not a huge fish, uh, you're again probably right. If you think someone is kind of uh, a semi-donk, someone who's not terrible but uh, but still kind of a fish, uh, you're probably right, but you may be underestimating them. They may be better than you think. They may be playing kind of an unorthodox style, which actually does better than you realize. If you think someone is just okay, they're probably better than okay. They're probably fairly good. If you think somebody is a little worse than you, they're probably about the same as you. If you think someone's about the same as you, they're probably better than you. If you think someone's a little better than you, they're probably a lot better than you. That's, that's that's really the rule of thumb you should use at the table. And I use this for myself when I evaluate people at the table. Uh, if I think, you know what, I think this guy is, is pretty good, but I think I'm a little bit better than him, I stop, I go, I guess that probably means we're about the same. <laughs> I'll, actually, I'll actually think that because I'll realize there's always this bias where you give yourself more credit. Now, there are times where you can be more down on yourself than you deserve, where you've had a bunch of losing sessions in a row and you start to doubt yourself. You go, you know what? I think maybe I've just been, I'm just terrible and I've just gotten lucky all this time not losing all my money. And then now it's showing the truth and I'm just awful. But then I stop and realize like, okay, but then there's other times I think I'm great because I'm just winning every hand and winning every session. And that's just because I'm running really well. So, Take away when you're running really well or running really poorly, when you're kind of average, you know, the, the way per, you perceive it. But you, you tend to still overestimate your skill. And tournament players do that a lot when they assess what their skill is compared to the field. Why? Because you have to justify why you're playing the tournament. Now, if you're a total recreational player, you can justify it by saying, I just enjoy this. I, I know I'm kind of a fish, but I enjoy it. Maybe I'll get lucky and win, and it's 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 worth it to to play with the, the the average player having an edge over me because I can still get lucky and win. And, uh, you know, just like I'll play in the casino when the casino has an edge over me, you may think. So th- then you can justify it. But if you're a poker pro and you enter a tournament where you're an underdog to the field, then how do you justify playing? Especially because there's rake taken out of the tournament. So even if you're a completely average player, in the field, 
your negative expectation because of the rake. So the only way to justify in your own mind that you should be playing this tournament is to say, well, I have an edge over the average player in the field. You don't have to think you're the best player, but you, you can say, well, I, I think I have an edge where over time in this field, if I were to play it a million times, I would, I would win tw- uh, 20%. So therefore, I think it's fair to mark up what I'm selling at 20%. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with what that means... There's various ways other people can buy you into a poker tournament. There's staking, where other people put up the money. And uh, usually in staking, they're putting up the full buy-in for you. And then you're getting some percentage of it that's agreed upon beforehand. But if you lose, you're not losing the money. So they're taking all the risk, and you're getting all the reward. But in order to get the reward, you have to be up overall. And you only get a certain percentage of the reward. If you're down overall, then you're in something called makeup, where everything you win goes directly to the backer and you get nothing until you get into the positive, and then you start getting your agreed-upon percentage. So that's called staking. But when you're selling pieces, it's a different story, because you're not being staked. You're actually selling percentages of yourself off in the event. So let's say you're in a $1,000 event. If there's no markup, each 1% of you should cost $10. But... If there's markup, then you're selling it for more. So a 20% markup would be $12 per 1% being sold. Because that's 10% times 1.2. 1.2 is kind of the average accepted markup where you can do it without people really raising eyebrows too much. And that's been the way it has been for many years. That any decent player who sells at 1.2 isn't going to really get a hassle. There's been fish, or, or you know, there's been pe- people who are known to be not very good that are nevertheless known in poker for some reason, and they sell for 1.2 or more, and people will laugh at it. But anybody who's seen as you know, somewhat competent that sells for 1.2, even if they're not really worth 1.2, they don't. They, up until this year, they haven't really gotten much flack, and. I was selling at 1.2, but but not completely for the same reasons that everybody else was selling at 1.2. And I state my reasons. I, I try to be as transparent as possible with selling pieces right up front before I even sell them so people understand why they're buying pieces of me and, and why they shouldn't buy pieces of me. Because I don't want anyone to buy pieces of me under false pretenses. And I'm not saying this just to sound good. Like, I put it out there because I really want people to buy for the reason that I'm selling it. And if they aren't, then then they're making a mistake. But the reason that most people sell it... Well, okay, so let's let's get into that. Why do people sell pieces? There's a few reasons. One is the reason I do for variance control, where maybe they don't play tournaments that often. Maybe the total buy-in of all the tournaments they're going to play is a lot of money. It would really affect their poker results for the year if, uh, if they don't do well. So that, that's one reason. That's the reason I do. I, I'm not a regular tournament player. I basically play the World Series and very few other tournaments. So uh, I'm a cash player, so I, I don't want that much money worth of tournaments to be uh, determining how I'm doing in poker that year. And uh, since I don't play as high as I used to, it, it would take a while to dig out of that hole if I didn't sell any pieces of myself. Could I afford to play? Yes. Would I play? Yes. But uh, would it hurt more if I have a bad series? Yes. 
then there's the flip side of it. If I have a good series, then I'm, I'm giving some of it away, and that's that's the way it is. And like uh, you know, in 2013, when I cashed over 50k at the 5k event, at the 5k limit hold'em, I wasn't. Dis- I actually had, I did, I sold more than I wanted to. I think I sold 55 percent. I intended to sell 40 percent, and somehow I sold 55. So yeah, I gave away 55 percent of it. But uh, you know, that, that's what happened. I, I sold that, and that's. I won, so uh, that's that's the way. I didn't feel disappointed at all. I, I thought, great, I won, and I'm glad I won for the, for the people I was playing for. But but anyway, um, that's one reason people sell. Another reason people sell is because they absolutely cannot afford to play unless people buy from them. They just don't have the bankroll to play, and if they don't sell themselves, then they they just simply cannot enter. So those those tend to be the main two reasons people sell pieces. There's a third reason just because they like having others having an interest in their play, and that's actually part of what I'm doing too. I enjoy that people follow this, that people are kind of rooting for me, that others have an interest in my action, that people who listen to this show have an interest in my action. It just feels good. So I, I, I like that as well. I, I like uh, doing it. I like the fact that some people enjoy it. So... Then there's the justification. I just talked about why people do it, but how do they justify the markup that they're charging? And almost always, the justification is, I'm a very good player, and therefore I'm better than the field enough to where a 20% markup is justified. Because on average, that's what I'll make, if you take out all the variance from it. Well, I, I think in most cases, that's actually not true. To justify a 20% markup for your skill alone, you have to be really, really good. Especially in some of the tougher events like the 10Ks. But even at the big field, like 1500 no limits, $10,000 no limit events, even after that, like the 1500 limit hold'em for me, where they're 100% for sure I have an edge on that. If I could play the 1500 limit hold'em uh, every day, I would do well. I would definitely be profitable in that, even after the World Series rake. There's, there's no question. But uh, yeah, there's events where I don't have as big of an edge as in that one. So the 10K events, there's a lot of really good players. There, there's actually a surprising number of fish there too, but there's also a lot of really good players. And to have much of an edge in that is is very tough to have. To have enough of one to be 1.2 markup, to really have that be the markup that you're worth, I, I don't know if anybody has that in those type of events. Maybe some of the very best tournament players do, but most people don't, because you're really up against a lot of really good players there. So once the fish fall out, then it's, it's you against the other good players, and then really, at that point, it becomes who, who runs the best. And that's actually why I lowered mine to 15% this year. Because I said, you know, I, I, I can charge 1.2 and people will pay it, but I, I just don't feel right doing it anymore. So there's been people like Sean Deeb and others, not just him, who have been calling out the markup situation. In Sean Deeb's case, he was doing it to Kessler, but there's been people doing this on Twitter for weeks now because the World Series is coming up. They've been doing this for weeks, trying to shame people either specifically by name or just in general for charging this type of markup when it's not really justified for most people. And I'll agree for for most people they are overcharging the markup 
compared to what they're worth. But there's other factors that are being ignored here that the anti-markup people are complaining about without real justification, in my opinion. First of all, there's no scam involved here. There may be some delusion. There may be some incorrect self-assessment, but uh, as long as you're really playing the events you claim you're going to play, as long as you really show up attempting to play your best, as long as you're not dumping chips off or anything shady like that or selling more than 100% of yourself, as long as you're playing it honestly and the way that you say you're going to play and you just are overestimating your skill for the markup, there's no way to do an absolute analysis on what your skill really is. So this is just an estimate you do for yourself, and those buying a piece of you decide for themselves whether you're worth it. Maybe there's people buying a piece of you because they think you're better than others give you credit for. Maybe they think you're better than you give yourself credit for. Maybe they just have a feeling about you this year you're going to get lucky. So there could be a lot of reasons people buy you at that markup that are not uh, ones that you have to justify with, with your overall results or defense of your skill. You're saying, I think I'm worth this. Whoever wants to buy a piece of me at 20% markup can, and whoever doesn't, don't. Now, if you were to frame it in a way to trick people into buying pieces of you, oh, it's guaranteed I'm going to win this year, there's no way I could lose, or I'm, I'm so much ahead of the field that it's almost impossible for me to lose. If you say things like that to get people to buy pieces of you, that's, that's really shady, and then I think you should be called out. But if you're just saying, here's my package, I'm selling at 1.2 markup, or 1.3 markup, or 1.4 markup, the latter of which are way too high, but if, if you do that, people may laugh at you if you're over-marking up your, uh, what you're selling, especially if it's more than what the standard markup is for, for most poker pros. But if people buy it, and they understand why they're buying it, and they understand everything and still do it, then fine. Then there's no scam. Just like if you go to the store and see an overpriced product and buy it, that's not a scam either. You're just paying too much for something, but you knowingly do it. It's very similar. So there shouldn't be all this markup shaming, unless that person is really, really trying to portray themselves in a way they're not. Now, I would understand if someone who is pretty well known to be and not a very good player, is puffing their chest out on Twitter, bragging about they're one of the best players out there, and that's why their markup's justified, then I would understand calling them out, saying, wait a minute, no, you're not. But if someone just says, here's my package, and the markup's 1.2, or even higher, then let them put it out there. And then whoever wants to buy it can, whoever doesn't, won't. You also don't know if people buying the package, they're not doing it as a favor. Maybe they like that person. They think, they think they're nice. Maybe they play with them live and really like them. Maybe that person's done a favor for them before. Um, I'll give you an example. I don't know if for sure this is why he did it, but uh, there was a guy we had on our show, uh, Eric Sonstegard, who got ripped off at the Rio when they double-checked in his room, and the second guy who came into his room, through no fault of his, they gave the guy his room, double-checked it in, 
the second person came in and stole from him, stole his iPad, stole cash out of there, and, and the, the Rio would not fully compensate him for it. And I had him on this show, and I gave him advice, and and I helped publicize the matter, and the Rio, partially as a result of the show, backed down and gave him everything. And you know, they when they called the guy back in who stole it, they got the guy to give back some of it, but the guy claimed there was only like $1,000 cash, not 3000 cash. So the Rio didn't want to make up the other 2 k They eventually did, partially because he appeared on this show. So this guy was very, as Eric Sansegard, he was very grateful for this, for being on the show and for my assistance with this and, and the show's assistance, that that year he bought a piece of me in the World Series. Now, I don't know if he thought maybe I was a good value anyway, but there's a good chance he didn't care. There's a good chance he just bought it because he said, oh, here's the guy who had me on his show and helped publicize the Rio screwing me, and I got my money partially because of that. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be nice and buy a piece of this guy. Like uh, there, there can be reasons like this all over the place that have nothing to do with me, where you buy a piece of someone because you like them. So there can be many reasons someone buys a piece, and it doesn't have to be their raw skill or chance to win the event. And that's that's why I don't think that there should be the markup shaming. Uh, now, why do when I sell my World Series? And by the way, the, the package two, the one for the 10K events, is still available at a 15% markup. I'm playing two of them, so each each 0.5% is $115. These are getting two 10K events. And if you want that, text me at 775-372-8355. But uh, I state to people beforehand that I'm not claiming that I'm worth that markup skill-wise. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but I'm not claiming to be. What I claim is that I will show up to the events. I'm not going to oversell. I'm going to get enough sleep. I'm not going to do any drugs or alcohol because I never do before the event. I never do that stuff anyway. That I'm going to try my best to win at all times. I'm not going to soft play anybody. Not going to do anyone any favors. Every event I'm going to approach like I really want to win it and play my best. Some days I'll naturally be better than others, but uh, I'm always going to try my best. And that I'm going to give everybody a very detailed update throughout. That I'm going to be tweeting out my chip stack, interesting hands I'm part of, other interesting things that happen at the table that I'm not part of, notable players sitting with me, notable things happening at the event or in the room. Uh, at the end of day one, if I make day two, I, I put up a little reports about how the day went, about where I'm sitting the next day and who I'm sitting with, what my mindset is coming into the next day. So when you buy a piece of me, you're feeling like you're there with me. I, I probably give the most detailed reports live and after of each event I play compared to anybody. I, I don't know anybody who who does it more detailed than I do. And I do that because I know the people want it. I know that the people who buy pieces of me, many of them are in other states, other countries, and they can't be at the World Series. And, and the closest they can come to playing is, is playing through me, is buying a piece of me and I play for them, basically. And I, I want them to feel like they're sitting right next to me watching when I do it. That's, that's why I put that out there. That's why I have a separate Twitter account, Dandruff Poker, to do that with. And, and that is part of what I'm selling here. That's part of what entices people to buy pieces of me 
rather than anybody else. And also, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to rip you off. You know, if I if I cash, you're getting the money. You know, if I cash, hundred percent, I'm not running off with it. So I'm selling that too. And that's important stuff to know. Now, what I'm not including in my markup, but I could be, are my expenses. And that, that, that debate came up too. Some people were saying, you can't include your expenses in your markups. You know, so what if you're staying at a hotel? So what if you're having to buy restaurant food every day that's marked up? So what if you have travel expenses? That doesn't matter. You can't pass that along to the people buying pieces of you. Of course you can. These are real costs in playing the event, just like the tournament fee is a cost in playing the event. So if you're in a $1,000 event and only 900 is going to the prize pool, like at the World Series, you're really entering a 900 event and paying 100 to the casino in expenses to play. But that's still a real $100 out of your pocket. You're, you're paying 1000 to play an event where 900 goes into the prize pool. So yes, you have a right to charge for that 100 just like you have a right to charge for reasonable expenses that you have to be there above and beyond what it would cost normally to live day-to-day life. Like for food, you're not going to go all day not eating at home. So you can't just say, I'm going to charge all the food, but you can say, well, it costs me this much more to eat every day when I'm at the World Series than it does at home. It costs this much to be at the hotel every day. The travel when you average it out costs this much. The rental car costs this much. And spread spread along all the events I play, this is how much extra it's costing me per event to play. And if you want to work that into the markup you're calculating, that's fair. Not everybody does it. I don't do it. I figure you're paying enough in markup anyway, I'll just eat that part. Plus, I say, hey, I'm already there, so I'm playing with or without the pieces being bought of me. So since I'm already paying for it, uh, I don't feel the urge to pass this on. But yeah, I, I have real expenses now, whereas before I had a lot fewer because I got a lot more comps. But I decided I'm not going to pass it on because I, I feel enough markups already being paid. But, but, uh, if I did, it wouldn't be unethical. And there are people out there complaining, oh, that's so terrible to do. Your markup should only be based on your skill. No. Your markup should be whatever you feel like charging. You're also putting your time into it, your effort. So you just charge what you feel it's worth charging, what you feel you're worth. Be honest about the situation. I'm honest, too. I I put out there... uh, what the honest assessment I have about my skill versus the field. I do put out there where I've had success or where I've had almost success. Because the truth is, in tournaments... The difference between winning and min-cashing, or not cashing, is often not that big. It sometimes comes down to a few key hands. There's hands where where, you know, where I got very deep in a tournament that had I not put a bad beat on someone just before the money, I would have not even cashed. So winning versus not cashing, that doesn't mean you're a much better player. It just means you got luckier. 
it might also mean you played better, but there's there's so many different factors in tournaments about success. So, yeah, I'll say things like I got down to the final 42 when I was the chip leader, and then I ran really bad and went out 40th, and things like that. Yeah, I'll explain that so people know what they're dealing with. It, 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 they'll see why they have a chance to win with me. So I'll, I'll put it all out there and see if they want to do it. And that's that's what everybody should do who puts out their tournaments for markup, or even for no markup. But in short, I think it's totally fine. And short of someone selling themselves under false pretenses, you should just butt out of it and let people sell themselves. And it's, it's totally fine. And just about everybody who buys pieces understands what they're buying. So that's uh, that's my opinion on that. Trader Risky, how do you feel about this? I agree. And I think the time, you know, like you mentioned, I think the time is a big factor, too. I mean, unless you're a professional, you know, if you're a professional poker player, that's all you do. You know, you would be there anyway. Some people might take off work, do other things. And wasn't Helmuth charging 1.7? Yeah, he was charging some ridiculous markup last year. That's true. And he was, and with Helmuth, you could say, look, Helmuth has so much money. Why does he even need to do this? This isn't just some everyman poker player or some grinder. This is guy. This guy has so much money, including from UB, that he didn't really deserve after all the cheating they did, and even after the cheating, he made plenty of money there. That uh, yeah, people- and he's getting comp rooms. Yeah, he's get you know. Plus, you could probably say like he's taking advantage of the uneducated person more. Right, right, because because they uh, they just say, oh, this is Helmuth. He's worth anything, right? So that, yeah, that's. See, that's where I see more of the valid complaints rather than any. And I remember he showed up like really late to one of the events too. People were like, he showed up so late that he he came in short stacked, and people were really irritated. They're like, look, if you're selling this at 1.6 markup, and you show up short stacked at the last minute because you're so late, that that's kind of unethical to do. It's it's one thing to do it on your own money or to just uh, show up at a certain time to where. You you have a defensible answer as to why this is positive expectation, but but he he just showed up so late. I think some even blinded off or something. Something happened where where people were really mad about it and they were justifiably. So uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to go on and on about this markup thing, but I, I we've had this discussion before. I think it's totally fine, and not just because I sell on markup too. I, I think it's fine. even selling much higher than I do. And now, on the other hand, if you're selling at markup, you you shouldn't just think about what you can get out of people. You should think what's fair, what's what's right to sell for. And that's why I even lowered the markup on the 10k events because I said it's. Uh, I don't feel good charging 1.2 on this anymore. I think just the field's gotten too tough, and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to lower it down to 1.15, and. Uh, as always, if you think it's worth doing, you can. If you don't, it's not. Some people just like uh, people like buying a small piece just because they listen to this show every week and they enjoy it and they want to follow me in the World Series and have a little piece of it. That's all. They're not thinking, okay, is the the hundred dollars I'm spending is this is this really positive expectation? It's, at some point, you think, okay, the entertainment is worth it. So that's that's who I'm going for here. The people, and that's why more and more each year we're getting a higher percentage of radio listeners who don't post on the forum buying pieces than people who who post on the forum. So that's uh, – wherever it comes from, I don't care. 
thank you to those who bought pieces this year, and if you still want, uh, it's still available. The At least the, the 10K packages. The other one is uh, closed for the moment because it's almost completely sold out. Okay, I'm going to move on to talk about Galfond and his Run It Once site. Uh, I got in some discussion back and forth on 2 Plus 2 about the site and some criticisms I had. and A lot of people jumped on me there. A lot of people felt I didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, This site was announced in the summer of 2016. It then took quite some time to come up. Over two years. And people were surprised at the amount of time it took. And there were a lot of weird things that happened along the way where they had developed a lot of of the software and then they scrapped the entire thing and started with a new software developer for it and they uh, delayed them further and, and there were a lot of weird decisions they made that people criticized, like the whole thing with your avatar having like a look on its face having to do with your play style, like if you're being very tight then it shows your avatar sleeping and people didn't like that. And so there were some criticisms over time, but but Phil Galfond is very well-liked. In fact, a, a question came up recently on Twitter. I forgot who asked it. The question came up, who would you say is the most liked and least hated in poker? So not just someone who's liked by a lot of people, but they have to be liked and really not hated by anybody. And that's a tougher question. You can find players that are popular, but then they have a lot of haters. Look at Negroni, for example. A lot of people like him, but then definitely has a lot of haters. So he would not be on that list. Uh, I would not be on that list. I have haters. So there, there's, there's, you'd have to find someone who just is not controversial at all, is somewhat known, and to where most people would have a positive opinion of them, and you could find very few people to have negative opinions. The answers there were kind of funny. So, some people got it right on. Like some people said Kev Math. Totally agree with that one. He's definitely on that list. Phil Galfond. I agree with that, too. Everyone likes Phil Galfon. Uh, some people listed some funny ones. I, I, one that really stuck out to me. Someone said on that list should be David O.D.B. Baker. <laughs> and it's not just because I don't like him. But there's a lot of people who don't like him. In fact, we just covered on this show various people fighting with him. So I'm not saying nobody likes him, but I, he's definitely not someone who everyone likes. I think even he'd admit that. So, there are there are very few people in poker you could really say that about. I know that uh, the Galfons one, Kev Maths one, and then I thought of Mark Gregorich. He's another good example. I, everyone seems to like him. He's just a very uh, low-key, friendly, drama-free type of guy. But there's not many people in that. But, but Galfons one of them. And he, he's always very pleasant and friendly and polite. I, I do detect a little bit of passive-aggressiveness about him, but that's that's kind of what some of those people have to do, the ones who are very likable, because it is tough to be very likable all the time because you're going to run into assholes and then you have to handle the assholes. Or like you're, you may treat people well, but if people don't treat you well or people act like jerks, then how do you react without making enemies? And sometimes the people who are really good at being liked, they go, well, I can't create a confrontation or that, that'll kind of ruin the 
very likable reputation I have going on, so I've got to kind of result to passive-aggressive behavior. So I've seen a little of that out of Phil Galfon, but I will say he, he does a great job at being likable and getting along with people. Far, far better than I do, okay? Far better than I do. I, I've always thought that it's more important to be just real and straightforward than to be likable to everybody. So... Uh, Galfon's not that way. He, he he tries to be very likable and and, is, and succeeds with that. So people were really rooting for him. I actually asked Galfond if he would like me to work for the site, and I stated that I I really know what the players want. I have a very very good feel for what online grinders want. I have a good feel even for the, for what the recs want. I just know the industry really well from that standpoint. Even though I've never worked for a poker site, I, I'm i kind of a watchdog of the industry through this show and then through my forum, and through other forums I've been part of. I just feel I really, really know what players want, what they don't want, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. And and that also I, I'm I'm known to be someone who always watches out for the community, and if people heard I was involved, they would trust it more. And I also stated there was there was something he'd gained from my age because everybody involved in their project is around his age, like early thirties, and uh, I said that's a little bit on the young side. I, I didn't put it that way, but I said that. I see there's nobody else involved who is my age and that if he's looking to attract older players that uh, having someone older who's involved might also give it more legitimacy. And I've been in the poker world for almost 20 years now. So I, I pitched that to him. He wrote a very nice, long email back to me. This is back in 2016. Basically saying, you know, it, it looks like you want some kind of management position. Those are all filled. So... While we'd be glad to have you on the team, it looks like that the positions we have open you wouldn't really want. And he's right. He, like if you didn't have a management type of position, I, I didn't want it. I didn't want to work on the software. I didn't want to be some kind of customer service rep or anything. Like, yeah, I, I didn't want jobs like that. So I, I wanted to have some kind of decision making power. I didn't have to be the top guy, obviously, but uh, but some 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 kind of decision making power of the direction of the site, not just uh, some guy who takes orders. So I didn't need the job. I just thought it would be cool. And it, it seemed like, you know, he had a good reputation and, and, and I liked what he wrote about the site initially, what, what he was going to do with it. So I did approach this knowing that the chance of me actually getting this job was small. And I didn't, he, Galfon knew who I was and I knew who he was, but, but we weren't friends by any means. We weren't enemies. I, we had no problem with each other, but we weren't close in any way. We didn't have any experience with each other. So, I was just another guy in poker to him. So there's a lot of reasons I didn't really expect to get the job, but I'll throw it out there. So he gave me the, a nice email and with honest answers back, and so it didn't happen. No big deal. I, I promise you this, this segment I'm doing here is not out of bitterness about that. I haven't been rooting them f- for them to fail. I actually was hoping they'd succeed because I, I think the type of site he proposed... I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but he wrote like, uh, this is what he wrote as an intro to it back in 2016. A poker site should value poker players. It should value the casual player for the money he's willing to put in, uh, on the line to play a game he loves, for choosing poker over other hobbies, and for choosing their site over other sites. 
it should value the enthusiast and semi-pro for the liquidity they provide and for the growing for growing the game, for spreading the word across different mediums about their favorite site, etc. It should value the professional for embodying the dream that brings so many people to poker, for proving that poker is a game of skill, for promoting the game of poker to their fans, students, followers, or subscribers. Blah, 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 blah. So even though this is a little bit gimmicky, I, I agreed with most of what he wrote there. And it, it was called the poker site should, and that's because every line started with a poker site should. But I agreed with most of it, and I thought, wow, this would be nice to have. This would be nice, a site really run by someone who gets it, a site that tries to be fair to the recs and the pros to value you know what all of them bring to the table and you're really creating a perfect balance of all of this and being uh, bringing good customer service bringing fair games bringing the games people want to play bringing innovative new features it, it all sounded very good to me now sometimes what someone's vision is and what turns out is not the same thing but I thought it sounded good. So I actually believed in the project, and even after they didn't have a management position for me, by the time this was announced, that's when I, I contacted them. So they already had all that in place. I believed him. I didn't think he was BSing me. So I wasn't bitter at all. Like, I'm like, hey, give me a management position. Oh, yeah, we filled those already. Okay, what am I supposed to say? Hey, fire the other people? Like, I, you know, so if they didn't have room for me, that's fine. And I wasn't bitter. I'm not, I'm not saying this now to sound good. I, I really wasn't bitter. I, I still was rooting for it to do well. However... As time passed, it started to look like that they didn't really know what they were doing. And that's that, that really was what I was trying to prevent. Not that I was so concerned for them, but that's what I thought I could bring to the table. I thought I could be the voice that would say, wait a minute, guys, uh, not to be rude here, but you don't know what you're doing. Let me tell you for, uh, my experience in the industry. You may say, wait, what do you mean your experience in the industry? Phil Galvan's been around a while. Uh, what about his days on full tilt playing as, uh, oh my god, Clay Aiken? Like, he's been around a long time, too. Not as long as me, but he's been around uh, 10 years or something. So why does he need someone like me? Because Phil Galfond, he rose up pretty quickly. He was very young at the time. He was playing high stakes. He was crushing it. He was doing really well. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of respect for all that. But he didn't live the life of a grinder for very long. Not like I did. He, he didn't really focus on industry matters like I did. He, I don't think he understood the grinder's mindset, the what people are really looking for, even what the fish are looking for. I just don't think he spent a lot of time thinking about it or experiencing it. I, I just think his experience in all of that was kind of lacking. So I felt they kind of needed that there, and I, and I was right, it turned out. because they And, and as, as you'll see in the rest of this segment, it's not just me thinking this now. So I was already starting to see things. And, and you may remember we had Calwatt on here who, who works uh, in this industry also, not in the, not so much with developing poker sites or anything. But he, Calwatt is, uh, he's a computer guy too. He, he develops and maintains websites, including uh, fairly complicated ones. He worked with that Hanson kid on his site. He, uh, you know, he has a lot of knowledge in this stuff, both from the, technical standpoint and also just from the usability standpoint, from the standpoint of, uh, of what the users want. He, he would be a good one to hire. Like, it didn't have to be me. It could have been someone else who, who brought other or similar skills to the table. Calwatt doesn't have that much experience as a poker grinder online, but uh, for, from the, he has a very good understanding of uh, the, from the software standpoint, from the uh, technical standpoint, 
from the user standpoint, uh, he understands all that really well. And, and in my discussions with him about this, we really agreed on most of the stuff we were saying about Run It Once and the mistakes they were making. And we talked about that on previous shows. You can go find them if you, if you want to hear that whole discussion again. But I, I started noticing, starting around about a year ago, when they were revealing more details of the site that's coming out, that they really didn't know what they were doing. From a, from a managerial standpoint, from a feature standpoint, from a what what are your customers looking for standpoint, and I'm like, oh boy, I'm afraid he doesn't get it. I'm afraid Phil and the people working with him just don't get it. So like you take the thing about the avatars that dynamically change as you're playing. So you you're you're you're, you're playing a crazy style. You 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 have a a look of like a, a maniacal look on your face. And you don't have a choice. It just does this for you. You're being tight. It shows you're sleeping. You're playing a weird style that the system doesn't really understand. It puts like a, it kind of makes you look like you're retarded. Well, who wants that? Who wants the system judging you and telling everybody how you're playing? Like, like, uh, what nit ever wants? It's like a, giving off a tell. Yeah, like what? What nit ever wants ever, uh, the, the whole table to be told? Hey, guess what? This guy right here is a big nit. When when he's raising, he really has it. Like whoever wants that known. The the nit thinks to himself. Well, the reason I'm a good player, I, I realize I'm tired than everybody else, but most people at the table aren't going to realize how tight I am, and they're going to give me action anyway when I really do have a hand, when they have a good but second-best hand, and that's the way I'm going to make money. The, the, the maniac, he doesn't want to announce he's a maniac. He, he, wants, uh, the, he wants people just to think he's, uh, he's always got it, that he's, always, he's just on a lucky streak, that he's always got a big hand, and they're afraid to put in much money against him. Like, everybody's style, they, they don't want shout it out to the public. They, they know at some point it'll be perceived in some way, but, but to have a piece of software inform everybody how you're playing is insane. And, and for some reason, he thought that was a good idea. Why? Because they felt that these HUDs that analyze people's play that people have been using on these sites for years, that that's unfair, which I agree with. So this is a way to replace HUDs. They made these anonymous tables, like kind of like Bovada has with some modifications, but then with these expressions... So they're saying, well, you can't use a HUD to see people's play styles, but, but now instead of the HUD, we're, we're providing this to you. But it's totally different, and it insults people. So that was one of the... And Drop, I, can I assume that was only based on showdown hands? I don't, actually, like, I don't know. In other words, if it knew what you were betting with and folding and then changed your expression based on that when no one really knew what you had, I mean, that would... I That's a good question. That. Yeah, I don't know what what formula I use. I don't know if that was ever revealed, but but st- whatever way it's done, it's it's stupid. So, so there is that, and there are other weird things that were proposed that just seem like they were either too gimmicky and just not worth spending the time on right now developing, or things that just were not going to be liked and not going to be good. Then there's also that, despite the fact they're doing this stuff. Very basic things weren't being done. Most notably, they were launching without tournaments. And I say, how can you launch a site in 2019 with no tournaments? Tournaments are very popular. They basically drive the traffic of the site. Nowadays, I mean, this goes back like 20 years ago. Yeah, you, you, you would just launch with cash games. But, but PokerStars was the first one to realize that tournaments are really, really drive traffic on poker sites. And they were really the ones who got the, the, the tournament scene really going online, poker stars, and that's what really helped them grow. So what, what ended up happening is the tournaments would then drive the cash games where people would win tournaments and then go take the money and sit in cash. 
and then the cash games get going. And it was especially good because the a lot of times the tournament players aren't as good at cash, so the cash players are happy. And that, that's the way online poker has functioned for a long time. So it's not that they didn't want tournaments, it's that they weren't ready with them. They were too busy focusing on other things. They launched with, without tournaments. And then it turned out the site had a lot of bugs in it. And so, so there's a lot of problems, both design-wise and feature-wise. Also, they announced that they're going to have 51% rake back for everybody. And I said, huh? Why not just lower the rake fifty one percent? I don't understand it. Why? Like, I, I think he. I thought he was even misunderstanding rake back because rake back was that that wasn't an intentional thing in the industry. It came about because they were paying affiliates early in the, in the history of online poker so much to refer people. They were paying them like thirty five percent of the rake that uh, that was being generated by anyone referred to, and the affiliates were cleaning up. But once the affiliates realized this and so many affiliates popped up to compete with each other, affiliates realized they had to set themselves apart by giving most of that 35% back to the player and only keeping maybe 5% of the 35 and giving the other 30% back to the player. And that's what was known as rakeback, where the affiliate would actually, at the end of the month, give you your rakeback based upon what's paid to them from the site. That's how rakeback came about. It took various forms over the years, but that's how it came about. So what doesn't make any sense is to just make a blanket 51% rake back across the board. Why not just make it 51% less rake? Well, I found out why. They came out with a gimmick called Splash the Pot, where what they're really doing is of 51% of the rake they collect goes into this promotion where every so often... There's a special pot where a whole lot of extra money is inserted there by the site that came from the 51% of rake that was paid. And then whoever wins that pot wins that big thing, whatever the you know the regular pot plus the extra money. That's called splash the pot. Would that had people had mixed feelings about that? But I'll get into in a second ultimately what people felt about it. So there was that, and then there was the other problem, and this is just from a standpoint of getting traffic there. It had no marketing. They they didn't have a budget for marketing, which which is very bad. They were they were counting on word of mouth getting them traffic, which will work with pros. Pros will 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 talk word of mouth. There will be word of mouth on the forums. There will be word of mouth by people who follow Gil, Phil Galfon. But you're not going to get that many recreational players through word of mouth unless the site's really huge, like PokerStars. So, as a new site, word of mouth's not going to do you any good at this point. They came up with some innovative ideas about that, saying, well, we'll get, we'll get these streamers who, uh, these Twitch streamers, if they stream a certain amount of time playing on Run at Once, then we'll give them, you know, above 100% rake back, where we're actually paying them to do that, so they not only get their rake back, but they get more. And so they did that, but it's still not enough to really attract enough of a base of recreational players that's going to support the games, especially if you don't have tournaments there. The only way to do this is with a real marketing budget, which they don't have, and they just ignored that. So they don't have any kind of real effective marketing. So you add all this together... 
plus the fact that they're not offering games to the U.S. because Phil Galfon lives in the U.S. and doesn't want to run afoul of U.S. authorities, so he doesn't want to be arrested. I don't blame him. So they're only offering this to non-U.S. players, which takes out a large potential player pool. Uh, the software was very lacking of basic features and full of bugs, which were not fixed at a very rapid rate. They launched in beta, but it didn't seem like they were fixing the bugs very quickly. Most of them still exist. The traffic just wasn't getting going because of the lack of marketing and because of the existing problems the site has and because there's no tournaments. So for a while on 2 Plus 2, for the most part, people were pretty positive. People were, you know, if you dared put down the site, people would jump on you because they liked Phil Galfon so much and wanted to see it succeed. But now the shine is wearing off. Now people are getting frustrated. Now people are complaining. Now now there's... The crowd has turned on Phil Galfon. Not to Phil Galfon personally. They still like him personally. But on 2 Plus 2, just about every post now is negative, and Phil Galfon, in fact, has left the threat. He's left the building. He doesn't even want to deal with it anymore because uh, the, everybody's saying bad things about it. Now, uh, there's a guy named 50 Cinquanta on Poker Fraud Alert. I know he listens to this show. He's bought a piece of me, I think it was last year in the World Series. I don't know him very well, but uh, 50 Cinquanta tried playing it, and he was not impressed at all. So he, here is 50 Cinquanta's report on Poker Fraud Alert, which, in case this negative report makes you think he's just a negative Nelly, this is very similar to the other reports I've been reading on 2 Plus 2 from others. This is what he wrote. This is from actual personal experience. Why I hate Run It Once. If you think you're missing out because you can't play Run It Once, think again. Please see the below listing of why, of why I hate it and what I sent to Run It Once. <laughs> so he actually sent this to them. Can't vary the size of the table window, parentheses, tilting. So that is tilting. So I don't know how many of you play online poker, but I can tell you that it's very important to be able to change the size of the window. Why? Various reasons. Some people like a bigger window so they can see the cards and all the chips and everything better. Some people like a smaller window so they can do other things in the background, like like browse the web or, or watch videos or whatever. Uh, you can't do that here. You just you're stuck with whatever the default size is. So when he says tilting, I I I, I agree. It is. The suits of the cards are hard to see. Tilting. I agree. If that's I didn't I haven't played on there, but if that's true, that's definitely tilting. Can't see the winning hand long enough to digest. Very tilting when combined with no replay feature. Extremely tilting, especially when dot dot dot. I time out trying to see the hand history. <laughs> so this is a disaster. I, I didn't even know these things. That apparently the winning hand at showdown, it, it flashes it quickly and then it goes off the screen. You go, crap, wh- wh- what hand just won? You go, hold on, I want to check the hand history. Oh, crap, there's no replay feature. I can't just p- press a button like I can on Bovada and see the last hand. I can't do that. There's no feature to do that. So, well, I, I guess the only way to see the last hand is to load up the hand history, and then it takes some time to load the hand history, and while he's doing that, he times out on the next hand. <laughs> what a freaking mess. Then he goes on to say, 
Can't see my stack size when sitting out. That's really weird. That you sit out, it doesn't say <laughs> how many chips you have on the table. What a dumb decision that was. Uh, obnoxious chips coming from under the table. I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm always in a suit and tie. Oh, he's referring to... Uh, oh, I think he's referring to the animations here. So he says, obnoxious chips coming from under the table. <laughs> like a- like the animation show, the t- the chips moving in as if they're coming from under the table. I'm always in a suit and tie. I guess the players are always in a suit and tie. And can you imagine that's what they're putting programming resources into yeah. when they don't have this basic stuff done? Yeah, yeah. How, how do you? Why are you putting people in a suit you know? and tie instead of working hard on the 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 tournaments? The chips coming from under the table. I yeah, mean, that's probably you know. I mean, a lot of programming. I'd imagine, Drop. You're yeah. the, you're the expert, but. Uh, video seems to step when chips are placed. I think he means it's 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 jumpy. He says, without a doubt, the most tilting, obnoxious, you got to be kidding me thing is the player's underlying playing style feature. You absolutely have to be fucking kidding me. So you're labeling a player based on a proprietary formula of what? Reward the lazy player? Look cool? Provide information for some reason? What information is this? So now I have to look at some stupid avatar looking deranged or calm or whatever to consider what my opponent is considering so that I can make a play? God help us all. <laughs> and this is the way people are thinking. Like, like what, what the heck? What, what's with these players? He's talking about the thing where the player avatar changes based on their play style. He's going, why? Like he, he's not understanding why they're showing this. I don't understand it either. Just just don't. Like n- nobody Nobody wants a poker site to label them. Just shut up and let the players play. So he goes and writes, Then I did my research in fairness to run it once to run it once by looking at their known issues. And they know about most of them. So that makes me wonder if they want to pass just because they're working on the issues. At this time that's a no for me. So he he didn't like that. He actually said he did like the 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 the, the anonymous tables where you can't use the HUDs. And he did like the fact that they had that rake back thing with a splash of the pot. So he actually liked the splash of the pot. But but he, he really disliked a lot of other things. Now here's here's another guy on two plus two who wrote something that a lot of people responded by saying they agreed with it. I don't play PLO, and below is just my experience from playing no limit on the site the past few weeks and then stopped a little over a week ago. I had big hopes for the site and really wanted it to succeed, but I'm starting to get pretty indifferent at this point. There isn't anything big about the site or the direction that makes it more regular and poker-friendly than the other sites. Software is different and more recreational-friendly than the other sites, but but for regulars, I, I, I think no screen names and the different visual stuff is very close to net zero and probably slightly negative. So he's saying for the pro, the site's actually worse than the average site. And for example... It's annoying playing three or four tables with the same regulars and a few recs and having to figure out on each seat, each table is the same regular because they, they change your name at each table. Uh, I, I don't mind the, the HUD list, meaning there's no HUDs, but the full anonymous is not preferred for me. Ability to change screen name once a day or week or something would be more ideal for me personally. Games not filling or stakes not running is also a bit disappointing. And it often takes 30 minutes or more to get a game going. And most of the time you get it going, it's just three to four regulars that would beat one stake higher on other sites playing for like a short while in, until a, a recreational player joins. Not many whales like you see on Stars or Unibet. So he's saying that right now it's so dead there, it's basically you playing against a bunch of uh, other pros and even playing at a lower level 
than you normally play on other sites. I could stand going through that routine to try to help get things off the ground and, and, and play Zoom poker on the side or something, but they charge 5.75% rake with, with, with the cap as high as the softest site, so the shorthand regular action is nearly unbeatable. So you're saying the rake is 5.75% is so high that uh, unless you've got a big fish in the game, it's not worth playing. I also don't see the site headed in a direction that would be worth sacrificing time and EV to help them right now. Cut rake or give some other incentive without requiring me to stream, and I'll be more incentivized to get this thing off the ground. It's due time for Run It Once to stop leaning on the community and say, if everyone were just to show up, the games would run. My experience has been the regulars have shown up and tried to start tables, playing shorthanded with massive rake without recreational players showing up often enough, and after a few days and maybe even weeks of that, they stop bothering. So a lot of people agreed with that on 2 Plus 2. And he's raising a great point, and I've said this for a long time, and I said this about Ultimate Poker years ago. When your site is struggling, and they are struggling, they hardly have any traffic on there, there's barely anyone playing, there's like usually like two tables of low stakes going, and that's it. Like, like That's seriously how they're doing right now. So it, it's, it's really struggling. And uh, I don't know if they still consider themselves in beta release or not, but, but whatever it is, they're, they're really not doing well, and it's not getting any better. It's not like they're just starting and it's, it, they've got need time to improve. They're, they're just, it's, it's either getting worse or, or stagnating at the super low traffic. So they really need some help in the traffic, and they're just not doing anything about it. They're just going, well, if everybody, if all the pros who support this just showed up, we'd be doing better. And the guy's saying, we tried that. Like Some pros showed up, but you can't expect everyone to do this for you. So, so people aren't showing up, and it's dead. And that's it. I'm seeing that it says on uh, Poker Scout that they're averaging 40 players over seven-day period. That's not very much. <laughs> 40 players in the whole site average. That's pretty sad. And that's not going to become anything big. It's hard to go from 40 players to big. It, and it's been kind of stuck there for a long time. Not a super long time, but but a moderately long time. They're just not going anywhere. And yet they're still charging this high rake. And yeah, they're giving half of it back on these splash pots. But people are going, like, we, we don't really want this. We just want a lower rake. It just inter- introduces too much variance. Just uh, screw the splash pots. Let's just, uh, let's just keep the rake low. And I said this about Ultimate Poker when they were circling the drain. And they didn't do it. But I said, what, what you should do if your site is dead is say... No rake. See, I'm giving you free advice here, Phil Galfond. You probably won't hear this, but this is free advice. When you're trying to get a site started, you charge very low or no rake. And you consider paying props to get games going. Because the only way to have games going on a poker site is to have games going. It's a chicken and egg problem. People are not going to join a game unless there's a game already going. So the question becomes, how do you get the game going in the first place? And you do that by incentivizing people to start games. So you either charge no rake, or charge no rake for the first few active players at the table, or you even pay props. You find ways to reward those who start games. They're very valuable, the people who start games. And, and keep games going. And this, this isn't rocket science. Uh, live poker rooms figured this out years ago, decades ago. 
you have to get games going because people show up, there's no games running they like, and they leave. That's it. Some reason they don't get that, they're still charging 5.75% rake for everybody. But, oh, look, every once in a while you'll get a special pot with extra money in it with half that rake. That's not going to get the site active. That's the type of thing that may be fun for recreational players once you've got an active site going. But what they're missing here are all the basics. Games running, traffic, marketing, tournaments, software you can resize. Just the very basics they're missing. And they're focusing on all this BS. And they're just expecting it to work somehow. This is just poor planning. The site is, first of all, launching at the wrong time in the wrong market. They can't, they're, they're launching when poker is slowly dying. They're, they're launching without the U.S. market, which I know they have no choice with, but that makes it very tough. And then they're not marketing, except through this streaming thing, which is not going to bring that many people. And they're really missing the fact that a poker site, it's not like a local restaurant. Okay, let's say you have a restaurant that's just starting out. If someone walks in wanting to eat there, they're not going to go, wait a minute, this place isn't packed. I'm not going to eat here unless it's packed. Now, some people may think it's a bad sign if there's not people eating, but most people who come in to eat, if they can get a table and they can order and they can eat the food, that's all they care about. They And the price is reasonable, that's all they care about. They, they, they don't uh, worry if there's if the place is full or empty. Poker's different. In poker, you need existing tables running for your new customers to want to play. You need customers, or the appearance of customers, to get more customers. Once you have a lot of activity, then the site kind of runs itself. Then it kind of markets itself. Then that's when the word of mouth works. People go, hey, where's a good site to play? Oh, run it once. That's a cool site. There's a lot of people on there. Okay, I get people asking me all the time. You know the most common question I get from people in uh, in text and when I'm in poker rooms and people who know I play online? What, what's the most common question I get? Where's the best place to play online in the U.S.? All the time I get those questions. What's my answer? America's Card Room or Bovada. Do I criticize them both a lot on this show? Yes. Do they both have a lot of problems? Yes. Are they both very flawed? Yes. Do I trust them a whole lot? No. Why do I play there? Because they're still the best two, as far as the U.S. is concerned. You're picking the lesser of all the evils. So that that's, again, word-of-mouth promotion. I'm not working for Bovada or America's Card Room, but that's my honest answer. And you only get that when you're an active site, because those two sites are the most active, and they pay... When you win and you cash out, so that that's really what's important. You know, that's the rest of it. You got to just kind of tolerate. But a site without activity has no potential. It could be the best software in the world. It can have the most innovative promotions and gimmicks. It can have the best customer service in the world. None of that matters if you have no traffic. Wait, but Truff, and all the thing, you know, and all the things you mentioned about getting traffic too is all mood. If the software's no good, right, and that, that's the other problem. You know, so, so it's. Right. right. So it's like, I mean, to be able to talk with you and or Calwatt and not do that, I mean, it's clear that they've got, because that's what I would do. Like, if I was start, trying to start a poker site today, they had some good ideas, like you spoke about. 
get the technology right, because trying to market against poker stars and 888 and whoever else, you know, is very hard to do. Will take a while, and you have to invest a lot in the things you're talking about. Yeah. But if you have great software and did that from the get-go, then eventually you could just sell the software to somebody. Well, right. And, you that, know? and that's my other point, and, and that's that you need to get just a basic site up and running that's functional, mostly bug-free, has basic features, has the, the, the typical features people want, and then worry about the exotic stuff later. Because that's the, a, a site that is like that, that's marketed well enough, will will get players. They're, they're, uh, and if you look at even the, the successful sites in the U.S. at the moment, like, like Bovada, the, the software right now is terrible. But uh, but uh, yeah, but it's, it has customers. But that for a long time, before it got terrible, it was very basic software. There was nothing special about it. Before they did all these crappy things to it, it, it was never great software. It was just okay and functional. But that's all you need. And I'm not saying that the gimmicks don't help, but the, you, you got to do that later. And so you're right. Once you get people over there, and it's got all these tilting features to it that, that don't work, that you can't resize the tables, and there's no tournaments, and there's all these other bugs. Like people say, screw it. This is a, I, I don't want to bother with this, especially if it's kind of dead. This has not, there's nothing good about it. And another thing people keep saying on two plus two is that despite all their attempts to innovate and do exciting things. It's really not that different when it comes down to it. There's really not that much to it that's really giving you a different experience than other sites. That the things, the differences are kind of minor, and that it's not. Uh, there's, there's nothing that exciting that's going to bring people over, and yet some of these things are bothersome. So it, the whole thing's been kind of a massive fail, and it's interesting seeing the crowd turn on this on two plus two. Where boy, were they positive on this before, and boy, they, they were. You, you almost had some degree of apologism on there where people were kind of delusional that the problems they were having, people were denying they were really having, but no, now you look at the thread and everyone is just so negative on it. But, and you can see that it's like honest negativity. It's not like people who hate Phil and want him to fail and, uh, or people who just are trolls. These are a lot of people start off with things like, I really wanted this to work. I gave it a try. I was really hoping this would succeed. You, you see things like that being said on two plus two and it looks sincere. And it, it, it's just like people are just disappointed. And people have complained that there's been a lot of bug reports and that they acknowledge all these bugs, but then they just don't fix them. And they wonder, what are they doing here? So they, the whole thing's just been mismanaged. And it's it, it doesn't give me pleasure to say this, but, but it's the truth. And unfortunately, I was right about a lot of my criticisms. And I was kind of right about what they needed in the first place. They needed someone there. And now, I don't know what kind of boss Phil was. I don't know if he was open to people telling him things and you know, if he was just saying, no, I've made up my mind on this and that and wasn't listening to people and there's not much he could do. There's not much I could have done then. But provided he was open to listening and considering alternate viewpoints, he really needed someone just to say, no, you're not going to launch that tournament. No, you're not going to spend time on these 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 gimmicky features until the basics are working. No, you're not going to launch that resizable tables. Uh, no, your marketing plan kind of sucks. No, you're not going to have a 5.75% rake when you're trying to get traffic going, even if you even if half of it's going to a promotion. Like you you've got to have someone who understands the community and the grinders well enough to say no, these things are totally wrong. But they don't have that. 
and that's that's where you need. And people were also frustrated on two plus two because they're saying, "Look, you guys did have this. You had all of us here on two plus two giving you great advice, and all of it fell on deaf ears." And I, I understand it. I understand the frustration where these people know they're giving good advice. These people know they've played online poker for a very long time, played millions of hands. They know what they want. They even some of them even understand what the fish want, and they just won't listen. And so. I don't know how much money Phil personally invested, but I, at this point, would be shocked if it rose from where it is now to becoming a big site. I, I think it's it's going to stagnate with low traffic for a while, and then they're fi- we're, we're finally going to have the inevitable message of, well, I followed my dream and I created a poker site. It would be like the three-bet message I read today, except about run it once poker about how he followed his dream, he had a good time creating it, they thought they created a great product, they made some mistakes along the way, but uh, it's very hard to create a poker site in this day and age without the U.S. market, they gave it the best shot they could, and he's happy he did it, and thank you everybody for their support. I, I bet I'll be reading that letter on Poker Fraud Alert sometime in 2020. So we'll see. But I'll, I'll be shocked. Maybe they'll hang on longer, but I'll be shocked if it turns around and becomes a huge site. If it does, I'll come out here and admit I was wrong. But I don't think I'm going to be. They still have a little time to turn this around. It's, it's not like they've done something horrible and they've ruined their reputation. They have a little time to turn this around. And if, if let's say Phil came and said, okay, Todd, we're, we're in a panic now. I'm going to hire you and listen to everything you say. I'd say, okay, here's what you do. I guess I'm giving away for free now. There's no point to hire me. But uh, here's what you do. You super make the rake super low or alternatively, alternatively make no rake for people who start games and keep games going. You immediately devote mass resources into fixing bugs and fixing and putting in basic features. You, 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 Launch tournaments as fast as you can. And uh, you make sure that all the basics are there before you really go forward with anything else. And then you, you put together some kind of marketing budget somehow. Even if you have to get additional investors or whatever. Put together some kind of real marketing budget where you, where you are marketing to just the, the mass public to, to have awareness of the site. And before you do that, have some prop players on hand who are going to get games going so when these people you market to show up that there's games to play. And stop worrying about all the little gimmicks and do away with those stupid faces on the on the characters and stop all that nonsense. Focus on the basics. If they don't, they're dead. But I don't, th- I don't think they're going to. I think they're too married to what they think is right, not what actually is right. All right, moving on here. If anyone wants to call in, I know it's pretty late. Seven uh, seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. James Holzhauer has become a Jeopardy whiz. He's killing the game like nobody ever has in history. In a short time, he's already won. One million dollars. It's crazy. By the way, before we begin this, I, I want to apologize to Pooh. He donated $100, and somehow I missed this. 
So I'll have to do it for next week. I'm sorry, Pooh. I'm gonna, I'll definitely I'll remember your hundred. I'm going to put it next week towards the free roll. I can't retroactively do this, or it's not fair to those who didn't cash. But I will use the hundred next week. I promise. Th- thank you very much for that, Pooh. For all his trolling on the forum, he trolls me too sometimes. But he's a very generous guy, and uh, this is someone who uh, made the money for himself too. He started his own business. I don't think he's ever revealed on the forum what business it is, so I'm not going to reveal it out there. I'm one of the few who has his real identity. He gave it to me. I didn't research him or anything, but he gave, he told me who he really is and uh, what his business is, and uh, he's he's done a good job. He's uh, made good money. He's made a good life for himself, and uh, even uh, building a house, a custom house there in Florida where he lives. So, and then sometimes he will uh, generously donate to Poker Fraud Alert. So I appreciate that. Never met him in person, but I would like to one day. Anyway, I apologize for not putting that in today's prize pool. I Somehow I missed your post until now, looking at the agenda. Anyway, J- James Holsauer really has been killing Jeopardy. And it's been getting everyone's attention. Even Ken Scaler called me today and said, Hey, isn't it James Holzhauer a, a poker player? And that's what I thought at first when I read about him. But, no. He's actually a sports better. He lives in Vegas. There's, I've heard something about how he's played poker somewhat, but I can't really find evidence of it. I'm not saying he never played, but he's really a sports better. But he has crushed Jeopardy with some interesting strategies that have never never been done before. And think of how many years Jeopardy has existed. It's been decades, like 30 plus years. And it took this long for someone to be this dominating. We had Alex Jacob, we had Ken Jennings, we had guys who were very good at it, and uh, I think Alex Jacob was kind of the first one to really bring in like aggressive alternate strategy to it, not just knowledge of, of trivia. But James Holthauer took it to the next level. And it's funny, someone posted a picture of his totals next to the opponents. Imagine me, this guy's opponent, so... There's one where he has 110,914 and his opponents have 712,800. There's one where he has 54,000. The other opponent's, the second opponent's gone. Third person is 6,800. Another one where he has 131,000. The next person has 1,000. The next person has 10,700. My favorite one, he has 106,181. One of the people is gone and one of the people has a dollar. <laughs> Uh, this is the worst of them. He had 45,444. The next one had 12,400. The next one had 1,000. One where he has 89,158. The other opponents have 14,801 and 7,100. Then the last one that, uh, that I see in this picture 90,812. The other two, 2727 and 4,001. So he's just crushing everybody. Uh, this is. There's been a lot of talk about his use of the buzzer. He's a buzzer master. You, you, you probably may not realize in Jeopardy that the buzzer is such a big deal, but it really is. This is what Jeopardy producer Maggie Speak said. He had a lot of questions about the subtlety of the buzzer right away. Before we ever hit the stage, it was, well, what, what if I do this? 
He had a lot of very specific questions about the timing of the buzzer. And clearly my answers must have helped him. So it says in this article, The way the buzzer works on Jeopardy today is seemingly designed to confound anxious bookworms. In Jeopardy's original run with Art Fleming as host in the first year of the revival, as well as in the first year of the, the revival with Rebecca in 1984, contestants could ring in as early as they liked, but this proved confusing to at-home viewers who wanted to play along, so the rules were changed. Now, after each clue is selected, Trebek reads his text aloud. The moment he finishes, a dedicated Jeopardy staffer sitting at the judge's table just off stage manually activates a switch that illuminates the blue lights alongside the outer edges of the Jeopardy board. The moment the enable light switches on, the three onstage contestants are per- permitted to ring in, but if they press their, butters, their, their buzzers even a fraction of a beat too early, they will be locked out of the system for a quarter second, which is generally enough time for a competitor to swoop in instead. It's a mechanism that's hidden from viewers. You can't see the blue lights in the telecast. I bet you didn't know that. So it's, it's basically after Trebek reads it, you've got to wait for a light to appear that people watching at home can't see. Once that light comes on, it's a race to who presses, presses it first. If you press it before the light, then you're locked out for a quarter of a second and you're pretty much screwed. So here's here's an analysis of how James is good with the buzzer. The obvious way you can tell James is good with the buzzer is that he, the way he keeps winning. The average Jeopardy contestant is no slouch. By the time a player is on stage, he or she has passed the show's famously rigorous entry test twice, once online and once in person. Jennings puts it this Jennings referring to Ken Jennings uh, puts it this way: almost all the contestants know uh, almost all the answers about almost all the time which is to say that more often than not, all three players know a given clue's answer, and all three are attempting to ring in, meaning the buzzer timing is hugely important. James, who has lately shown off knowledge about subjects including the Book of Daniel and Tammy Wynette, says that he took the online tryout test 13 times every year it was offered and had two in-person auditions before he was finally invited on. If you put random people up there on Jeopardy, the most important thing there would be would be who knows the answer, says Ken Jennings. But with players that good, buzzer timing really becomes what tends to separate the winner from the non-winners. That's very interesting. That has so that's people don't really think about you. You really think about usually it's who knows the most, and he's saying you put together people who know most of the answers. It's really who's fastest. So. Uh, it says, uh, uh, other players have been drawn more to the science than the art of buzzing in, leaning on the same sort of analytics-based approach that has dictated the daily double hunting. For these players, there is, more, there is a sacred text, Secrets of the Buzzer by Fritz Hofnagel. When I get invited back to, to, for the Battle of the Decades, I was 52 years old. I knew I was not really in, in the loop on pop culture, and just generally, there's no way you're going to be smarter than these other contestants. Uh, it occurred to me that if I was going to have any hope of doing well in this tournament, I would have to find some other edge. That edge he went about sharpening? Buzzer reaction time. Jeopardy, he says, is a unique beast in the trivia world. If you're playing a college bowl or a quiz bowl or that kind of thing, people can ring in any time. But Jeopardy is really unusual and different in that it has one twist which is basically a reaction time test tacked onto a trivia contest. He wonders, could he hack it? This is, uh, this is not about... Uh, uh, this is not about James uh, Holzhauer. This is about this, this guy who wrote this book uh, named uh, Fritz, Fritz uh, Holznagel. 
similar sounding names of Holt Hauer and Holt Nagel. Uh, with some help of friends, he created a wired buzzer that timed his buzzing speed, and over the course of some 27,000 tests, he managed to lower his reaction time from 0.228 seconds to as low as 0.126 seconds. Holznagel's trials led him to a series of general guidelines for buzzer mastery. Use your thumb, keep your arms in front of you, hold still, and if you can, chug some coffee in the green room, which Holznagel credits for was shaving five one-thousandths of a second off his reaction time. Oh, and keep your eyes locked on the about-to-be-illuminated enable light. Many players fashioned their own buzzers to practice ringing in at home. Ken Jennings used one of his son's toys, while many others used ballpoint pens. And the, uh, in the weeks before he first went on the show, James, referring to James Holzhauer, uh, practiced... Uh, fashioned a practice buzzer by wrapping masking tape around a mechanical pencil below, and there's a picture of it. He just took a mechanical pencil and put tape around it. I would save several episodes to watch back-to-back on my DVR when I had an hour free from work and parenting. I'd, I'd put on dress shoes to simulate the standing the, the way standing that way during the tape day. Uh, so, yeah, so, so there he was finding ways to be the best at the buzzer. And that's uh, what people. a lot of people are crediting his winning, that he's just always able to do it first. So he's, he's, he's really killing it. And uh, we'll see where this goes. But uh, they may have to change something about Jeopardy because he has really shaken the whole thing. To, have to be this dominant, this wasn't supposed to happen, and and to be it so butter, to be so buzzer related, and to now this is being talked about where the general public knows now that the buzzer is so important. That's not really what they were intending, and someone figured it out. Someone after all these years figured out a way to do it that others hadn't, even though others had focused on the buzzer yeah, before. The draft. Hold on, hold on. The buzzer, the buzzer. This guy knows fucking. It's unreal the the vast amount of knowledge he has too. Yeah, well, yes, of course. You know the buzzers. I, I think you're overdoing the buzzer a little bit. He is a beast. You know. Yeah, well, that's a common. So he's got this combination going on here where where he, he, he does have uh, an amazing mind for for this trivia, and and does just seem to know everything, and then he's combining this with. With the buzzer skill, and that he's killing everybody between those two, and uh, he also has uh, a strategy as far as the game board, which, which that's what Alex Jacob did. And that's why he did well. He was he had a very aggressive strategy with with the game board and with the daily double, but uh, he 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 has it all going on here. He has the knowledge. He has the buzzer, he has the strategy, and apparently also the gambling background he had allowed him to not be nervous about the money. So he just, it, it doesn't phase him. And there's something to be said about that. Where, And this, this sometimes helps in poker tournaments too. If you can approach a poker tournament not afraid of the buy-in, like if I bust, I bust. It's no big deal. The, the worst thing for you at a poker tournament, unfortunately, is 
either a fear of the amount of money you spent buying in and you don't want to waste it, or a fear of the loss of opportunity, such as you, let, let's say you've, it's a lot of trouble to get there to play the tournament. It took a lot of time to satellite in. You, you, you had to fly a long distance to play there. Uh, a lot of different things like, I don't want to waste this. That's a bad mentality to come into the tournament. So there's there's a, or, or fear of, of not cashing, where you've got to at least min cash. All of these things can harm you as far as the ability to win a poker tournament. Sometimes not caring much, not being reckless, but but not not letting anything bother you as far as the money side of it and trouble you took to get their side of it can really help you. So the same thing's true here with the Jeopardy that he's not worried about any of this. He just wants to win. He wants to play the best strategy. He's not concerned with the money. He's not concerned with the opportunity to be on Jeopardy. He just plays. The producers of Jeopardy have mixed feelings about what's going on here. Some think this is good because it's bringing a lot of attention to the show and people want to watch this, this domination. They're also a little unhappy that someone has figured out a way to dominate like this and that eventually it's going to get boring where, where he's just beating everybody so, by, so badly that there's no drama to the show who's going to win. They're not worried about the prize money. And what can they do, Jeff? There's no cap, right? No, but they, they could... He plays till he loses, right? They, they could change some rules with the buzzer. They could change something to where it throws them off. He spent a long time getting ready for this. And uh, the, the more they change, the less he's familiar with. Not saying he's going to immediately lose if that happens, but uh, the way it stands right now, until someone can basically, until like a second James Holthauer comes forward who can do the same things he can, as well as he can, he's probably not going to lose. So, uh, I, I mean, it's really like, How's he gonna lose? I mean, if I don't, if some people haven't watched this guy, it's unreal. And I probably watched maybe five or six of them, maybe a couple more. But um, and it's great too, Jeff. Like, have you been watching it every night now? No, I, I haven't, but I've seen some of it. And uh, yeah, but like a few I've seen. When he gets to that first daily double, which he always finds because he wins ninety percent of the questions. You know, the score might be like 8,400 to 3,200 to 1,000 or something. He's like, all in. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, that, and, that's, where, you know? and that's where he doesn't care about the money. And then I've seen him right? miss one. I, I saw him miss one of those. Sorry. And then, you know, then you turn your head for a minute. You look at the score again. He's back over what he would have got with the Daily Double. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There has to be like another version of him to counter him. I think that's the only way that he's going to lose. Someone, someone who's as good at trivia as him and can master the other skills can just come forward and, and beat him. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see what what happens here. They, they may have to change something to make it. He's thrown off. If it just continues like this, it could be a very long time. Look, like like Ken Jennings won. He he wasn't winning as much every show or nearly as much, but he won like seventy four straight episodes. But imagine. Yeah, no, he he did, but he wasn't. I don't know. I mean, I still, I think it's still early compared to what he did, but he wasn't crushing him like this. No, he wasn't. He was I mean, just his, winning. I think what they say is average is like 
Seventy-two thousand a day. Yeah, that's what's insane. Is that is the huge? That's it's not that he's winning. He's winning by such a huge margin and racking up so much money every day that it's just no one's done anything like that before. So Alex Jacob is kind of a form of this, but but not quite as well, not quite as aggressive. I I I wonder though if if Holzhauer was somewhat inspired by what Alex Jacob did and decided to do like a better version of it. For sure. And, and you know, and I think, too, I mean, it's just like with the questions he answers. It's like, you know, 18th century art, you know, sports questions. I mean, it's, it's unreal. Yeah, I always wonder how some the of these people just, books. Yeah, just have such a crazy knowledge of so many different areas that uh, I, I've always wondered how some people even manage to do, to do that. They, they have to have just this incredible memory and retention of everything they read. So you, you have to have that, too. And then... And he might have just studied for, like, you know, a couple years. Yeah, he said he's been doing right? this for a long time. Yeah, like 13 years, he said. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's been waiting for this moment for a long time, and, and so now it's happening. And it's probably going better than he thought it ever could. I know, and the way he's able to rack it up, like you said, because then it, at the end... He's up by forty or fifty thousand, so then he can just put, you know, thirty five thousand on the final question. Yeah. And he hits that and it just bumps up so much. Yeah. That's right. It's it's so right. Once you get so far ahead then you then you can afford to gamble more and still win. Because you're you're clinched into winning. So, yeah, it's a, and then the buzzer is a big part of it. You know, people don't have a chance to, to to, to even take a shot at doing what you're doing is you're, you're beating him to the buzzer every time too. Yeah, no, and that right, and then when he starts the game with the buzzer thing, next thing you know, he's at by eight or nine grand. The people must feel like, what are they doing? Yeah, I know that's got to be so tilting that you you're up against him, and you're like, oh crap, okay, I'm I'm losing. <laughs> why? Why does it have to be I against know. this guy? They've been waiting thirteen years too. <laughs> yeah, they finally get on and they run it against the best the best player of all time in the in the show. So, all right, moving on here. But I, I can't find any evidence he played. I, I heard something always. He has some ties to the poker community. I can't find any evidence he played poker. I'm not saying he never did, but it, he must have just played like occasionally because I just can't. I couldn't find anything on the Hendon mob. I couldn't find really anyone that's reported playing with him. So I don't know. He seems like someone who would play poker, and he lives in Vegas, but. Yet I, I haven't. Well, he's a sports better too. So, like at the Bellagio, you know, I mean, he could easily be just be playing cash games. Yeah, I don't know, but no, nobody you know? I know has told told me they played with him. So I, I don't quite get it. But he probably did at some point. It's probably not something he does all the time. Well, I'm talking about something that is going on all the time over the last few months, and that is a war between two major LA card rooms, the bike has decided that they're going to go after commerce. This this goes back now to earlier this year, but it's continuing. Commerce is the biggest live card room in the world. It, it has the most running poker games of anywhere. And not just L.A. Anywhere in Vegas, anywhere in Atlantic City, anywhere outside the country... You will not find a live card room with more running games in Commerce. And it's been that way for quite some time. Commerce was 
doing well for a while, but they one thing they didn't really have was they weren't dominating the mid and high stakes action. That was once the domain of Hollywood Park. Hollywood Park is in Inglewood. It's not in a particularly good neighborhood. That's putting it lightly. It's very close to the Great Western Forum, where the Lakers used to play before they moved to Staples. And they had the mid-stakes and high-stakes action for years before the poker boom. In 2002, Commerce decided that they're going to try to get that action. They built a brand new room for just the mid-stakes and upper-stakes games, known as the top section, but it's not just a section, it's a big room, bigger than most card rooms themselves. And they built a new hotel, a Crown Plaza there. So now people could stay overnight if they were degening all day at the casino. Well, and they had a very reasonable poker rate, too. And, and they recruit, recruited a lot of key people out of there to bail on uh, Hollywood Park and go to Commerce. Yeah, so it was it was a war back in 2002. I watched the thing being built. I worked at the t- I wasn't a pro poker player at the time. I, I had a regular job, uh, and I drove to that job a lot of times between my then-girlfriend's uh, apartment in the San Fernando Valley down to, 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 to my job, which was in uh, kind of the North Orange County area. So it was a kind of a long drive, and I passed right by Commerce all the time. So I, I watched the thing being built, and they were very successful. And part of the reason they were successful was because Hollywood Park didn't take the challenge seriously. Hollywood Park, oh, we've been established with the mid to upper stakes games for such a long time. Commerce isn't going to take anything. People aren't going to move over there in big numbers. Well, they did. And uh, as Trader Ruski said, they, they recruited certain influential people to do it, but also it was the better place to go. There, there was a brand new, nice new room, uh, a new hotel. The, uh, the area was better. Not a great area, but better than, than where Hollywood Park was. Uh, a lot of the issues people had at Hollywood Park, including the safety issue, they just weren't addressing it. Uh, the, compl- the complaints people had about Hollywood Park that had been there for years, no one took them seriously. So when the opportunity came to go elsewhere and the right people were recruited, the games moved there. And once the games moved there, there just wasn't the action at the mid and upper stakes at Hollywood Park anymore and the games died. And that was that. And and it was amazing how fast, too, they fucked that up. Yeah. I play, that's why I played a lot. And it's just like not only did they pull the good people to commerce, then they hired the dummies at Hollywood Park. So it was just kind of a combo, you know? Yeah. So that, that was, so they – very quick, yeah. I remember it was very quick, and, and the action was at commerce, and that was that for Hollywood Park. And Hollywood Park just became a low-limit casino. And – Commerce had the action, and that top section room was there just in time. Remember, this is 2002. What happened in 2003? Well, there's the WPT on TV and a gentleman named Chris Moneymaker who won the World Series of Poker. Well, that set off the poker boom, and people in the Southern California area with a huge population want to go play live poker, and some of them want to play for 
middle or high stakes, look at this. A big room. A big new room all ready for them where people are already playing. How perfect was that? So boy, did commerce make a fortune during those years. That room was packed all the time. They did very, very well. Now, commerce was not without its flaws. The rake was always on the high side. Higher than like in Vegas for the same games. It, uh, they didn't do a very good job with stopping players from being abusive, both to each other and to the dealers. If, if you played at Commerce, you'd notice very quickly that everyone's always pissed off in a bad mood, and there's a lot of arguing, and it's just kind of a stressful environment to play. But they had a big middle and upper limit game section that you can't find anywhere else, so... That's still where you went for the most part. Yeah, there were some alternatives. There was the Hustler. There was the, the bike. There was uh, Hawaiian Gardens. So there, there were some alternatives around, but Commerce was by far the leader, and the other rooms kind of just accepted it. The only one that was kind of close to competing was the bike, but they never quite got there. And it stayed that way for years and years. Commerce, even as the poker boom started to wane, and that room was no longer full all the time, and it got emptier and emptier. Instead of trying to find re- to, to get people to find reasons to return to commerce, commerce made the opposite decisions. They were taking things away. They were taking benefits away. So the free food disappeared. Before, if you're in the if you're in that top section room, it, you didn't have to be playing. If you're in that room, you could just flag down a food person and order anything you wanted on the menu. And they'd bring it to you. You could order a few main dishes, in fact, and they'd bring it to you. You can't say, give me 20 meals, but anything within, like, even semi-reason they'll bring to you. Even if you're not even actively playing, you could be sitting at an empty table or something, or, or sitting waiting for a game, they'll bring it to you. Very, very lax about the free food there. Free food, free drink, not not free alcohol drink, but free non-alcoholic drinks, free food. And, and uh, But they took that away. Then they changed it to a player point system where you have to earn your food through uh, time play. Then the rake kept going up and up. They introduced a jackpot that they drop every single time, even if there's no flop. That's kind of frustrating. The rake got very high to where it started to be questionable if games like 2040 Limit Hold'em could be profitable because the rake got so damn high. And this is as the poker boom is dying out and the room is getting less and less busy, and people are getting frustrated, and people are wishing that if only there was some real competition for commerce, but just the, there just wasn't. A lot of these games just didn't go anywhere else. Well, for some reason in 2019, the bike has decided that they're going to make a play for this action, and they're going to do right what commerce did wrong, and that they're going to take Commerce's action the same way Commerce took Hollywood Park's action. They're going to use the same plan back on Commerce. So they recruited certain people, who they call hosts, to get people over there. For example, for Limit Hold'em, they've recruited Gene Gluck, who has been a member of the poker community for more than a decade. It's a half-Asian girl, pretty, uh, well-liked, 
I didn't see much of her recently. She was a limit holding player. She got to know a lot of people over the years. They hired Gene Gluck to host this game and basically talk people into coming over there. But that wasn't going to be enough. They had to do more than just get uh, Gene Gluck to recruit people. They also gave her and other employees there power to do favors for people that do play there. So while Commerce kept raising their poker rate at their hotel, when, when I first stayed in that hotel around like 2005 or so, 2004, I think it was 04 I first stayed there. It was $79 a night, no tax. Very good deal. It was a new hotel, too. New hotel, decent, $79 out the door. And it even had a 7 a.m. check-in time, if you wanted. That was a Crown Plaza-wide promotion, so that wasn't really their decision. But but it, it was very nice. Well, they kept raising the, the poker rate over the years, where now it's over 150 It's actually doubled. Often the poker rate is higher than just the rate you'd get online. So, so much for the poker rate, right? Well, what about the bike? The bike, they have a much newer, nicer hotel. The Commerce Hotel has gotten kind of run down. It's not terrible, but it's gotten kind of run down. It's 17 years old, and they haven't maintained it all that well. So they've got the 17-year-old hotel that's kind of run down. The bike recently built a very nice new hotel. They've empowered people like Gene Gluck and others at the bike to hand out discounted or comped nights for playing there. And then they also are charging a lower rake. And I think I've heard, I forgot from who, but someone told me that uh, less rake is better. It wasn't Negreanu. He didn't say that. Someone told me less rake is better. So that 4080 game, the 4080 limit hold'em game, and other games have started to get going on a regular basis at the bike. And Commerce started to notice that some of their games were disappearing. It's by no means dead at Commerce. Commerce is still leading the bike in this action, but they started to see people moving over. And finally, Commerce woke up and said, "Uh uh-oh, this sounds familiar. This is what happened to us. This is what we did to uh, Hollywood Park 17 years ago. Uh Uh-oh. We better do something. So finally, Commerce acted. And in March, they declared this is half-rake month. Starting March 1st, it will be one half-rake on all our games in that section. That was their olive branch back to the community. Come back for half-rake. And their thought was, not like we're going to offer half-rake forever, but we've got to find some way to stop people from moving over to the bike. So we're going to charge half rake. People will come back here. The bike's effort will die, and then they'll raise the rake back up. Because this is a promotion, keep in mind. This wasn't a permanent change in the rake, and they said it's a promotion. But it's kind of a trick. While the bike is trying so hard to steal their action, they'll crush it by charging half rake. Very clever. Except, still wasn't working. (laughs) People were still moving to the bike. That crap. Well, they get to March 31st, and the bike is still making this effort. They go, well, now we can't put the rake back up in April, or otherwise people are going to leave. We've got to keep charging half rake until we can crush this. 
So for all of April now, there's a half-rake promotion in that room at Commerce. Will it be in May? We shall see. I don't know if it's been decided yet. You know, I just realized, I was thinking maybe we should call and ask. I just realized we forgot to make the call to uh, the Ryu Hotels. Which might be a good thing, because now it's kind of late here, so it's early there. It's, it's like past 8 a.m. where they must exist. I don't know where their headquarters is, but we'll try in a second. We're going to try that uh, call to Ryu Hotels. But uh, let, let's try to make a call to Commerce in the meantime. And see if they are going to continue this half-rake promotion in May, which is now, since it's now officially May, uh, April 26th, it's now just five days away, May 1st. So let's see if uh, we can let's see if we can find this find this out. That is, I'm gonna bring up the commerce number again. I used to know it by heart, but I have forgotten. Okay, here we go. Make a call to commerce. Had to be some character. Not sure which one I'll use it. The colonel's the easiest one to do, but why is this not working here? Ah, Skype is terrible. Here we go. Dial pad. It makes you use this dial. It lets you dial, but then it it won't actually call anything unless you use the actual dial pad. What a piece of crap. Well, at least Trader Risky can hear my sounds now. We've got that going. That was good. The draft I do have to sign off. Okay. Well, good night, Trader Risky. Thank but you. But I'm going to listen as long as I can. Come to me, can I help you? Uh, hello, can I Nigel Fabersham here? Um, I'd like to speak to extension 506, please. One moment. 506? What are you trying to get hold of? Uh, uh, bollocks, it may have changed since I last had it. Just, just transfer me to the top section, please. I'll, I'll, I'll get it all okay. worked out over there. All right. Um, Tally-ho, pip-pip. Let's get on with it. It used to be 506. One moment, please. See, this is what I like. I like that we have Sting here. So, uh, say it again. Uh, so, sorry about that. I was uh, admiring the, the the English music you had playing. Um, hello, can I Nigel Fabersham here? I've got a question for you regarding the, the rake in this section. Can you hear? Can you hear me? Hello. That bollocks. <laughs> that worked out well. Let's try this again. For some reason, you couldn't hear me. What annoyance. Got to listen to Sting again here? All right, let's do it all over again. This time I noticed to ask for it rather than the extension. What is this doing? Commerce Casino, how can I help you? Uh, yes, um, can you give me the top section, please? 
course, no problem. Let's sing again. Uh-huh. Forty Hold'em, Nancy, can I help you? Yeah, hello, kind of Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I've got a question about the rake in this section, if you if you don't mind. What section is that, dear? Uh, of the top section. I see. I, I, I came there to play Limit Hold'em about two weeks ago, and I said, "Oh, joy! The the rake is actually half of what I remembered it." And someone told me this is a promotion uh, for the month of April where the rake is half. Is this true? This is true. All right. Now, now, say I were to, to um, come down to the casino there in and, 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 uh, five days on May 1st, uh, would the rake be double again, or, or is it going to remain half? They haven't yet made that announcement. All right. Uh, so it, it, I was told that the reason this is going on, the reason commerce is being so generous and, and giving the, 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 the half rake for the last two months was because um, they're concerned the bike is taking the action away and they're trying to st- stave that off. Um, it, would it help if I were to go down to the bike right now and play there? So, uh, so this way they're doing better and commerce, the, the, the powers that be at your casino will be scared and, and extend the, the, for one more month the, the half rake. Would that, <laughs> would, that be, would that be advisable for me to do? That's funny. <laughs> that's that's good thinking. It's funny though. Uh, I don't know that that would influence anything at all. And we hope you would choose to come here anyway because you enjoy coming, and we offer you good service. Yes. Well, well, you know, I was thinking. Uh, sometimes you've got to take one for the team, and I know that everyone is much enjoying. The, they're much enjoying the rake that's that's cut in half here. So I said, well, if I have to put up playing with the bike, I'll do so. If it does give us another month of half rake, so I was considering <laughs> considering that's maybe so to do that. To bite the bullet for everyone else. Yes. Yeah, so, no, no, that, that's, Please come and see us and enjoy the half rake while it lasts. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. But it, it, it is enti- rather enticing to go down to the bike. That they've got that girl Jean Gluck working there, so I can, yeah, I can, uh, I can, I can enjoy uh, looking at her while I, I, I get uh, free, you know, cheap hotel rooms and, and all that other jazz they give you down there. So I, I must admit, it does have its strong points. But um, I, I do enjoy the half rake as well. So please, please give the mes- message to management here that we're, we're much expecting the the half rake in, in May, and that uh, you're just just raising it back up is going to be counterproductive. That's that's my uh, my opinion here as, as one Englishman to another. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you All so right. much. Tally ho, Pip Pip. A good day. I hope we see you here soon. All right. I, I shall be there so after May 1st if your rake is, 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 is half, <laughs> half what it was. I see you're calling from Las Vegas. Do you have an act over there? You're very funny. <laughs> no, no, but maybe if, if, if I can get a job doing that, I'd be glad to take that as well. You know, any, anything to help pay the bills. Well, you're quite, you're quite entertaining. I hope to see you here. Please right. come Tell by. Tell you how Pip Pip. Let's go on with it. Goodbye. Bye. It's showing my it's showing my phone number. It was showing the Mount Charleston line. I was calling for the Mount Charleston line. That's what she said. She was actually it wasn't even Las Vegas. It was the Mount Charleston line. I, I got to check that out. I didn't know that's displaying. Damn you, Skype. I mean, it's not a big deal, but some, uh, sometimes I want to make the call without them knowing who I am. What, what the hell? All right. Next topic. By the way, a lot of people stuck around so far. A lot of people haven't uh, quit listening. We've had good audience retention tonight somehow. Usually by this time, a lot of people have bailed out. I want to talk about a mistake poker stars made that was just mind-bogglingly stupid. That you'd be surprised a company like PokerStars could make. But they did. PokerStars operates a sports book called BetStars. And it operates out of New Jersey. And, of course, they have to adhere to all the laws and regulations... 
that would be expected for any casino operating there and now offering sports bets legally, as is now allowed in New Jersey. Well, something New Jersey does not want and has a law against is betting on any New Jersey teams, or at least of collegiate teams. I don't, I don't know about uh, pro teams, but I, I know that uh, collegiate teams cannot be bet on in New Jersey if that team is based in New Jersey, and they're doing this to prevent any kind of game fixing. Well, Poker Stars somehow didn't know this. Despite operating a sports book in New Jersey, they were not aware of this. And in a game involving uh, Rutgers and Eastern Michigan, Rutgers being in New Jersey, they took 216 bets on the Rutgers game, and then they even took a few more bets on a game with Monmouth University versus the University of Pennsylvania, and Monmouth University is also in New Jersey. So for taking those bets, they have been fined by the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement for $10,000, which is not a lot of money to poker stars, but still kind of boneheaded. (laughs) They took a total of $2,756.89 in 216 bets on Rutgers, which is... Why are people betting so little? Are they really collecting an average of about $10 per bet? That's insane. That's what it sounds like. I guess this was online. People are betting much less. Like, they they don't have a few bets over like $500 or $1,000. How how do they have an average of like a $10 per bet? Of 216. That's crazy. They got fined 10,000, as I said, and believe it or not, that is actually a record fine in the state of New Jersey. They must not fine casinos very often if 10,000 is the most that's been paid. Prior to this, the highest fine that was ever paid to the New Jersey. Division of Gaming Enforcement was $2,000. How is this possible with those casinos existing so long there that there's never been a fine paid more than two k? That's what this article says. I don't know if I can believe that. Poker stars with egg on their face made a comment about this nonetheless. Matt Primeu, or Primo, I think is the way you pronounce his name, P-R-I-M-E-A-U-X, Matt Primo at the Stars Group, formerly known as Amaya, said, We generally don't comment on regulatory matters like these, but we had a manual gating error from our international games into New Jersey. We cooperated with the Division of Gaming Enforcement, as we always do. We have learned from the, the problem and are confident it won't reoccur. So he's claiming that they had an international betting site, too, and they forgot to block these ones off for New Jersey, which is probably what really happened. But Senator Ray Lesniak, 
who was the sponsor of the bill that made sports betting legal in New Jersey, said he thinks this whole thing's stupid. He said, if it's not going to affect the integrity of the pros, it's not going to affect the college kids. I can't really agree with that because the pros are making a lot of money. The college kids are not making any money. So, yeah, they're a lot more susceptible to being bribed. It's kind of hard to bribe a pro who's already making a ton of money to throw a sports game these days. Especially because they would put it into that person's career, too. It's just not worth the risk. You couldn't bribe them enough. The college players, different story. That's not really good logic. I do think with how spread out everything is now, it is kind of antiquated thinking to say that if you prevent betting within the state of New Jersey, that's going to solve the problem of the games being fixed. Like you can easily, if you've got a big syndicate, you can either get easily get people to bet in Vegas or online or wherever you want to get action down on a college game. If you're fixing it, you don't need it to be in New Jersey. It's not like the old days where the only place to bet anywhere was Nevada. So if you could prevent the betting in Nevada, then you're preventing betting other than small-time bookies. Like, here, there's so many different betting options, including legal ones now, that just stopping the betting in New Jersey is not even going to help very much if there is game fixing going on. So that, that's the argument. Not not that it's not going to affect the integrity of the college games because it doesn't affect the pros. It's a dumb thing to say. So Stars got fined. They claim they won't let it happen again, and we'll see. Just kind of a funny boneheaded mistake on their part. All right. Moving along. Moving along. What is our next topic? Oh. An update on a story involving an illegal poker game in Kansas, which was being protected by the police, by corrupt police, and the whole thing came crashing down, and another guilty plea related to that whole situation. We've talked about it before on this show. Last time was a while ago when we talked about this, but uh, I will refresh your memory. This is what happened. In Kansas, there was an underground poker game in Wichita, and it was raided in 2017. I think that's when we last talked about it. After years of an investigation into it, And this game was unusual in that not only was it an illegal poker game that existed underground, and there's many of those around the country and around the world, but that this one was protected by police. Certain corrupt police officers were aware of the game and were looking the other way. And the police were also assisting the organizers of the game with preventing anyone else in law enforcement from finding out about this and and catching them. So a a police officer named Michael Zajkowski 
who was uh, who's 51. He just pled guilty this week to one count of concealing a felony in connection to the game. And here's what happened. In 2014, there was uh, an undercover detective who was able to get an invite into the game. This was a detective who was not working with them and looking to bust this game. The problem was, because uh, this undercover detective got in there, I don't think he knew that there were cops that were in on this whole thing. So this uh, Zajikowski guy, who was also a cop, along with two other officers, were there at the game and said, oh crap, this this." we know this guy is a police officer. So they were concerned that uh, this guy was not just coming there to play on his off time, but was really there with an undercover investigation. They knew he was a police officer, but that didn't necessarily mean he was part of an investigation. So how did they figure this out? Well, what Zajikowski did was... He ran the plates on the car. (coughs) Sorry about that. He ran the plates on the car that this officer drove to the game. And the plates came back as being an unmarked police vehicle. So they knew at that point that this is part of an investigation because if this guy was just coming to play on his own, he would have driven his own car, not driven a car which is associated with undercover police investigations. So they told the organizers of the game, yep, we have an undercover cop here. And uh, they, they quickly changed what they were doing there. But eventually it all came crashing down. This Michael Zajikowski and two other officers who were there, Bruce Mackey and Brock Wedman, were charged with instruction, uh, obstruction. And the, the concealing felony charge had to do with the fact that they were concealing the fact that this game which was charging rake, was running, which was against the law there. Usually the cases with these underground poker games, if they don't charge rake, then it's not illegal. But if they charge any kind of rake, then it's illegal. This is what makes the difference between just home games between friends and games running for profit. Then this Brock Wedman guy remember also police officer, was charged additionally with lying to the FBI. And then a Kansas Highway Patrol officer named uh, Michael Fredrickson was also charged because he secretly videotaped that uh, secretly videotaped that undercover officer to try to figure out more of who he was because I don't think they had his real name. I think they just recognized that he was another police officer. So they were trying to identify who is this guy. The manager of that game, whose name is David Flax, 
and another person involved named Danny Chapman were both charged. These were not cops, but actually organizers of the game. And they pled guilty a year ago. And that was that for those two. But they were still going after the officers. And uh, after some time here, Michael Zajikowski was the first of those four officers to make a plea deal and plead guilty. They do face a maximum penalty of five years in prison and a fine of up to a 250K. It's unlikely they'll get either of those two, but there was going to be some real prison time, possibly, if there was not a deal made. The recommendation for Zajikowski, aside from uh, no longer being a cop, that he's been fired, but the, the recommendation for the criminal penalty is a year of probation. And uh, I don't know if there's any fine. But that's pretty sweet for him to just, I mean, yeah, he got fired, but all he gets is a year of probation for this. It's pretty good. I thought they'd be worse. But the other three apparently have not made such a deal yet, though maybe it's in the works. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas announced that uh, Zajikowski and his plea admitted that he knew about illegal private poker games in Wichita and he did not report it to authorities. On February 12, 2014, one of the co-defendants suspected an undercover Wichita police officer had come to a poker game posing as a gambler. At the co-defendant's request, Zajikowski attempted to find out whether there was a police investigation and provided information to the co-defendant. After this undercover visit, you'd think they would have moved the game, but somehow they didn't. And, uh, or maybe they did, I'm not sure, but, but whatever, this obviously got the police's attention big time. They should have just shut down the games at that point, knowing that they were a step away from being busted. But at that point, there were a lot of wiretap warrants obtained for various people involved in the games, and uh, this was what led to the various arrests and convictions. There was a connection to this. I think I mentioned this uh, when we last talked about this topic about two years ago. There were two well-known businessmen in Wichita that were thought to be involved in this whole thing. And that was uh, Brandon Stephen and Rodney Stephen. Brandon actually plays in some high roller poker tournaments and has actually cashed more than $3 million, according to Headed Mob. He's actually the Kansas tournament cash leader. That doesn't mean he's a winning player because he's played in these high, very high buy-in tournaments. But he he has cashed the most of anyone from Kansas. Sorry, Jay Searles. He actually beat Jay Searles out somehow in that category. But uh, neither of these brothers were charged. And there was some suspicion that they were part of the ownership or operation of the games, but their evidence couldn't be found, so they were not charged in any way. So it's not clear if that if they were actually guilty of anything or not. They, whatever it was, not enough was found to charge them. 
but their names definitely came up in the investigation. Final topic has to do with sports betting. And I may do an editorial at the end. I may do an editorial because there's been something in my mind lately. Not not having to do with poker or anything, but uh, something I was going to talk about that's not on the agenda. I want to talk about the new sports betting watchdog association that has been formed as kind of a co-op between a lot of these sports betting operators in the U.S. now that offering sports betting is allowed in states other than Nevada. So there's a there's a new organization called SWIMA. Not Swimmer, but SWIMA. SWIMA, I don't know how you say it. S-W-I-M-A. What does that stand for? It stands for Sports Wagering Integrity Monitoring Association. And they've officially launched. The goal of the organization, which is not a government body in any way, it's a co-op between various commercial entities, but their goal is to detect and discourage fraud and other illegal or unethical activity related to betting on sporting events in the United States, such as Game fixing. In Europe, there is a similar organization called ESSA, which stands for Europe Sports Security Association, and they actually have been successful in finding game fixing and things like that. So SWIMA is attempting to do the same thing in the U.S., and they figured it was time for that because sports betting now exists over so many is, uh, over so many states and it keeps expanding that uh, they're afraid this is going to get out of control. So SWIMA is attempting to identify things like this and lead leading to the non-acceptance of suspicious bets and also the arrest and prosecution of anyone who does this. Though again, they don't have the power to do anything. They can only uh, report what they find. The exact mission statement of SWIMA says, SWIMA brings together sportsbook operators and regulators across the U.S. to protect the integrity of sports betting by collaboratively identifying suspicious wagering activity. What do they mean by that? They, suspicious wagering activity is where there's a whole lot of money placed on something where you wouldn't normally expect it. Uh, for example, the Super Bowl is the most wagered on event there is. So if there's a lot of wagering activity on the Super Bowl, that's not very surprising. That's not suspicious at all. But if if some college football game of two small schools that most people aren't going to care about gets a whole lot of money bet on one side, that is suspicious wagering activity because it just wouldn't make sense to have such volume. So that's when they start looking into it and say, okay, why is there so much action on one side? And it could be because there's some sort of game fixing going on. So that's sort of what they're looking for. If you want to see the website for SWIMA, it's at SWIMA.net, S-W-I-M-A.net. There is also the American Gaming Association. But... uh, The uh, 
they're probably not going to get involved in this. It's probably Swimma who's going to deal with all the sports betting stuff. That's a kind of a similar organization, which various casinos are members of. The idea for Swimma actually was from the two gaming giants in Las Vegas, MGM and Caesars. But other companies have now joined. There are 26 members of Swimma. 888-BET-365-BWIN, Caesars, Churchill Downs, DraftKings, FanDuel, Gaming Innovation Group, I haven't even heard of them, Golden Nugget, Hard Rock, IGT, they're the ones who make a lot of the machines, Camby, I don't know what they are either, MGM, Monmouth Park, New Meadowlands Racetrack, Ocean Casino Resort, which is Atlantic City, Penn National Gaming, Points Bet USA, I'm not sure what that is, Resorts Casino, Rush Street Interactive, SB Tech, Scientific Games, The Stars Group, which is Poker Stars, of course, Tropicana Atlantic City, Unibet, and William Hill. What's missing there? What What's not there on the list? What is missing from this list of casinos and sports betting entities? What is missing there? Wait a minute. Where is the Sands Group? Uh-oh. Yeah. Las Vegas Sands. Sheldon Adelson's hotels are not part of it. Hmm. Each of these 26 entities receives a seat on the board of delegates that decides policy. So, in the launch statement, it also says, SWIMA is fully funded by sports betting operators in all markets in the United States. It does not require funding from any state or the federal government, taxpayers, or the sports leagues. SWIMA works with sports betting operators, risk management professionals, and gaming regulators in identifying unusual betting activity that could result in investigation by regulatory and law enforcement agencies. So they're basically saying, we're not the government. The government doesn't give us money. We are funded by casinos and others in the industry. And we investigate, and then we hand over the results of the investigation to actual law enforcement who can decide what to do. And they can also decide whether to continue taking bets on something or from some suspicious entities, they can cut them off. So they're they're doing this for their own protection, not for anything noble. They're not trying to do anything for any kind of high-minded purpose, just to prevent themselves from being taken advantage of by any kind of game-fixing syndicates. Because the victim of that tends to be the casino. Because when there's disproportionate action on one side, and then that one side wins, the casino loses. What the casino usually wants is approximately equal action on both sides, so they're guaranteed to win because of the rake. They will sometimes discourage that. They'll sometimes actually try to push all the action to one side, but that's when the sports book has a strong position on where they think the result's going to be. That's sometimes known as a concept as, as reverse line movement, where the line on the game moves the opposite direction than you'd expect based upon the betting material. That has nothing to do with game fixing. That's just where the casino will occasionally take a side on a game. 
because they have a strong belief a certain side is going to win, that's that's a time they won't take equal action. But otherwise, they try to encourage equal action, so they're guaranteed to win just for the juice. But there's very disproportionate betting, and the side with the far more betting wins than the casino loses. That's what they're trying to stop here. Okay, I'm going to do the editorial, then we're going to shut this down. A little bit of vocal issues tonight. Kind of right from the start. There's been a lot of talk recently about free college tuition. That's been a big topic in the news. Elizabeth Warren has been pushing it. Bernie Sanders has been discussing it. It's been a big topic as the candidates who are going to be competing in the Democratic primary, a very crowded field. I think there's like 20 candidates already. will be vying to be the winner to compete <clears throat> against what is seen to be a very vulnerable incumbent in Donald Trump. So there's a lot of candidates who really want their shot at this because they think they can beat Trump. They just got to get past this Democratic field. And one idea that's been thrown around recently has been free college tuition. Now, keep in mind, everything is not free. There's, no, there's nothing that's free. Everybody's paying for something, if you think about it. Everything costs money in some way. Anything you're getting for free, somebody else is paying for, or something else is paying for. So when there is free college tuition, the money comes from somewhere. But they have an answer for that. The plan that Elizabeth Warren was proposing calls for a wealth tax. That is not to tax income, but to tax existing wealth that really, really rich people have that they're just sitting on. So tax some of that wealth, take that money, and pay for everyone's college, and also forgive all existing college loans. Any kind of college loan debt will be forgiven as if it never existed. And school will be free going forward. Now, aside from the fact that I don't believe that this wealth tax can even accomplish that, there's a tremendous amount of money involved in doing all this. Tremendous amount. But even putting that aside, is this the right thing to do? And I, I had some discussions with some people about this, both on Poker Fraud Alert and on Facebook, and even some people I know in my personal life. And it, this topic kind of bugged me to where I felt like I just wanted to discuss it out here. So my problem is that on its surface, this can sound like a good idea, but I feel it's actually the opposite. It sounds like a good idea because it is true that a lot of people have to take loans to pay for their college education. It is true that these loans will often dog them throughout uh, a lot of their young and even sometimes middle-aged life as they try to pay them back between the loan principal and all the interest. And maybe they're just not quite making enough of their jobs where this loan just follows them around for a lot of the early portions of their adult life. And they're constantly having to make these payments to pay for their education. So what's really so bad about these people who have put such effort into getting educated and completing their college degree and starting a career? What's wrong with just 
forgiving these loans, I mean, there's a lot of countries where college education is free. So what's wrong with just saying to these people, hey, you don't have to pay back these college loans. Don't worry. The government will cover it. It'll come from the super rich who's just sitting on wealth anyway. Give these people a break, right? Doesn't sound nice. Doesn't sound very uh, – doesn't that sound like something that is good for these people? Maybe it's deserved. Maybe it's empathetic. Maybe it will inject money into the economy because these people have more money to spend. There's, there's so many reasons that sound like they're good reasons to do this. Until you really think about it. This is something that sounds good on the surface until you really think about it. So let's put aside where the money's coming from. You know, let's put aside this whole let's tax existing wealth crap that I, I, I've never liked in the first place and I think is very flawed. But let's not even discuss that here because that's not the issue. But let's forget where the money's coming from. Let's just say the money's there. Any money the government has, any money the government collects in taxes, no matter who gets taxed, it just once they have the money, the question is, how do you spend the money? Any money that's spent by the government could have been spent on something else. And that's important to think about. Because it's not, a, it's not just about, can someone use this money? It's not just about, can this money help people? But is this money being spent wisely, or could it be used in a better way? So once you have the money, how are you going to spend it? And I don't feel this is the right place to spend it for various reasons. So first of all, it's unfair and arbitrary. Who takes college loans? It's either people who can't afford to go to college or people that uh, could barely afford it, but uh, this makes it easier on them. But what is the end game for people taking college loans? For some people, the end game is a direct path to a lucrative career where they figure, yes, these loans are going to build up to a lot of money, but one day I will be an engineer. One day I'll be a lawyer. One day I'll be a doctor. One day I will have a good enough job to where I can pay back these loans fairly easily. So it's worth investing now in my college education, which will directly lead to a much better career that I otherwise couldn't have if I didn't go to college. Those are the responsible people, and provided they actually do pay back the loans and manage their money properly and actually do complete college and actually do complete whatever further education is required for their career goals, provided things go to plan and if they actually pay it back, they're the responsible ones. But there's others who just want to go to college. That's just what they want to do. It's what their friends are doing. It's what seems to be the cool thing to do. And they really don't want to enter the workforce yet. They, they want to live the college life. They don't really know what they want to do with themselves. They don't have a real career in mind. They don't even know what major they want. Sometimes they'll end up majoring in something that really has no real-world application, like gender studies. And yet they'll take loans to do it. 
then they will complete college and they'll get their gender studies degree and they'll go, "Uh uh-oh, what now? How do I get a job with a degree in gender studies? So then they have to take some low-wage job and then they've got that crippling college debt over their head and sometimes they default on the loans and sometimes they barely scrape by to pay them back, but a lot of times these loans get defaulted on or they start getting behind and sometimes these loans never get paid back. Those are the irresponsible people. There's other responsible people who don't go to college because they don't want these loans. There are people who say, you know, I'd like to go to college, but I can't afford it, nor do I want to take on all this debt to complete college. I don't want to start out my life with so much debt. Even if I have a college degree, I don't want to start out with so much debt. I'm just not going to do it. If college is free, I'd do it. It's not free, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to go into the workforce, take a lesser paying job, be less desirable to hire, but I'm not starting off in debt. I got to respect those people. They're being responsible. So you can be responsible by just not taking the loans in the first place and skipping college. You can be responsible by taking the loans, making sure you graduate college, making sure that you take your career seriously and start making enough money at your job to where you can pay the loans back and actually pay them and manage your money well enough to where you do pay them back. Or you could be irresponsible and just not really focus on any of this and when it comes time to pay the loans, just screw it and don't pay them. Default on them. Or maybe you're trying to pay them, but you just never were able to get much of a good enough job to really afford to do that. Because you didn't major in something that really had a real-world application, despite taking all these loans. So what would loan forgiveness, who would, who would benefit from it? Would it be the guy who got the nice career going and paid back all his college loans? The one who just finished paying them back maybe a few months ago? After all the hard work, all the responsible living, responsible management of money? Nope, doesn't help him. Does it help the person who chose not to go to college and has some kind of lower-end blue-collar job that they took because they didn't want to take on all that debt? Does it help that person for making that responsible decision? Nope, does not help him either. Who does it help? It helps the irresponsible person who took loans that they could not pay back and that they may have even known they were going to have a hard time paying back or should have known they would have had a hard time paying back. Or maybe the person who took the college loans and didn't finish college. This program helps out largely those who were not responsible. And the responsible ones who paid the loans back, who just finished paying the loans back, get screwed because had they known that in 2020 that these were going to be forgiven, 
or 2021, whenever it happens. It probably won't happen, by the way, but this is the idea being proposed. But let's say it's, it's proposed and, and one of these candidates wins on the Democratic side and then this becomes law, okay, in 2021. The problem is that this reaches back in the past and retroactively changes the details that led to people making an important life decision. And that life decision is, should I go to college and should I take loans to go to college? And anyone whose parents were not paying for them to go to college had to make this decision. If your parents were not paying you, unless somehow you inherited a lot of money at a young age, very young age, you had to make the decision, do I take loans? Do I take on debt? Or do I just skip college for the whole thing? Or or do I at least try to do it cheaper by going through community college at first and then at least bringing down the cost? Like all these decisions about college and loans and all of all this, it was all having to do with your ability to pay it back, whether you want to start your life with all that debt. And each person came to their own decision, which they thought was best for them, with the information that was there. And now we are reaching back into the past and changing everything which led to those decisions. And then it changes whether these decisions are right or wrong. So what was a right decision five years ago, eight years ago, is now the wrong decision. Doesn't that suck for the person who made the right decision who is responsible? So the person who said, I'm going to make sure to pay back my loans on time because I went through college. I have a good job. I'm not going to suffer any of these consequences, hits to my credit, potential lawsuits, everything else bad that comes with defaulting on these loans. I'm going to pay back my loans as promised so I don't have any of those consequences coming to me. I'm going to do what I agreed to do. That person has now made the wrong decision. If you could have just kept all this money, not paid a damn thing back, and then you get forgiveness in the year 2021. Pretty good deal, right? If only you could have known when you made that decision, right? Before you paid all that back. What about the person who didn't go to college? Even worse for them, because they skipped college when they really did want to go to college because they couldn't afford it, and they did not want to get in all this debt to go to college. So they said, as much as I'd like to go, I'm going to have to skip because I don't want all this debt. But now we've reached back into the past and changed all the details that they used to make that decision. And all of a sudden, they made the wrong decision not going to college because they could have gone to college, gotten a degree, had a better job now, and then it could have just screwed screwed off all that debt. They wouldn't have to pay. If only they could have known back then that this was all going to be wiped off. If only they could have known that they the irresponsible decision was the correct one. And that's the big problem here. I'll take a call. Why not? Caller, you're on the air. Hey, hey, what's up? Can, can you hear me pretty clear? I can hear you. What's going on? Hey, what's up? Um... So yeah, I just wanted I just had a few rebuttals for what you're saying. Okay, go ahead. I mean, I definitely I, I definitely do get your point. Like it does kind of in a way 
reward those that were irresponsible. Like a friend of mine, he used his 20 grand to just buy a car and it was just whatever at, at that point. So I do understand that point, but the main issue is the blue collar, the ones who are responsible. At this point, they're becoming a part of the low middle class to poor. And a lot of them, they've lost their jobs to automation. So in order to get new skills, it's kind of difficult to work like a low paying job, 40 hours a week, plus go to school now that they've lost their main job. I, I just think it's become a necessity. I mean, as far as funding it, I don't believe in taxing people who work hard and grinded to get to having a high salary. It is bullshit to lose like up to 50% of what you've earned. But I do feel the government, as much money as they waste in other areas, they could definitely find the funding for this. Like, look at the full tilt thing. Like, how much money did they get from there? Just tens of millions just from nothing. Um, I just feel there's those kind of avenues as far as funding it. And Well, I mean, yeah, the irresponsible ones, more than likely, they'll just continue what they're doing and won't finish school. But at least the blue-collar ones can move up and, you know, start to get out of that poor or to lower class because they're really the, it hurts them more than it like punishes the irresponsible ones because they'll just continue doing what they do you, well, you know what I mean well I, I think there, there's two issues though there, one of the one of the issues is do you make education free or much cheaper for people who want to go to school going forward and then there's the other question of people who have existing loans that they took that that are sitting over their head that they had to pay back. Do you just forgive those? And right now, I'm, o- I'm only really talking right now about the forgive- forgiveness of loans, not about the free school going forward, which is a different story. Because that, uh, regardless of where you are on the side of that, at least that has to do with something going forward where the, everybody can make the decision for the future rather than going back. Right now, my problem is that you're actually going back into the past and changing good decisions into bad ones and bad ones into good ones. You're changing the details that people use to make a decision. And, I, and just in general, I can't ever support that. Yeah, I, I do see that. Um now, the only thing with that is that if you if you kind of go back, like, with people who are 17 and 18 and get those offers, like, I mean, they really don't know what they're signing up for. Look at the people who got duped in the housing crisis. Like, they were adults, most of them, and they really got F. So, like, kids for sure got taken advantage of. Like, I remember getting checks for thousands of dollars that I never requested. They would just come to you. Now, I I don't know about maybe forgiving it totally, but maybe something to reduce the interest. Right, and and that's and I was going to say I was going to actually say that I was going to say that I wouldn't have a problem where if they if it was determined that the interest was too high and that 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 young people who didn't understand it well, even if they were of the legal age to sign for it, that they didn't understand that well what that really meant, and that that's been a huge burden. That that maybe there could be some interest forgiveness where they still have to pay it back, but where it's uh it's more manageable, and 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 that any element of taking advantage of people is is taken away. That I, I would be more for having done i just i just don't like where it really i don't like when the you're changing something where you're going back into the past making it to where the responsible decision became the wrong one and the irresponsible one became the right one i i I really hate that as far as 
changing something retroactively. That's my biggest problem with this. Now, as far as um, as far as that even becoming a reality, this is one of those topics where it's like dangling a carrot in front of you. It's just one of those things where they know politicians know most people are in debt, so they just try and bring up a topic that would appeal to them. But yes, it's very unlikely, you know, that anything would happen. I agree. But to get um, to the topic of moving forward, if um, school were free. I I would like to see an exchange of maybe cut some of the like um, programs people use for like I guess I guess I'll say it, like just cut some of welfare like those type of programs and shit and then just convert it into people just being able to go to school like well I'll I'll, I'll uh, say I'll say this here when I went to I went to a public college. And I, I went you know, a pretty long time ago now. I'm not that young anymore. And, and so I, I, my first year in college was 1990. And in 1990 at the University of California, the entire tuition for the year was $1,800. For in-state students, yeah, $1,800. <laughs> so, yeah, now, inflation, you, you can probably double that, so it's probably, probably, yeah, probably about 3500 today. That's still nothing compared to today. You can't, you can't go to the same school for anywhere near that rate as an in-state student. So, so there, it, it way outpaced inflation, the change in tuition. And this is something, I'll admit, I don't understand why it happened. And uh, if, if in 1990 that amount of money was enough – for for the, for the students to pay, and the state covered the rest. Why why is it now that it's so much more? And I think that's worth looking into. And and, and that's yeah. the and and if there were cuts, if the state just started paying less, then go back and return to the days where the state was subsidizing it more. I think that's fine. I I, I do think that the that there has been uh, an unnecessary escalation, and I think I have an idea of why this is. Unfortunately. I don't think it's necessarily that the state's been paying less. And I haven't researched this, so maybe I'm wrong. But I believe that this, what's probably happening here, is that the schools themselves are getting more greedy and saying, oh, well, we need this much more money to uh, for each student, otherwise we won't be able to, to stay open. So, so they keep raising yeah. the tuition, claiming, and that's been one problem. That's been, and that's been one criticism of these proposals for free school is, well, someone's got to pay for the school. It's not just free. It's, it's someone's paying the schools. So if, if, if the government's paying the, the, then the, the schools can really, really jack up the rates. And, and, and then it, it's, it's really going, they're really going to get undeserved, super high tuition, but this time from, public money and you have to watch out for that too but what i'd like to see is for whatever reason whatever made this tuition shoot up from what little i paid in 19 it even rose quickly while i was there in the years i was in there it rose very very rapidly and i couldn't understand it and and now it's it's way higher than that uh, almost 30 years later so it's so inflation adjusted i i want i would love to see why has it gotten more expensive and 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 look into rolling that back and whatever changed that unless there's a really good reason for it which i doubt there is bring it back to the way it was before and and uh and i i think some of this had to do with greed on the part of the schools unfortunately and and i i would like to see it more accessible i do think it's it's crappy that it has gotten so expensive even at public schools 
and and that people do have to take oh, yeah. such such large loans to to get an education if their family can't pay for it, and it does suck, and it does suck to you get out of school and you have this tremendous debt hanging over you, and and even if you get a good job, it does take some years to get it down, and and I can I can understand people going, look, this has got to change, and and so I I think there I still think there should be some tuition, but uh, you know, so where you're kind of investing in it, you're not just saying, oh, it's free, I might as well go. But uh, like look at Ken Scaler, I, I almost got him on the show tonight, he, but he, his phone was about to die. He, he goes to community college for fun, and he's been doing this for uh, for thirty years now. <laughs> and, and and he he really does he does it for he does it because he just enjoys the whole college environment. He likes just learning about a variety of topics. He likes staring at the girls. There's a, a number of reasons he does it. So so the thing is here, uh, even though I, I find it amusing, he does this. Uh, I, I do have to admit this isn't a good use of public of public funds because it is mostly public funds paying for him to do this. So, like, like this is what yeah. needs to be avoided; that it shouldn't be wasted. But on the other hand, when people want to get to really get an education, that uh, it oh, should I, I it should mention, it, it should be more accessible um, than it is now. I I've got to mention I'm from um, so in New Mexico. Your first four years out of high school actually is covered um, by the by the state lottery. So, oh, interesting. I did forget about that. Now, one thing that is bull, like like you said, like they do rip you off as far as the price of the credits, especially going to like USC and UCLA. Like that Olsen twin lady, like look at the fucking money they paid. Like, say what you want, but they put down like two hundred and fifty grand for that shit. It's like, um, I think uh, the way they rip you off is look at the prerequisites you have to take. A lot of it, it's stuff you took in high school, and it's like a mandatory class. So you, the first year is just a pure waste. Um, it is now, it's community college is like a good alternative. Like some people should have gone to USC. That's like thirty k a semester. It's like, well, you should have known better in that sense. But there there should be something, like you said, like colleges are charging just way, way too much for nothing classes, really. Yeah, and, and what you're mentioning with the general eds that you have to have, that you have to complete to, to get a degree, that actually goes back to something that goes way before <clears throat> either of us were born. And that is this idea, and, and it would be worth looking into that colleges could reform this, that there's going to be a lot of resistance from this, that they, they, they want you not just to, to graduate knowledgeable in your major, but they want you to graduate being like a well-rounded individual who, who has learned about other things. And, and while that's a noble goal in some ways, I, I think that uh, – if, if that's what, yeah, it's a waste of time and money for a lot of people, and and uh, that's something that it, it should be. If if you want to do this, if you also want to learn about these other uh, topics and and other areas that you can pay to do that on your own, but to make this mandatory for for your degree. And I know this; I got a degree in computer science, and I took a lot of classes there. I was forced to take that had nothing to do with computer science at all, even even slightly to do with it. Yeah. So 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 <laughs> so, so 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 like I I agree that a lot of this could be streamlined by just saying, look, we're, we're going to cut this requirement. You're just going to you, you you should just have to take courses for your major and and also. 
important things that 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 are, are a basis for your major. So, like a, a computer science uh, student has to take math classes. That makes sense, but uh, but but not not to take a lot of these general ed courses that have nothing to do with any of that. So so where it, it could be available to take, but that the state wouldn't necessarily fund it, and th- there there could be a lot of reform there too. Unfortunately, you, you would see you would see a lot of resistance because of. Uh, Academia, but they believe in this so heavily about this whole thing about you need to graduate as a well-rounded individual. But, but yeah, truthfully, the time and the money to make this a requirement, you have to look. Maybe that's not a a good use of the time or money that people are forced to do. So yeah, that's 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 a good point there. And they're they're just they just have to look at why why is it this expensive? What can be done? Why wasn't it this expensive thirty years ago? And uh, th- that's where it needs to be looked at. And and uh, but I I don't think the solution is just to say, well, okay, the government's just going to cover everything now. And, and I say the same thing about healthcare. That just saying, okay, well, from now on, the government's just going to cover everything. This is the same thing's going to happen. In fact, if that happens, I don't want to get in a whole discussion with healthcare. But the biggest problem we'll see if we have government uh, provided healthcare, government paid for healthcare, is that. that, that we will see a major doctor shortage where there's too many people going to the doctor because it's free for them, and you're going to have yeah. such a hard time getting in for anything, and it's going to be a disaster. We already have a doctor shortage right now, and it's going to be a disaster. If they, I, I'm dreading if this happens, and I'm afraid it might in the next few years. But if this if this happens, because the truth is neither party is handling the healthcare thing right. Neither of them is doing it right. Neither of them is close to doing it right. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse and worse. And eventually everyone's going to throw up their hands and say, you know what? Screw this. Uh, the, the rest of the Western world has a socialized medicine. We're going to do it too. But we're, not, only are, are those, not only is the socialized medicine in these other countries flawed, but it'll be even worse here because here would be switching from a system that's not socialized to one that is, and it wouldn't be ready for it. And it would be a complete disaster. You have a doctor shortage. You have a, a, a tremendous expenditures we didn't have before. It, it, it would it would it's, it's, it would flop so badly, and it would be so terrible. People don't even know, and they won't know this till they try. It'll be tried, and then people are going to go, "Oh my God, this is awful! <laughs> what do we do about this?" It would be like a, it would be like I I remember thinking this years ago. It would be like the free clinic, like government funded shit is horrible. Like you wait forever. Um, you wait like literally fucking hours where it's not like where you can go in and just see your doctor. I do imagine it, it would be something like that just because it, like you said, it's just the way the government, it'd be like the DMV basically. Like yeah. they, they just don't do anything smooth at all. Yeah. And, and also I, I'd have, I, I personally experienced things in healthcare where I, like my knee is hurting, and, and I'm going. Well, I, I could go in and have a lot of expensive tests on my knee, but no, I don't want to waste my money on that. I'm just going to wait two weeks to see if my knee gets better. And I wait two weeks. Oh wow, my knee is better. I didn't waste any money. Well, if it's free, why not? Why not go down there and get it done? Now, now it's true. If there's such a shortage of doctors, you may not get, you may not get in for a long time. That may that may stop it, but but that wouldn't be by design. That'd be just the way it happens. But it, 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 believe me, that and. It, the country is so not ready for the healthcare system we have set up is so not ready for this conversion is the first problem. The second problem, and I think I've said this before on this show, I'm not sure if I've said it on the show or in the forum, but since I had these health problems of my own last year and that continue into this year, I, I, I joined a lot of groups and forums and stuff discussing these problems I had. And something I found on these groups were a lot of complaints about the socialized 
systems in other countries where they live. And these are not people who are trying to be political. These are not people trying to make any kind of uh, point about this stuff. These are people who just want to get better. And they were so frustrated how long it took to get it to see a doctor, how, how the tests they wanted and definitely were justified to have were not being approved, or how long the approval process was taking. And they were saying, we wish so badly we lived in the U.S. like a lot of you do. And you can just go see the doctor today or tomorrow, and you can just go get this test approved immediately. And 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 we can't do it. We we've been waiting five months to see the doctor about this. We, uh, the, the the endoscopy we really need was denied, and they, they're so frustrated. And the, again, these are not people making a political point. They just want to get better. And I go, wow, this is this is eye opening because th- this is me seeing people speaking from the heart about their own medical condition and their own health care from the standpoint of people who just want to get better. And and I said, wow, this is not people praising that system there. It's the opposite. And I thought, wow, that's 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 kind of what I suspected, but it would be even worse here. And and that's why you, you've really got to watch out before you just say, let's let the government take over and just pay for everything and, and, and just let them do it all because it, it, it can be a disaster and, and you have to be ready for it. And and, uh, and then once the whole thing becomes a disaster, it's not a matter of just snapping your fingers and going back to where it was before. So that's that's what people have to watch out for. And, and unfortunately, what I've seen too much – from from politics these days, are is, is there is there's too much pandering? Like, well, uh, this has been too expensive for you. This has been a big burden for you. Why don't we just make this free? And at first, everybody's like, "Oh, great, let's make it free," because they who doesn't want free things? But then you have to think about, well, what are the consequences of that? And and that's what people really need to think about. And and it, it, it the real solution should be doing something right and being fair to everybody. And, and, and doing what's logical, not what's just going to make a certain percentage of the population happy and not what uh, is, is going to be a very temporary fix that's going to cause further problems down the line. I, I think it'd be more um, beneficial if they put, like, um, maybe limited what these pharmaceutical and the insurance companies could charge. I, I don't really like the idea of how... It seems like these insurance companies, they think of, they basically charge the person the max they can. I don't see why there shouldn't be maybe like a tiered or set limit. And that determines like the type of health care you get and how fast you're seen. Right. I, I've I thought about that too. Be such I, a wide ranging amount. I've actually thought about that too. It's funny because I, I've mentioned that that could be a possible solution also where, where the, the, you're, you're basically getting what you pay for. And, uh, and and also, yeah, 100%. I, I, and, but also, the, 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 as far as the pharmaceuticals, there, there has to be competition there. It's ridiculous that uh, the prices are jacked up in the U.S. because the insurance will pay that, and in other countries they won't pay it, so they they sell it cheaper. So there needs to be competition to where you can buy you can buy your pharmaceuticals from England, you can buy it from other first world countries where you're getting quality stuff, but uh, but but much cheaper. So that once there's competition, that'll bring it down. And, and another big problem we have with with healthcare. Is that at the moment there is no incentive for a doctor to be good? A doctor who's good will not make any more money than a doctor who's bad, because since there's a shortage anyway, they always fill up and they 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 bill the same thing to the insurance. And there's no reward for being better or doing a better job or having a better reputation. There's very little reward, and and, and this that's never a good system where there's no incentive to do well. 
yeah, look at these uh, these oxy doctors, like the the little stipend or whatever money they get for pushing that shit. Like it's way more than what they're getting, and and like you said, there is no consequence. Like those doctors have been exposed all kind, and they're still practicing medicine. And like a yeah, a doctor who's rude and shitty, like what are they going to do? Fire him? Like well, yeah, and they're working for themselves. In many, t- they're working for themselves in many cases, and and they get uh, and they get the same compensation from the insurance company and the same copay from you as they would if they did a great job. And and you and and so that's the problem. There's there's they're they're going to fill up either way. So it, it's crazy. It's almost like thinking that. Uh, like there would be such a shortage of restaurants and places to eat that that going to McDonald's would be the same price as going to a steakhouse, and and the McDonald's says, well, hey, we can charge what the steakhouse charges because people are going to have to eat here because they can't get in anywhere else. That that's as, that's how absurd yeah. it is with 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 the healthcare right now that 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 everywhere gets paid the same no matter what kind of job they do, and and any kind of market where there's where there's no reward for doing a good job. Is is uh, that's that's a big problem, and, and then not, not only that, the, the, where you make the most money is if you find various creative billing methods to screw the insurance companies, which then ultimately jacks up everybody's rates. It's it's such a crappy system that needs major reform. And the sad thing is that neither party wants to tackle it. And and, uh, and unfortunately, the, the Democrats say, let's go to socialized medicine, which just compound, compound the problem. The Republicans say, oh, no, everything's fine. Let's just make a few tweaks and we'll be OK. That's not right either. So the, the, no, nobody's addressing the, these, the, a lot of these major issues. And, and, and it's frustrating. So anyway, uh, my voice is starting to fade a little bit here and uh, I don't want to push it these days. So thank you for calling in and uh, thank you for listening. And uh We'll talk to you later. Oh, yeah. Thanks for taking my call. All right. No problem. Talk to you later. The regular listener, he's from the Vegas area now, and uh, he texts me a lot, too. So I knew who it was. I didn't have to ask who it was. I knew who it was. So, anyway, um, I look, regardless of where you are politically and where you stand on a lot of these issues, you've just got to think, is, is this something the politicians are doing to pander to you or to pander to a certain segment of the population? Is this really going to help anything long-term or is this going to create more problems than it, than it fixes? Is this really fair to be doing? This is a question I back to the tuition thing. I know we got off track, but you say this, I'm going to close the show. For those of you who still don't agree with me, still think that, look, this is a good thing to do. It's going to let people off a crippling debt they have. That uh, Let's just let them all off. Think about this. Because here's one counter that has been raised to what I've been saying. And the counter is that... Who's being harmed by this, except for the really rich people that are being taxed? Who's being harmed by the tuition forgiveness? Yeah, the people who didn't go to college because of the loans may be frustrated by it, but they're still no worse off today than they were yesterday. If if, if this if this law is passed and they forgive all the college loans, the people who never went to college may not be happy about that, but the, they're not going to be any worse off today after this is passed compared to yesterday 
And the people who already paid off their loans, they may feel it was unfair to them, but again, they won't be any poorer, they won't be any worse off than before that law was passed. So why not just do it? Why, why worry about people being resentful? But the problem is, you actually are affecting them because you're reaching back into their past and changing a decision they made from good to bad. And that's not fair to them. And furthermore, and I ask this of anybody who disagrees with me, suppose a politician came with a new proposal. The, the politician says, you know what? I think people born between 1973 and 1980 are in need of help. They're just not doing that well. And a lot of them have families to raise, and they, they just seem like they need the most help right now. So just if you're born between 1973 and 1980, even though you're not very old yet, so you're, you're between 30, probably between like 38 and 46 at this point. But if you're born in those years, we're going to send you a $100,000 check. The government will send you a $100 check free and clear. The money's yours if you're born in those years. If you're not born in those years, if you're born before 73 or after 1980, you get nothing. But if you're born in those years, you get 100K. What do you think that's fair? What do you think that's right to do? You might like it if you're born in those years. But is it the right thing to do? After all, it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? And let's say let's say they're funding it the same way as the thing with the college loan forgiveness. Let's say let's say they're going to fund it with a tax on the wealth of the super rich. So only the super rich have to pay for this. And let's say that would be enough money to pay for this. It wouldn't, but let's say it would be. Should we do it? After all, it would give a decent segment of the population a lot more money. It would help a lot of people who are currently not doing well in that age group. People who are doing okay would have a lot of extra spending money. It might stimulate the economy. There's a lot of good things you could say would come of that. Right? But I bet you wouldn't support it because you'd say, well, why those years? Why why 73 to 80? What about people born in 72 or 71 or 81 or 82? Even several years before or after, why just those people? In fact, why give it to people who are middle-aged? Why, why, why not give it to young people just starting out? Why not give it to people who are old and might really need it? Why, are, why, why not tie it to how much money they currently have? Why not give it to the people really in need? Why, why are you just arbitrarily picking this period of time that people are born in to give them $100,000 each? And nothing to anybody else. And people could counter saying, well, yeah, but look, it doesn't hurt anyone else. It just helps some people and is neutral for everybody else. So what's the problem? If that were proposed, it would be dismissed as crazy and ludicrous. No, nobody would support that, except maybe the people born in those years. But that's exactly what they're doing with the tuition thing. That's what they're proposing with the tuition thing. Just picking an arbitrary group of people to help and screw everybody else. Even people who made the more responsible decision, even people with a very similar spot, people who just finished paying off their loans a few months ago, screw them. People who chose not to go to college to avoid the loan, screw them. 
people who might really need the money more. Screw them. Because it's still a public expenditure. You're still taking public money and spending it on this. Is that really the best place to spend it? If you're going to have that much money that you get from taxing someone or something, don't you think there's a better way to spend the money than this? Than to give it to people who have a college degree and probably can get a good job? May already have a good job? Is this who you need to reward at this point? Is this who you need to help out? This is going to be a massive expenditure. Is this what we should be doing with the money? Sounds super arbitrary and wasteful to me. But sadly, there are those these days who believe that just any government handout is a good thing, as long as it does not go to the rich. And they don't bother to stop and think, is it the right handout? Is it the right thing we're doing? With all matters in politics, I like to always stop and ask myself, is this the right thing to be doing? And I, what I don't ask myself is, what does my political party think of this? What do other people who vote the same way I do think of this? What would the people who uh, produce the political talk shows say about this? Like, that's not what I think. I think, is this the right thing to do? And if the answer is no, I can't support it. And I would hope you do that too. No matter what your politics might be. But to critically look at something and say, is this actually the right and fair thing to do? And if it's not, then come out against it. Well, we are done. I'd like to thank you for listening, especially if you've hung on all this time. Ended up being a fairly long show, given that this was just five days after the last show. So it looks like Skype is kind of back, you know? Like, I, I've got to share my screen with, with Trader Ruski. I, I, I can keep no secrets from him anymore. That, that part kind of sucks. Trader Ruski can just see everything I do. But I guess I can accept that. But now I can share sounds with him. He doesn't have to play something in the background in the other ear so he can hear what I'm playing, which is really stupid. And... I can merge on calls. I mean, I have to admit, Skype's come a long way. It's still not back to the version 10 years ago. That was still a lot better than the one today, but it's come a long way since I was forced to switch to this stupid new version in November. It doesn't feel like it, but the World Series is five weeks away. And I'm going to be there right at the beginning. 
I've had some people asking me, will I meet with them at the World Series? The answer is, if I have time, yes. If, you, if you'd like to meet up, you can text me and, uh, you know, you can say hello to me or whatever you want to do. I, I do like meeting listeners. If you see me just walking around the hallway, you can stop me. Sometimes I can't stop and talk to you if I'm, like, going to the bathroom in a short break between, you know, during an event or something. But, uh... If I'm not on my way somewhere or short on time, I'd be glad to talk to you and meet you. You don't have to feel shy. I'm happy to meet listeners. I should be there at the World Series for a lot of the time. I, the only time I won't be there at the World Series this year will be the middle of June. Kind of like from uh, like June 12th to June 24th or so. I won't be there. But aside from that, I should be there most of the time at the World Series from beginning to end. I'm looking forward to it. Hoping I can get some luck this year. Do some well, do well at the end of these damn events. Stop running cold. That's all. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in six days on May first. Yeah. Shalom. <laughs>